Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. You pop craze youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the sofa on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and rolling deep with me today are my road dogs, Neil Kulkarne. Hello there. And rock expert, David Stubbs. How do you do? Boys, come and sit by the fire and hit a brother off, if you will, <laughs> with the pop things and the interesting things. Come on. Oh, a few things. I mean, not particularly pop. I was in a car crash. That was fun. No. Um, oh, yes. Oh. Got rear shunted. <laughs> no oh, innuendo intended. Um, at speed. But it kind of worked in my favour, although I should probably have fabricated some whiplash and got some oh, compo. But no, wrote off my car. You split it right down the middle. But um, really? it was on its last legs, to be fair. And the value that the insurance company gave me back has enabled me to buy another car. Ooh. Luckily, with a CD player in it, because without a CD player in it, my daughter wouldn't have accepted it. I really didn't get on with the courtesy car and all its iPaddy, Oaks cable, <laughs> you know, uh, stuff. So, yeah, I like old-fashioned cars with CD players in it. So that mm. happened. Also, I was a TV host for a weekend. What? Well, sort of. Um, a festival happened in Coventry a few weeks ago. What, another one? Oh, yes. They can't get it's enough of their festivals. Stop festivals <laughs> around your way, Neil. It's a shitty of culture, isn't it? So, um, yes. yeah, we had a Deliophonic Festival at, uh, in the magnificent Coventry Cathedral. Um, a celebration of the, of the life and work of Delia Derbyshire, um, radiophonic composer. And um, they, for some reason, wanted me to host the live stream and kind of do interviews and be a bit of a oh. telly person for a bit. Did they say, come on, where are you? Let's have the, that's the wrong Delia, isn't it? <laughs> wrong Delia. <laughs> wrong Delia. But I was bricking it, man. Absolutely bricking it. Oh, yeah. The first thing they wanted me to do was a Q&A with Caroline Katz, who's directed a brilliant film that's on, on BBC iPlayer called Delia Derbyshire Myths and Legends, um, um, which I, I kind of got ready for. And then a uh, late breaking kind of, you know, the Q&A is about to happen. Turns out Brian Hodgson from the original radio workshop and the guy who made the sound that the TARDIS makes um, had been picked up from Cov Station just to come and watch the film. And in the car, he'd been saying, oh, I'm a bit nervous about the Q&A. And he's 85 years old. You're not going to tell a guy like that, no, you can't do it. So they let him on. And he was fucking fantastic. Was it? Um, the memories he had. 
of Brian Jones being at the Radiophonic Workshop and his work with Dealey and of making the TARDIS noise. He was fucking wonderful. Oh, um, it's hard doing Q&As, isn't it? It is. I did one a while back with uh, some bloke. He's a right thick cunt in the end. What was he? <laughs> I had to carry the whole thing. What was his name again? Oh, oh David Stubbs. <laughs> oh, well, that idiot. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's hard, though. It because, is hard. you know, you're trying to do a conversation... Mm. But it's the, the fakest conversation ever. It, yeah. yeah. It kind of rolled. It kind of worked. The inevitable happened when I threw it open to the audience, uh, if they had any questions. It was basically a lot of very spotty blokes who didn't really have questions. They just sort of wanted to make statements mm. about what they'd mm. just seen. Yeah. But it was okay. And the whole weekend, I mean, it ill behoves me to have any civic pride, really. But honestly, on the Saturday night, I'm there hosting the telly bits. And I noticed somebody walking past me who's unmistakable. It's Joey Dam. Oh. from the specials he's a bit of a hero of mine and I've never really met him and he's got a DJ set an amazing DJ set that he does later mm. it was one of those things where my, my sort of my body did something before my brain said no I, I saw him and I just stood up and said hi Jerry Wow. and I had nothing else to say to him apart from that but he was he was beautifully polite so you didn't say hello Jerry Dummers <laughs> no, no I was. didn't trick this man <laughs> but it was a bit it was a bit mad because I think it was a lot of old cough faces after two years of the pandemic it was a slight mm. sense of them sort of reconvening. So I take a oh. stroll down a cathedral aisle to have a piss um, in the cathedral toilets, and there's Jerry with Linville Good Lord. and Horace just having a photo together. It was mental. Um, so I doubt Terry would have got involved with anything like that. No. But yeah, it was it was a lovely, lovely weekend of kind of a, a vague sense of civic pride. And I can't have done that badly because they've asked me to do something else. So who knows? Um, I might be a talking head cunt on a BBC4 documentary sometime soon. Great yeah, you need to be, Neil. Yeah, but I'm Melody Maker. They, they only ask enemy people to do that kind of thing. But yeah. cool. I mean, it's, it's good because I quit my teaching job a little bit. So doing this yes. media Pop stuff... School. You're quite right. Flipping school. Too bloody right. Um, so doing a bit of media stuff and reminding myself that I can do this shit. You know, it was, um, yeah. it was a, it, it's been a nice few weeks, really. Oh, lovely. David, mm. been a while, mate. How you been? Well, you know, I've been rocking away and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you, you, you're talking about, um, yeah, Q&A's things. Yeah, I've done quite a few of those in my time. And, uh, yeah, and it's sometimes you feel like a bit of a kind of, you know, it can be a bit invidious, especially if the um, person you're interviewing sort of tries to take the piss out of you and make out you being this kind of pretentious music journalist. You know, <laughs> oh, no, no. You oh, know, name, name, name. Oh, dear old Jackie Liebitzite was a bit like that when I did him. How was he can, now? You know? <laughs> yeah, so I was. I had to play the... F- the full guard mm. to the whole thing, you know, with my yeah. highfalutin ideas about can, and he said, oh, we just turned up and played. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of course he did. Who was the biggest cunt you've ever had to do a Q&A with? There's a, there's a question. I haven't really done that many, you know. Yeah. I mean, the weirdest person I ever interviewed, uh, I guess, was Ginger Baker, the late Ginger Ooh. Baker out of Cream. That was just dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd been like, oh, Who's this? I thought I'd been patched through to an old people's home by the state. You know, it's just like I was doing it for the quietest. They do this thing, Baker's Dozen. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I was almost, you know, I had to talk of fashion, you know, because it's called Baker's Dozen. And I think mm. you took it literally because it's meant to be like <laughs> the tracks that have inspired you. Um, throughout your life, you know, the groups, the artists, et cetera, et cetera, everything he chose was by himself or involved himself. You know, he thought he was literally Ginger Baker's dozen. And everybody was crap. Jimmy Hendrix was crap. That yeah, was yeah, crap. Yeah, yeah. It was all, yeah. everyone's crap except me. It's just like monotones and lengthy silences and tedious. And it was, oh, it was just, he's just an absolute, the cunt to end all cunts, really, he was. 
<laughs> definitely. But um, yeah, it's funny. Neil, uh, yeah, Neil was talking about doing things, you know, audiences, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I did a little thing recently just for some students. Um, mm. I was studying some sort of music and media type course, and it was just I was just there as the great David Stubbs and um, <laughs> with the kids exactly yeah they'd each prepared a question for me and it was very nice and, and, and the strangest one was one of them asked me you know they knew that I'd written a book about Jimi Hendrix and then said you know if you had a chance to interview Jimi Hendrix um, now what would you ask him mm. and I oh man I froze <laughs> I don't know I've been thinking about it ever since mm. he's the greatest rock star of all time he made the greatest album of all time as far as I'm concerned mm. Electric Ladyland and I had nothing I'd be it was a bit like um, Neil in front of Jerry Downers. I would just say, hi, Jimmy. Well, obviously, David, you just said, that Ginger Baker reference, you're a right <laughs> Why don't you go off and pan in? That is a really difficult question to answer. Mm. Because, I mean, especially with an artist that passed, yeah. I think the natural habit would be to say, you know, what do you think of Spotify, Jimmy? Or, or what do you think yeah. of something contemporary, no. you know? Um, that yeah, would be the only thing that comes Where do you get your ideas? Yeah. Do you practice to get that good? I mean, it's just... <laughs> the thing is... What I kind of said rather pompously was, look, Jimi Hendrix just answered all of the questions I had and questions that I didn't even dream mm. of in during his life and work, you know. Yeah. And that's a total cop-out, isn't it, David? Bullshat <laughs> my way through that one, definitely. <laughs> Good lad. Um, the best Q&A I ever did, uh, Chris mm. Needham. Oh, I bet. Oh, I bet. yeah, of course. Yeah, he was on absolute mm-hmm. form. It was a joy. Worst Q&A I did was Chris Needham again a few months oh, later. <laughs> and the reason for that was um, someone had given him a crate of booze. Mm. Ah. That was tough going, that was. <laughs> Interview Marky e. Smith when he's absolutely pissed at 1.30 in the afternoon over the phone. That was, Yeah, that was the last time I did Marky e. Smith, and it wasn't great. Yeah, definitely. it's always tricky if somebody's getting... I mean, especially yeah. if they're getting pissed during the interview. Well, yeah. When I did Sean Ryder, I remember, um, when he was living at the Marylebone Hotel in London. Uh, it was Black Great Years, I think. And he ordered a pint, and then he sent someone out to get Xanax for him. Mm. Oh, dear. He, he must have necked about a dozen and then knocked them back with the pint. And, yeah, the interview deteriorated quite rapidly after that. I got 10 minutes of gold and about an hour of doggerel. Oh. When I interviewed Sean Ryder, I was pissed. I mean, I'd been waiting for him for six hours in the hotel <laughs> lobby and like, playing it back. Oh, I mean, it's excruciating enough at the best of times listening yeah. to yourself in interviews. Oh, but listening to yourself like, when, you, when you've got about 10 or 11 pints inside you. <laughs> fucking, what do you think of this whole fucking business? <laughs> fucking, I just got such a fucking, you know, this business is fucking, oh, it's dreadful. Well, the only bit of pop and interesting business I have to impart to the pop crazy youngsters is that uh, Al Taylor uh, went out on loan to the Cacophony Sessions podcast for a for Ooh. a very intensive blather about Neil Young, which is uh, mm-hmm. something he probably won't get to do on chart music. So, you know, that, that's good. Mm. So, yeah. you know, if you're missing him like the desert misses the rain, go and fling <laughs> a tab at that when you're done with us. The Cacophony Sessions podcast, everyone. I've been on that as well, yeah. Very good. Very, oh, very, have you? Very knowledgeable chaps, yeah, yeah. So this is... Is what goes on behind my back. <laughs> so we've come to the part of the episode where we stop, we drop, and we bow the knee to the pop craze Patreons who've joined us this month. And this month in the $5 section are such names as Alistair Bain, Johnny Cabbage, Mickey Beats, Liam Devereaux, Denise King, Ash Preston. 
Adrian Armstrong, Joe Greaves, Chris Durbin, Ewan Wallace, Tim Ward, Don Whiskerando, Ian Sullivan, Christian Backer-Yord, Matt Taylor, Ashu Rye, and the return of the person who chooses to call himself Leicester is better than Nottingham. (laughs) There wasn't the other month, was there? <laughs> oh yeah, David. Yeah, Arsenal lost to Forest in the FA Cup, didn't they? God, that was a that was a long time ago. I think they kind of threw the game. To be honest, it's uh, you know focus on the Premier League, really young yeah. team. But uh, I do you know. I think Forest. Uh, I, I enjoyed watching them this season. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty handy stuff. I hope they uh, get back in the old top flight. No, oh, you patronising cunt. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And in the $3 section... I'm sorry, David, that was harsh. I'll keep it in, but that was harsh. And yeah, fuck off, Simon. Yes, yes, of course. Oh, man, I was just hoping that Forrester beat Liverpool and then Mm. the FA would rig the whole FA Cup and get Coventry in for the (laughs) (laughs) semi-final. Then I'd have fucking dominion over all of you. (laughs) And in the $3 section, we have Stuart King, Elaine Hutton, Jimbo Seven. 72 and John Lekesne. Oh, and Gareth Price and Gareth Hawker, they whacked it right up this week. Bless their hearts and their cotton socks. We love you. Superlative. Mm. And as well as doing their bit from keeping chart music from starving this month, the Pop Craze Patreons have been breaking out the Judy Zook satin tour jackets and rigging the latest chart music top ten. Oh, let's have it. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Do you like it? Do you like <laughs> it like this? Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to Singleton Notes, Purvis and Judd, the popular orange vegetable, staircase of cock, skin heady header, and rock expert oh, David no. Stubb! It is bogus! <laughs> Which means none up, three down, two non movers, four new entries, and one re entry. This week's number 10 is a re entry for Jeffs. First new entry in at number nine, this year's most lovable bisexual. (laughs) Last week's number seven, this week's number eight. Here comes Chisholm. It's a five-place drop from number two to number seven for Crosby, Stills, Nash and Glitter. (laughs) And a former number one drops from number four to number six. The bent cunts who are fucking real. Into the top five and it's no change for Bummer Dog. New entry at number four for That Dog's Dead Now. <laughs> Into the top three, and it's another new entry The Mary Brennell Boys Murder. <laughs> the highest new entry crashes into the charts at number two this week Sugar Blokes, <laughs> which means. Britain's number one. They're still there. The chart music number one, right at the top. Two Ronnies, one. What a chance! What a chance! chance. Some exciting new entries. Mm. This year's most lovable bisexual, high energy, I reckon. Yeah, Yeah. 
I was thinking something a bit more twee, to be honest, and ultimately rather annoying once oh, really? you've been amused by the name. Yeah. <laughs> we already know that the Mary Brown or Boys murderer uh, acoustic field recordings in a Welsh shopping centre. <laughs> when, when are we going to get to hear that? You know he's got a tape. Oh, of course he has. <laughs> I mean, he, he threw up on social media that the poster for a gig. Yeah, and if you've got that, you've got a tape, man. You've got a t- Fuck, exactly. Come on, Price, you know you've got it. You know we want it. <laughs> that dog's dead now. What What oh. are they laying down? <laughs> oh, I think they'd be Italian avant-garde, similar to... Uh, yeah, not my, my cat is an alien. Yeah. They'd be a kind of they tour together and sugar blokes. You know, goes without saying, really, isn't it? It's, it's us <laughs> <laughs> in spangly hot pants, yeah. bra tops, the twenty-first century Baron Knights. <laughs> so, if you want to stick your oar in on the chart music top ten, as well as getting episodes of chart music in full without adverts before everyone else, as well as supporting an independent artisan bespoke creative community, <laughs> shake that. <laughs> Sexy little arse yawn over to the keyboard. Tap out patreon.com slash chart music. Press that like button and pledge allegiance to the chart music crusade. Come on, you want it. I do like your use of the word artisanal there. You're quite right. It, it, it feels handcrafted, doesn't it, this show? No, oh, it is. Definitely handcrafted. <laughs> it's always weird, though, when people sort of say it handmade. What else is it going to be? Foot made? I mean, unless yeah. you're treading grapes, it's pretty much everything's handmade. Yeah. Yeah, especially when they talk about food, handcrafted burgers. Yeah, yeah that sounds fucking horrible. <laughs> sounds yeah. like you got some poor lad getting his hand in a big fucking frying pan and blistering himself. <laughs> no one wants to eat that shit. <laughs> so, this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to July the 8th, 1982. And oh, can you hear that? That's me rubbing my cakey little hands together with absolute glee because, oh, boys, we always have a good time on the 1982 episodes, don't oh, we? Oh, we do, yeah. 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 And, and this episode's no exception. Mm. 82. Oh, it's a lovely grab bag of bollocks, isn't it? It is, most definitely. Everything good and bad about the Yellow Hurl era is in play in this episode. Mm. There's a bit of cat shit, but... You know, you've got to have a bit of cat shit with your good stuff, haven't you? I mean, there's always got to be the sublime and the ridiculous. And, you mm. know, you can't have one without the other. And, and in certain cases, we get both in one go. Yeah. Mm. We'll have this argument as the episode unfolds, but um, I'm already uh, somewhat disagreeing with this a little bit of cat shit idea. <laughs> I think there's plenty of well, cat yeah, shit. Well, yeah, okay, right, a big wash <laughs> of it. <laughs> yeah, there is some fucking horrible shit on this, but the good outweighs the mm. bad, yeah, I yeah, feel. Yeah, I think so. Mm. And it's a very strange time, 1982, particularly if you're British, because, you know, we're a month removed from the Falklands War wrapping mm. up, and uh, it's become very clear that Margaret Thatcher isn't going to be the one-term Prime Minister we were hoping and expecting her to mm-hmm. be. Yeah, The fleet has only just returned last week, waving banners that read, call off the rail strike or we'll send an airstrike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lady Di's just discharged phase one of her duties by dropping an air to the throne. And, you know, essentially the UK is going round thinking it's summit at the moment, aren't they? Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we can perhaps blame one of the artists that we see later on in this episode for this uh, f- spirit of national optimism. In a sense. But having said that, this episode that we're going to cover, it reveals quite a lot of things, doesn't it? It's the first tumblings of pebbles and silt of the American cultural landslide that's about to smash into us and, yeah. and define the rest of the 80s. And we're pretty much going to witness the coming out party of a lot of elements of the 80s that's going to dominate the decade. And um, most of them, if not all of them, are American. Yeah, and enabled by our public broadcaster, which is, which is the odd thing. Yeah. I wonder if what accelerated that. I mean, obviously, American popular culture has all, you know, always had a significant impact on British culture and Hollywood, etc., etc. Mm. And in the 70s, America felt very, very other. Yeah. And I think by this point, it, it, it's feeling rather less so. Ever since the war, you know, we've been fascinated by American culture, but, you know, and we took some of the elements on, but even in the 50s, you know, we're rock and roll and everything. There wasn't many people in America who were dressed up like Ted's. Mm. You know what I mean? We, we could still adopt Americanisms and tailor them to our own style. But by the 80s, yeah. instead of just absorbing American stuff, we wanted to live like Americans and act like Americans. Mm. We became shaking Americans, mm. if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, it's also coming to us on all fronts. So you've yeah. got music doing that. You've also got film Absolutely. doing that a fuck yeah. of a lot. And that tie-up with music and film doing that quite a lot. And mm. also, you've got primetime British television doing that. Yes. And I don't mean British television, I mean what the British networks are putting on television. Mm. So on sort of these three different fronts, which pretty much when you're a kid in particular, this is the only access to culture you have. Yes. You know, on all those fronts, America is absolutely battering down the door. Mm. Yes, we supposedly have these British invasion bands in place, like Duran and things like that. Yeah. And that is sort of happening. That yields dividends later on in the decade. But yeah. yeah everything so American at the time. And it's, it's, the, it's the time of the A-team and the Dukes of Hazzard and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Those shows, you could say, were always with us, but never at uh, the prominence that they have in 1982. No. I mean, you were talking about film and influence. E.T. effectively in, it reinvents Halloween in this country, you know, because you've got those Halloween yes. scenes. Yeah. Together. I mean, yeah, yeah, really, yeah. before that, it was just sort of mischief night and, like, you know, knocking on doors and mm-hmm. running away and all that, you know. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I hate Halloween. <laughs> it's not very pricey, isn't it? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolute bollocks. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's not so much the marmite of, like, you know, annual festivities. It's the shit in a jar yes. of annual festivities. <laughs> anyway, fuck that. Let's move on. Forward! Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago... If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
this week. Roy Jenkins has become the new leader of the SDP after beating Dr David Owen by 5,000 votes in a leadership election. Aslev have begun a train strike that lasts for two weeks. Terry Higgins, a Hansard reporter at the House of Commons and part-time nightclub DJ, dies of an AIDS-related illness in London, one of the first in the UK to do so. Michael Fagan is about to break into Buckingham Palace in an attempt to have a chat with the Queen and gets as far as her bedroom before being arrested. Paul Raymond has announced that he's planning to publish a surreptitious photo of a full-fronted naked celebrity while they were rehearsing for the play they're currently in. It's Billy Connolly. Connolly, who kicked off at Raymond after he published a topless photo of his girlfriend Pamela Stevenson, will be featuring in a forthcoming issue of Club International. <laughs> Jimmy Connors and Martina Navratilova have just won the singles championship at Wimbledon. 27 Barry Manilow fans have forked out £250 between them for a guided tour of the room in the Metropole Hotel in Birmingham, where he stayed the night during his tour of Britain earlier this year. I expect they will want to lie on his bed and crawl all over it, said the (laughs) hotel manager. They must see his room as some sort of a shrine. (laughs) But the big news this week is World Cup, World Cup, World Cup, World Cup! We're in the final week of Espana 82. Northern Ireland have had a good sing on the coach after being knocked out by France. We're three days past from England failing to get into the semis and being knocked out without losing a game and Italy beating Brazil 3-2 in an all-time classic. Mm. And today is semi-final day. Oh, what a time to be alive, pop craze youngsters. What a World Cup that was. It was a great World Cup. It was one of the last World Cups to be kind of absolutely soaked in air horns as well, you know, the proper sound of football, which have now, you know, obviously they've completely disappeared. It was also the last time that Brazil were actually proper Brazil, weren't they? Oh, God, Zico, Socrates. I mean, oh, man. I was such a fanboy, such a fanboy. That day, the, the Monday, when Brazil got knocked out, in the evening England got knocked out, and I know for a fact that I was more upset about not seeing Brazil anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it was I about like England. That. But what yeah. a game they got knocked out in. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Spoiled, man. What a feast of football. Yeah. No, I, I was devastated by it. It just felt like the kind of, the, you know, the, the death of a certain kind of panache and flamboyance yeah. yeah, in the game. Yeah. And who gives a shit about defending, you know? Mm. Yeah. Just briefly going back mm. to that Michael Fagan business with the Queen, it just said so much mm. about this sycophantic bollocks that, you know, that, that, that drowned the, the royal family, anything to do with them. I remember there were reports at the time that, you know, he'd got into her room and he'd, it was about 20 minutes before anybody had managed to kind of come in and, you know, apprehend him and arrest him and all that. And during that time, the mm. Queen had been very calm and spoken to him in a way that was like not likely yes. to excite him or, you know, and like, you know, and it was very measured and calm throughout. This is all nonsense. Apparently, she just screamed, yeah. get out, get out. Get out! But you know, Lord no. forbid, you know, which is a perfectly natural response, is what any of you know. But oh yeah, definitely. But, you know, they yeah. had to sort of confect this story about you know how sort of queenly and magisterial and calm she was in the situation. <laughs> Just complete nonsense. The eighty-two World Cup. I mean, although I was cognizant of the seventy-eight World Cup, the eighty-two one was the first one where yeah, I fully got. 
I could watch it basically. I could watch it all. None mm. of it was on too late. And, and mm. yeah. I completely, I mean, beyond the Figarini Panini, I had the, you know, the Falcon 350 piece jigsaw of the England squad, Ooh. um, in their lovely Admiral kit. Was Ken Bailey in oh, it? He might have been. I, no, the, the yeah. thing I mainly remember about that jigsaw is, is the unpleasant tightness of Kevin Keegan's shorts on the front row. Um, <laughs> I think I was so disgusted by it, I threw that piece away. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, massively, massively. That was a brilliant World Cup, that. But mm. the first one that I, yes, could, I, I felt like I could fully watch all of it, including the amazing semis. Yes. It was just a wonderful, was so many moments, Tardelli yeah. and the rest. Mm. The only thing I didn't like about it was the slightly daft format of it, you know, which did mean that, you know, like England could go out and having not lost a game, you know. Oh, that was good, though, man. We, we left with our heads held Ooh, high. Yeah. yeah. If Keegan had held his head a bit high when he put that bloody yeah. head in we, we having this conversation on the cover of melody maker this week captain sensible and dolly mixture on the cover of smash hits the associates the number one lp in the uk at the moment is the lexicon of love by abc and over in america the number one single is don't you want me by the human league and the number one lp is asia by asia so boys what were we doing in July of 1982? Right. Well, um, I had just completed my first year at uh, university. Um, uh, my mum worked at the job centre in Leeds, and she was always able to blag me some really, really sort of good jobs. So in July of 1982, mm-hmm. I would have just started a temporary job as a, as a pharmacy storekeeper at the Leeds General Infirmary. Oh! And the weird thing was, Jimmy Savile was working as a sort of voluntary porter at that oh, time. No. That I never came across him, but technically, I would have outranked him. You were still alive, David, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, yeah, and, you know, I, I didn't actually come across him, unfortunately. I do remember that what was weird is, every week there'd be a consignment of heroin that was brought in from the pharmacy, you know, for the addicts Ooh. and stuff like that. And you think they'd be like me- mega security but no just somebody just dumped it a loading bay Good Lord. i went across one of those wheelie things and put it behind the counter and that was the end of it you know it's extraordinary i mean i could have just made off you could have there and there yeah. you know sort of bought my own little island but um, you know I was, too, I was too scrupulous and catholic a boy to count and a coward as well to countenance any of that so uh jesus i'm really kind of into the whole spirit of 82 you know the whole sort of popism you know mm. associates abc scritty politi mm. all that kind of stuff and it's kind of it's all sort of marinated in the sort of, in, in the rhetoric and the prose generated by enemy at the time by people like paul morley and ian penn and it just feels like we're on the cusp of some sort of breakthrough some sort of epiphany is about to occur mm. um you know all of which sounds pretty grand i think actually i would have struck probably myself if i were to look back and outsiders as a pretty insufferable little man um <laughs> at that point um a, a, Bit of a ponce, to be honest. Um, you know, I was, um, I, I, I was uh, going to that there university. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it was that. I remember actually going to the boat race that year and sort of dressing up a bit. And I think me and my little gang. No, David, we, I know, I know. No. But we're all a little bit full of like sort of bride's head and all that yeah, kind yeah. of thing and straw yeah, boats yeah, yeah. and the video to like the look of love and all that kind of stuff. And dressed, you know, I, I remember wearing this pair of bright blue sort of zoot trousers with red braces. Mm-hmm. 
on a shirt. And I remember oh, no! getting the train back to Oxford from London, and like we were sitting there, and um, and then this, you know, this, this local wedding woman goes, "Ooh, hello there, ooh, ooh. <laughs> in a sort of very sarky, snarky, ooh, Mister Lardy Bertie Woofter here sort of thing." And I remember just Lardy sort of Dar like David Stubbs, me and my lip curling with contempt at this like, lump and prowl. <laughs> I said, "You know, oh, you should have horse whipped." Don't, yeah, don't you read the enemy? Don't you realise that these trousers are bursting with semiotic significance? <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, you know, so uh, yeah, a little bit insufferable perhaps at the time. I was nine, going on ten, and I was moving house, and also in a sense moving social class. I think because I was living in Ernstford Grange, which is a very working class neighbourhood of Coventry, and I moved to where I'm sat right now, quite a posh area. Right, um, and you just immediately start noticing differences. No mm. kids on the street, no games, no Kirby, no corner shop. Um, and, oh. and, you know, I, I moved to this street, which, oddly enough, I'm not... A cultural desert. Well, quite. I'm now looking at the for sale sign, which I have out in front of my house, because I'm putting it on the market. Because um, um, I've had enough. Not, it's not I've had enough. I've been here 40 years, in a way, on and off. Um, but, yeah, I, I moved to this house then. And, yeah, I, I just sort of, like, I went from a life of, like, a lot of kids in the street to, yeah, no kids in the street. And if there were kids, they were sort of rarely glimpsed. They were almost, like, in a Victorian sense, you know. Uh, barely seen yeah. and kind of you know I mean I, I, I we'd had like friends who were middle class before and the way their parents treated them was really weird and I think I think those were the kids that I was surrounded with because we, we had somebody who lived near us before and that that they had the kind of parents who had a lock for the television what yeah their, their tv was in a cabinet and it was locked and if the kids wanted to oh, watch no, it like the ones you used to get on sale of the same yeah 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 and if you wanted to watch it they had to ask their, their parents and they weren't allowed to watch grange hill and <laughs> <laughs> all this sort of mm. stuff and even though i couldn't actually see any kids in this new street that i moved to i suspected they were all like that and they were just being kept under lock and key to a certain extent by their parents Jesus. and it, it changed my life because i inevitably you know stopped living that street life to paraphrase Roxy and started living that bedroom life really you know when you there's no kids to play with out in the street you sort of retreat inward so I think that starts mm. happening for, for, from this age onwards. Well, I'm 14, and, and like you, I'm absolutely frothing at the gash about the World Cup. Mm-hmm. The other big thing that happened recently was I'd, I'd just come back from my first day trip to that there London mm-hmm. in order to spunk my birthday money up the wall on trying to look like Paul Weller. So I am now the proud owner of a white Lonsdale sweatshirt Ooh. from the official shop in Beak Street, and Ooh. I've teamed that, of course, with a, a Dennis the Menace and Nasher badge, <laughs> yeah. like a uh, Paul Weller had in, in Smash Hits. And I got a load of Carnaby Street Rammel, including two jam tour jumpers. And uh, I, yeah, I'm teaming them with some dog tooth check trousers. So I'm wearing the shit out of them. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do believe this is also the time that taken on the uh, Steve Marriott triangle Toblerone uh, hairstyle that Paul Weller was rocking at the time. So yeah, I am. I am Mini Weller at the moment. You're looking the part. London absolutely did my head in. I, I mm. got to St Pancras at about half past seven in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I needed a shit, so I went into the toilets, and I ended up in a cubicle and was just horrified by the fucking 
filth on the walls, man. <laughs> the entire cubicle was covered in graffiti about, you know, if you stand uh, on this platform at this time with the evening standard under this arm, um, mm. I'll let you bum me. And, and all sorts <laughs> and i'm just absolutely fucking terrified yeah yeah it, i was in there for about 10 minutes deciding well shall i just go back on the train oh, bless. before something happens and then finally i looked down for some bog roll <laughs> and right next to me are a pair of shoes and on top of that was a pair of trousers and on top of that was a pair of someone's pants and on top of that was a rolled up tie and I just absolutely shot myself, thinking, what the fuck has happened in this cubicle? <laughs> I nicked the tie, though, and put it in my bag, because it was a nice one, so... Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Sin City, eh? Yeah. yeah it's, it's a bit weird yeah, to think yeah. of the future employee of Mr. Desmond yes. gathering up his petticoats at the obscene graffiti on the wall, toilet walls. Well, man, I was, I was an innocent lad at the time. Yeah. Mm. And then later on, I got the flip side of, of London. I'm looking for a shop in Chalk Farm because this was the time when if you wanted a certain thing, you had to go to a certain shop in a certain town and, you know, mm. they didn't do mail order or you'd have to wait two months for it to arrive. So I I'm looking around for this shop. Can't find it at all. And the first bloke that walks past me, I just flag him down and say, oh, can you help me out and give me directions? And he does. And he's like, fucking, I recognise that voice. Raymond fucking Baxter of Tomorrow's World. Oh, wow. So I got it into my head that London was full of people who wanted casual gay sex in toilets and (laughs) celebrities. And there was nothing in between. So the truth, basically. Hmm. (laughs) Do you still get excited, Al, when you go to London? Just because it's London. Um, I know you worked there for a long time, so it might have lost this excitement for you, but I still get this sense of immensity to it. Yeah. And not I don't just mean the size of kind of the size of London. I mean the size of the structures, the size of the roads, yeah. the size of everything. I still get an immense thrill coming off the M25 and seeing the Shard and seeing the city mm-hmm. and seeing it lit up in the distance. It's still Sin City to me. Yeah. Um, and then you get to Grand and you realise, of course, it's all changed. Yeah. But, yeah, it's still exciting in an immense way. Mm. It took me about 20 years to get over not being in London anymore. Because by the time I'd, mm. li- I'd lived there for about 13 years, and by the end of it, it yeah, was yeah. Just, you know, as they say, tired of London, tired of being fucking ripped off and shat on, <laughs> and having to <laughs> yeah, yeah. sit on a fucking tube for an hour and a half to get anywhere you want to go. Yeah. The thing about London for me now, that's where most of my favourite people in the world live, and mm. it's the place I have to go to to see them. Mm. So yeah. Yeah, that's what London is to me. But I mean, at the time, throughout the 80s, I used to go twice a year just down to London to just buy shit. And, mm. you know, I, I end up walking around Soho and going, one day I'm going to be here. And I was in the end. And it was like, oh, oh, yeah, here it is. Here I am. Mm. Big deal. Yeah. I mean, the early 80s, London and Soho would have been such a great place. You know, and it's yeah. ex- ex- it doesn't exist anymore. No, effectively. no. I went no, no, Soho the other week. nowadays. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's nothing there. It's a bit like Manhattan. It's, 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 you get that feeling about a lot of London is that it's an ex-city in some ways. And, yeah. But having said that, I mean, I've lived in London since 1985. So what's that? It's nearly 37 years. Mm. And I do always feel, I've, you know, and it's not a sort of boaster and that, but it has this great claim to be the centre of the world, mm. just in terms of, you know, it's 
pan-continentalism or whatever. Because, I mean, it, it, America is too solipsistic and inward-looking to be the centre of the world. It's too disconnected from the world. And, and there's nowhere else that really quite compares. Really. And I've always felt like that. Yeah, and if yeah. you move away from London, you're moving away from the centre of the world. You're almost like decreasing in relevance in some ways. You're the further you move away. <laughs> I've, always had that, I, I, I've never been able to move away. I've never had that option. Yeah. I'd love to say spent a year in Berlin or something like that. But I've always been committed to living in London. And I will be for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Music-wise, I'm still absolutely rinsing the gif, the recent Jam LP. And Mm -hmm. the one and only Jam LP that I actually bought on the day it came out. Yeah. But I'm still inhaling everything that the charts and the music press and Top of the Pops is throwing at me. I'm I'm, I'm an open-minded child, in a Mm -hmm. way. Mm. We're not yet into the years out where you disdain Top of the Pops. No, 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 no. no. If Top of the Pops is on, I'm there. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly, chaps, I've spent the day fretting that I'm going to have to watch this episode of Top of the Pops and the West Germany-France game on the black and white portable telly in my bedroom that's got a coat hanger for an aerial, which (laughs) I'm sure you'll agree is absolutely no way to watch such an event. No, no. That World Cup was full of sun and green and blue skies. It was a colourful event. Yeah. yeah. And exactly. and as I say, air horns, just, you know, mm. drenched in air horn. You know, we've got all these digital options nowadays. Yeah. Mm. Can't we have a, an option when the World Cup's on where you can, you can get air horns and yeah. distorted commentary and, yeah, you, you, and that, that shine? Filter. Yeah, That's, that, that sounds like it's being kind of, yeah, commentated over, over the phone. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 sort yeah. of filter, definitely, to stress the otherness of... European football, absolutely. Mm. We've already established in the past 64 episodes of Chart Music that my dad was the cruel overlord of the living room telly <laughs> and would rather watch old man scat pornography than Top of Pops. <laughs> but the other thing that he refused point blank to watch was football. So I'm yeah. fucked at the moment. Yeah. Not interested in sport at all. Right. But the the other thing he was interested in was going to the pub. Right. Luckily for me, we're still a pre-video household, so, mm. you know, he, he can't watch a fucking Bronson film or any of that shit. Mm-hmm. So this perfect storm of pop and football hinges upon what's on BBC Two at half past seven. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and bearing in mind that my dad would happily sit through Emmerdale Farm so I couldn't watch Top of the Pops downstairs, uh, I know it's going to have to be something pretty majorly unsuitable to the taste of a 39 year old lorry driver <laughs> to drive him <laughs> off to the pub early. So, you know, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll leave you on that cliffhanger for now. Yeah, I'm on tenterhooks. My mum goes to the bingo on Thursday night, so she's out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. And hmm. um, my sister can fuck off. <laughs> she, can, she can go out and talk to some lads from the other estate or something. Mm. You mm. know, this is a, a battle of wills yeah, between yeah. the master and the pupil. <laughs> so, pop craze youngsters, we arrive at the part of the episode where we retire to the chart music crap room, rip open a load of boxes, and pull out an issue of the music press from this week. And this time, we present to you the July 10th edition of the Accordion Times and New Musical Express. Shall we leaf through, chaps? Yeah. On the cover, Banana Rama again. Fucking hell, enemy, they like the banana armor, didn't they? <laughs> mm. In the news, the gig news is coming thick and fast this week, and the top story is the return of David Bowie to a British stage for the first time since a three night stand at Earl's Court in the summer of 1978. 
He's been lined up for a 20-minute slot at the Princess Trust Rock Gala at the Dominion Theatre, with Madness as the headliners. But don't bother trying to get a £50 ticket if you're not involved with the Princess Trust, as it's invitation only. And in any case, he pulls out a week or so later and is eventually replaced by Gary Brooker. <laughs> yeah. What's Debbie Bowie doing grovelling around Prince Charles? Yeah. Like that? Uh, Glad he did pull out. The other big comeback after 18 months in activity, the Associates, who will be playing three nights at the George Square Assembly in mid-August as part of the Edinburgh Festival, after which they'll be playing Glasgow Ultra Tech, The Hacienda and Two Nights in London. They're also about to release their 12th single and the follow-up to Club Country at the end of the month, 18 Carat Love Affair. But the jam's mooted open-air gig at Loftus Road, the home of Queen's Park Rangers, is officially off. Plans are afoot to find an alternative venue, but the band's management acknowledge that it's getting very late in the day to sort out a gig while the weather's still not shit and it sadly never comes off. Killing Joke are officially back from the dead and an active unit again after their drummer Big Paul has scrapped plans to form a new band a week after he announced it and has pegged it over to Iceland to reunite with Jazz Coleman and Geordie Walker. They've also unveiled a new bassist known as Mr Raven, the unfortunately titled Paul Raven, who the enemy reports is a capable musician and deranged. (laughs) They've immediately announced a two-month tour of North America beginning next week and will be playing here in the autumn. Topper Hedden, the ex-drummer of The Clash, has been bailed and sent for trial on a charge of nicking a London transport bus stop worth £30. (laughs) Theatre of Hate is a man down after the departure of their guitarist Billy Duffer in an amicable split. There was a clash of styles, says Theatre of Hate's manager Terry Razor. (laughs) I think Billy was more interested in a straighter rock and roll thing. Duffy, of course, eventually goes on to link up with Wolfchild and form the cult. Elena Lovich announces her return as the co-writer, costume designer and star of the musical Matahare, which will begin a four-week run at the Lyric Hammersmith Studio Theatre in October. Some things falling into place there, isn't it? Killing joke, Mm. solidifying. I mean, why would you announce a new band? before you've actually got it sorted. Yeah. But Raven, I mean, he, he ends up in ministry and revolting cocks and things like this. So um, he's, he's quite an important figure later. Uh, it's weird. I'd say that I would have bought this issue, and I don't recall. Everything that you've mentioned so far, I would have zoned out. <laughs> I bet you probably remember the reviews and stuff more. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think Paul Morley wrote a big thing about Killing Joke at one point around this period. And he says, oh, and I've been told by the editor that Killing Joke had got a new basis. No one in the world wants to know this, but they are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was my attitude as well. In the interview section, well, Mark Holman gives us a guided tour of the nightclub scene in Leeds, starting with his old workplace, the warehouse, oh, where he yeah. wrote the first ever soft soul songs in the cloakroom. He tells us that glam rock is making a comeback there and fits in perfectly with the all encompassing playlist at the warehouse. He also tells us that Le Phonographique has become more adventurous and on good nights feels like a party in a living room, but points out that the Bally High across the road is a 
poor imitation, while noting that primos on the top floor of Belinda's club has started one of those video texts that David Van Day and Therese Bazaar keep going on about. (laughs) Oh, David, you could have written this. Yeah. Oh, I used to go to the warehouse and the ballet high, and it is right to kind of have a low opinion of uh, that particular place. It was a bit Yates' wine lodge, really. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, the warehouse, yes, all kinds of people there, yeah. Cabri Voltaire, certain ratio, all that lot, yeah. Did you ever hand in your coat to Mark Holman? I didn't, no, no. Um, uh, I was probably just a little bit um, too young, yeah, for that to have happened. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's a great place to wear as long as you don't want to go to the toilet, because the toilets are very intimidating. Really? Mm. <laughs> yeah, especially if you don't like being looked at as you urinate. Oh, really? Well, I mean, just, not, not a lot of people were sort of like, you know, going out of the way to do that, particularly. It's just there's a lot of people in there. I just like a little bit. Oh, right. <laughs> A bit of peace and quiet and solitude. Perhaps a cubicle to myself, ideally. <laughs> what, right in where people ought to stand with the Yorkshire Post under their arm if they want a blowjob? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Lloyd Bradley, fretting that the post-Marley reggae scene is disappearing up its own arse, links up with a duo that he believes has the best chance of stopping the rot, Sly and Robbie, who were in town last week playing with Black Uhuru at the Stones Wembley gigs. They put the blame on artists and producers who only want to sell enough records at home to buy a new car and will only bother to put out new product when they want a new car, (laughs) as well as musicians who immediately graduate to studio work without learning their chops on the road, playing all sorts of music. They really like the British variant of reggae that's knocking about at the moment, but it never gets released in Jamaica for fear it'll put all manner of noses out of joint. And in any case, they're happy being the rhythm section, not the front persons. Bradley ends the piece by gloomily conceding that the work that Marley put into establishing reggae as a bona fide popular music is steadily being wiped out as reggae music climbs backwards further into the hills of Jamaica lost forever. Lynn Hanna travels to Hamburg with Banana Rama, who are doing the top and pop and circuit and discharging their final duties with the Fun Boy 3. She finds a trio of young British women who stick out like a sore thumb amongst the other ladies on the programme who are go-go dancing with their tits out. <laughs> we learn they're grateful to the fun boys for giving them a new sense of direction and showing them that it doesn't matter that they don't play instruments. They find it hilarious that the Daily Mail said they were putting the glamour back into rock and that the vast majority of their fan mail comes from girls who want to look like them. Mm. Bow wow wow currently plying their ways on the American market and, according to Adrian Thrills, there's a gaping hole in our charts and hearts about to be filled by the tough and tantalising new pop narcotic of Hazy Fantasia, who have just put out John Wayne's Big Legger. Jeremiah Healer, who claims that he was expelled from a voodoo cult in South London a few years ago after they accused him of being the Antichrist, gives us tips on how to get your dreadlocks hanging just so, (laughs) while we learn that Kate Garner comes from Wigan and is keen to let us know that they're not going to be another Bucks Fizz or Dollar. (laughs) Oh, and they'll be going for a skiffle feel in their next single. God, that worked out for him. <laughs> and Amrick Rye makes a pilgrimage to the top of the pop studio to interview the man of the moment, Captain Sensible. 
After noting that the studio looks like Victoria Coke Station in the middle of a train strike, John Peel is referred to by Michael Hurl as John Darling, and Visage have a coughing fit on the dry ice in their dress rehearsal. He finds Sensible in a belligerent mood. He wishes that his current success was as a member of the Damned, then a solo affair, and is insistent that now that Dave Vanian can actually sing, the Damned are more important and relevant now than they were in 1976. When asked about how he's changed since then, he says, I'm not sure. I tend to despair a lot more for my country. This is probably the worst period in world history, and you can't ignore something like that. Happy talk. Mm. Wait another 40 years, mate. Yep. Oh, my dear. (laughs) Single reviews. At the controls this week is Adrian Thrills, and his single of the week by a country mile is Don't Go by Yazoo. No contest. The Ike and Tina Turner of the new pop return with a slice of soul melodrama that knocks the rest of this week's releases into a cocked hat in terms of impact and intensity. There was a time when we pop snobs used to muse more in hope than desperation that singles like this deserve to be big hits. These days, it is a foregone conclusion that the likes of Yuzu will chart, so instead we say that Don't Go deserves to be a number one. It might just turn out to be the first great single of the summer, and about time too. Oh, I bet you agree with that, eh, David? I certainly did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah. just wondering this I can Tina Turner comparison. Yes. Mm. It's appropriateness. <laughs> I mean, the mm. thing is, I mean, was it known in 82 what a horrible piece of work I could been to Tina? Or was that not yet revealed? I, yeah, I, I think probably so. Tina Turner, I think, was just pretty much off the radar because when the British Electronic Foundation, um, BEF or whatever it was, um, mm. yeah, it, she was just yeah living very modestly. You know, they went round to a little house, and uh, yeah, she she completely dropped off the uh, radar mm. at this point. It all came out in I want to say 1986 when her autobiography came out and the subsequent film. Yeah, mm. I think she just started doing more interviews, didn't she? When she went solo, went fully solo and started getting hits, and then it all came out. So yeah, it's an incredibly meaty thumbs up for the devil lives in my husband's body, the debut single by Pulse Alarma. Ten Timbala toting women with names like Jean Caffeine, Wendy Wilde, Bubbles Montana, April Palmiore and Bonefinder Thomas. Pulse Alarma are the most exotic band to burst into bloom south of East 96th Street in the past 12 months. Sure, they're not totally serious, although behind their smiles there looks the surly snarl of the Big Apple's belated but brusque answer to Banana Rama. That's a fucking tune, that is. I can't understand how that wasn't a hit over here. Have you heard it? I've not heard no. that. Imagine if the Slits were a Calypso band. Mm. <laughs> I've got to hear this. Kid Creole and the Coconuts have finally broken through in the UK charts and Thrills reckons their latest release, Stool Pigeon, is going to decide whether they're here to stay or not. One of the few truly memorable moments on a disappointing LP and a much better single than the flat, flimsy, wonderful thing, says Thrills. Another hit? Hard to say. There haven't been that many successful singles about supergrasses, and for such a leisurely stroll of a song, the arrangement is needlessly fussy and drawn out. 
The single, like most of Tropical Gangsters, also suffers from the low profile adopted of Cody Munde, the undoubted star of the live show over here. Another banger. Yeah. Oh, total banger. Leisurely stroll of a song. I know. Yeah. Nonsense. I think maybe we'll probably get a little bit spoiled at this time, you know, if you can be that blasé about Kid Creel and a coconut. Yeah, yeah. But it's a coat down for the clapping song by the Bell Stars. Although their effort was the more listenable, the Bell Stars were pipped to the purse strings of Top of the Pops by Natasha's update of Ico Ico last month. Undaunted, they now return with yet another cover version, doing their bit to ensure that a tediously regressive trend continues, the dredging up of old material to appease conservative radio controllers. The Bell Stars have more than enough class and character of their own to be able to do without this sort of desperate dishonesty. (laughs) Talk Talk have had two flop singles in a row, with Talk Talk only getting to number 52 a couple of months ago, and Thrills gives them an even chance to break the curse with their new single, Today. A change of heart from heavy-handed tub-thumping to a more airy, almost secular feel. As a result, they at least sound a little less like a surrogate Duran Duran and more like themselves. Wispy synthy pop meets candy floss psychedelia. Mm. King Trigger, the first new British group to be signed to Chrysalis Records in Spandau Bali nearly two years ago, have put out their debut single, The River, but Thrills doesn't reckon it. They obviously want to be bow-wow-wow, although Steve Lillywhite's production has left them stranded closer to the skids, all bristling drum rolls and serrated guitar. What sort of fire will they begin to breathe once they find themselves a song worth getting really worked up about? Hmm. Again, that should have been a fucking hit. Again, I've not heard it. The sound of the street last summer, the bleep of the Casio calculator, provides the rhythm track to this, the most painfully twee excess doses of the Germanic electro dream since Andreas Daral's Fred von Jupiter, says thrills of Da 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 by Trio. You may have caught five seconds of this on one of those excruciating Euro joints on top of the pops a few weeks ago, in which case you, like me, will be trembling at the pretty real prospect that the thing will actually be a hit. (laughs) Hanging Garden by The Cure is a dismal exercise in rolling, tumbling textures. The Cure have drifted disappointingly and indulgently from the idyllic pop invention of their younger days. Mm, mm. Girls Got to Know by Aswad gets coated down for having a go at women who are only trying to make themselves look nice. I Wish I Could Be Me by Honey Bane is Toya without the histrionics. And War Child by Blondair is more mild metal than the usual fake funk coy joy. Like all the other singles milked from the hunter, they're the final poisoned arrows in the throat of a once great singles band. But then again, who needs Blondie when you've got ABC, Adam, Altered Images and Yazoo? Mm. He has a point. Yeah. Well, it's true, really. Mm. Meanwhile, there's so much stuff coming out of New York at the moment that a separate review section has been set up, handled by Richard Grable, and he tells us to get ready for Planet Rock by Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force. 
This is becoming the theme song of the summer street. Some records just come along at the right time and embody a moment, and this is one of them. If it hadn't been for the fact that WBLS started opening its playlist to the new electro-pop, allowing Kraftwerk, Soft Cell and the Human League to be heard and accepted in parks and schoolyards from Washington Square to Pelham Bay, this record would never have been made. A breakthrough record. Too right. It is too Fucking right. hell, True. what a singles page that is. Mm. That Richard Grable page, I remember that section because I used to go out and spend a fiver a go on. On, on imports that uh, on his recommendation, Ooh. and that's when I was living on about a fiver a week. <laughs> Man, how, how many of them records could you got with just a bit of smack, David? <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> In the LP review section, well, the prime slot this week belongs to Junkyard, the third LP by the birthday party, and Richard Cook reckons they're not up to it, lacking the campness of Bauhaus and the sarcasm of the fall, and it's shot through with religious rammel. Hmm. The birthday party is like an ongoing cannibalistic domestic feud, writes Cook. A strangely literate atmosphere of Victorian melodrama pervades. The birthday party's tracks dwell in a gallery haunted by the rancid horrors of Mish Havisham and Les Miserables. Mm. Venture inside, take in the exhibits and leave by the back door. I never thought that the birthday party's problem was that they were insufficiently Bauhaus-like. <laughs> Some extraordinary things have been happening in popular African music in recent years and are only now making their way to Western ears, says Neil Spencer, as he opens his review of Juju Music by King Sonny a Day, which he reckons is skill. Mm. It's a compelling voyage down dark, sinuous currents of rhythm, a jangle of melodic colour clamouring up above, with periods of lilting, almost placid vocal delicacy and plunging instrumental rapids. Take a dive into juju music. It's magic, he writes, putting his thumbs up like Selwyn Froggett, no doubt. <laughs> Richard Hell and the Voidoids have finally got round to putting out their second LP, Destiny Street, five years after Blank Generation, and Richard Grable chalks it up as an interesting failure. Even before you realise how standard, regular and old the songs are, even before the blazing guitars and lagging, dragging shuffles start to really bore you, the first thing that really scares you is the voice. It's choked up and despairing, infested with self-pity. It sounds like a death rattle. Hell, for all his professions of hope, sounds sad and lost. A wasted talent in both senses of the word. Mm. Nina Hagen has moved to Los Angeles and signed to CBS, and her first English-language LP, Nonsense Monk Rock, has been lobbed over to Mark Corderet, who reports that she's turned into a Teutonic Kate Bush. Perhaps in years to come, this mild blend of mirth-making voodoo iconography will constitute a camp classic. Who knows? Message from the future, Mark. 
No, it isn't. <laughs> In the gig guide. Well, David could have seen Samson at the marquee, Sylvain Sylvain at the Hope and Anchor, Dull. the flying pickets at the venue in Victoria, mm. the clash at the Brixton Fair Deal, Lords of the New Church at the Hernhill Half Moon, the birthday partest, Sisters of Mercy and Play School at the Zigzag Club, Howard Jones at the Hammersmith Clarendon Hotel, the Foreskins and Combat at the Blue Coat Boy in Islington or Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club at Wembley Arena. Oh, David, spoilt for choice. Yeah. Taylor could have seen Magnum at the Whip Club, Willie and the Poor Boys at the Barrel Organ, Handsome Beasts at the Mercat Cross, or several young men ignite and hardboard stump at the Star Club. Oh, not very good for Birmingham this week. Mm. <laughs> Neil could have seen Evil Wind at the General Wharf. <laughs> Or Marillion at Busters. Ah, you see, I could have invited Taylor over to Cobb because he loves yeah. his Marillion, does Taylor, doesn't he? Yeah, he was well into him at the time, wasn't he? <laughs> he was, he was. <laughs> Sarah could have seen Blamange at the Leeds Warehouse, New Model Army at the Keefley Funhouse, or the Really Big Boys at Leeds Royal Park Hotel. Don't know what they're about. Mm. Don't want to speculate, to be honest. <laughs> Al could have seen Incognito at the Palais, Saracen at Javago's, Joe Jackson at Rock City, or nipped out to Derbyshire to see Liquid Gold for a week-long residency at Chesterfield Aquarius. <laughs> Chesterfield Aquarius? Mm. <laughs> when the moon is in the seventh house. <laughs> and Simon could have seen Samson, Bernie Marsden's SOS, and Angel Witch at Cardiff top rank and fuck all else because music agitates the privy parts and encourages the youth of Wales to steal flowers. In the letters page... Well, Paul DeNoyer is entrusted with Gasbag this week and immediately has to start defending his colleagues who have offended the readership this past month. I can't imagine that any of the NME writers would refer to blacks as N-words or to Jews as Y-words, writes Vincent Homolka of Bristol. However, referring homosexuals as F-words, as Danny Baker did in his singles column, is apparently okay. Contemptible. He goes even further, counters Denoya. He calls pubs boozers, a pound note a quid, and ciggies are F-words as well. Phew, it doesn't do to be sensitive when that baker boy's around, mm. nor pathetically paranoiac. Yeah. Different times. Different yeah. times. Yeah. The Rolling Stones have recently swung by the UK as part of their European tour, and Barney Hoskins, in a review where he pretended to be an alien observing a weird and confusing rite of worship, reckoned that they looked like five mangy and middle-aged characters and their new stuff was rammel. The readership was not impressed. <laughs> to old man Barney Toskins. <laughs> Did you write your review of the Stones before actually going? The review was unfunny and at times inaccurate. I expect you were listening to the gift on your Walkman, says Margaret Trudeau of Battersea. <laughs> the Stones are to rock what Coronation Street is to Ian Penman and two million other grannies. Both have been going for at least 20 years and neither look like stopping. 
In 20 years' time, Strummer, Weller, Brandon and others will long be forgotten by your paper. Yet few weeks have passed this year without a reference to at least one of the stones. This is 20 years on Blarney. You're not blind to reason, just pig-headed. <laughs> Blarney Toskins, that's that's not bad. It's, it's not as good as Neil Kumsana. No, but... it's not. It's not quite at those heights, but it's good. It's good. But it's not all bad news, as the Midnight Rambler of Earl's Court points out. To the guy at Turnstile F at Wembley Stadium, who admitted me free one minute into the stone set. I don't know who you are, my friend, and I probably never will. But being unemployed, I was most reluctant to give Michael and co. ten quid. So when, to my absolute delight and disbelief, you told me to run on through, I started to believe in miracles. May the bird of paradise fly up your nose, and here's looking at you, kid. Oh, bless. Ten quid to see the stones. <laughs> he paid for call. <laughs> this time you have gone too far, gasped Stephen Jones of Colchester. Your live section from the June 26th edition contained reviews of the following artists. Alan Eager, The Big Combo, Design for Living, Gorp, Cherry Boys and The Perfect Crime. I am not criticising your coverage of these groups, but if you cover these famous celebrities, you should also cover the real stars. You seem to have forgotten that 72,000 people went and watched Simon and Garfunkel perform brilliantly at Wembley. How you ignorant morons can decide that Simon and Garfunkel are not worth reviewing is beyond me. To be quite honest, you make me sick. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez Louise. Regarding your interview with Iron Maiden, we, as three Lady Rock fans, are appalled by the comments made by Steve Harris and Bruce Dickinson mentioning that they were not aware of females in the audience, right three invisible maidens of Cornwall. It is obvious that they are still in the Stone Age and have been giving autographs and too much attention to men only. And the reason for this is that females alone at a rock concert are classed as groupies. We would love to meet groups in person, but we don't want to put over the wrong impression. Gerpen B. Lash of Abu Dhabi moans about British artists knocking about in Germany and Japan just because Bowie has. Bodenex of Fitzroy, Australia, complains that the new chrome cassette LPs being released by record labels are going to shag up the tape head of his car stereo. ADB Burr is upset that the casing of the new Jethro Tull and Toya cassette LPs don't fit his shelf. And why Yang of Blackheath is spitting feathers at the enemy's negative review of this year's Glastonbury when it raised 50 grand for CND the drugs were skill and you could get a vegetable curry for 60p oh you see what a time to be alive <laughs> exactly yeah what nonsense about the worst time in human history <laughs> yeah 48 pages 30p I never knew there was so much in it a good issue and, and yeah a very good issue you know and those letters you've just read out I think there's a kind of feedback loop that happens with the music press, whereby if the writing in it, you know, the features, the interviews, the reviews are literate and well-written, 
the letters are as well to a certain extent yeah. by the time i was editing the letters page especially towards the <laughs> tail end of things tail end of the 90s the letters were dog shit you know they, they, they were just semi-articulate but you know just look at the language that's used in some of those reviews and, and, mm. and singles reviews that you read out you know y- yeah. you wouldn't find a review I don't know these days that uses words like secular or cannibalistic or aggressive or rancid or any of those things but mm. you know if you're writing into a music paper and it's it's literate like that and it uses words mm. well you're going to up your game in a sense writing that letter in. Yeah. and, and mm. later on that all falls apart when you know if the copy shit the letters are going to be shit as well yeah craig david sucks yeah yeah (laughs) and i mean (laughs) perhaps a lot of people that you know write in you know write letters into the music press they are perhaps sort of saying can i have a job please yeah yeah so you know they feel like they've got to measure up you know some not all but uh i don't think the simon and garfunkel correspondent falls under that category (laughs) (laughs) you know by the end of melody maker neil Mm -hmm. did you ever have to make up letters no i never did actually um i made them up all the time yeah, it depends how bored you got. I Sorry, think. David, you said you did. Yeah, all the time. I, I did the letters. Call. No. Yeah, you know, eight or nine weeks uh, consecutively, and I just made the whole thing up. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Like David, every single letter, or just like every single letter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it kind of began to sort of tell a little bit, you know. Mm. But uh, yeah, hell. you know, because it was just getting, it was just pretty thin, really. You know, the letters, yeah, yeah. You know, come to that point. When I was working on video game magazines, the first three issues or so, I was handling the letters page, and mm. obviously issue one, we just nicked them off all of the magazines on our stable. Mm. But by two and three, it was like, oh, these are all dog shit. I'm going to write them myself. Mm. My favourite letter that I wrote myself was uh, I wanted a version of Mortal Kombat with soap opera characters <laughs> so you could set fire to Ian Beale and mm. rip his heart out and show it to him before he died. <laughs> I just do little things like I'd have a letter from somebody sort of saying, um, you cover a lot of like decent indie and all that kind of stuff, but I notice that you don't really give much coverage to um, Arbroath. You know, there's a really good vibrant <laughs> scene happening in Arbroath, and I think we should hear a lot more of it. And then it'd be signed by, I don't know, M. Irvin, Doncaster. And then the next letter would be sort of saying the same thing. But, you know, the, the whole Doncaster music scene, you're just completely overlooking it. So come on, let's hear a bit more about the Doncaster music scene. And that'd be from S. Johnson from Arbroath, you know. Just, yeah, you know, little stuff like that. So what's on telly tonight? Well, BBC One kicks off at 6.40am for an hour and a quarter of red-hot open university action featuring analysing interaction, bot for manufacture and steel castings. I think you saw them once, didn't you, David? Oh, steel castings. What a bill that was. <laughs> they then shut down for three hours. Then at 5 to 11, they whip us over to the Oval for the first day of the third test against India. After the news and regional news in your area, it's a repeat of the first ever episode of Mr. Ben, where he becomes the Red Knight and helps a dragon who's been laid off by the advent of matches. Then it's Pobbler come, regional news in your area and play school, and then we're dropped into the new camp in Barcelona for live coverage of the first World Cup semi-final between Poland and Italy. After Paolo Rossi has dealt with the plucky poles, it's the news nationwide and another chance to see the highlights from the last game and have a bit of a froth over the next semi-final with David Coleman, Laurie McMenemy and Bobby Charlton in World Cup Report. 
BBC Two also starts at 6.40 with a hardcore open university bum rush with flavours and fragrances, <laughs> children's television and semiconductors and the sun and then shuts down for two and a half hours. Springing back to life for play school with Chloe Ashcroft and then shutting down for another two hours and 40 minutes. At 25 to 2, it's the afternoon session of the Test Match, followed by the 1930 short film, The Laurel and Hardy Murder Case. Yes. Then it's the chat show 655 Special, where Sally James and her special guest co-host David Soul invite established stars and newcomers to contribute to a lively half hour of music and conversation, it says here in Radio Times. <laughs> followed by a new summary. They've just started the 1968 musical comedy Funny Girl starring Barbara Streisand. Yes! <laughs> yes! Two and a half hours of the bastard. Ugh. Fucking yes! So are you watching it, Dad? Because you love musical theatre, don't you, Dad? <laughs> you know who else likes Barbara Streisand, don't you, Dad? <laughs> Bent cunts who aren't fucking yeah. real. Are you going to the pub, are you? See ya. (laughs) Although, having said that, I would kill to spend an evening watching Barbara Streisand with my dad nowadays. (laughs) Oh, Oh, just a look on his face. (laughs) ITV gets the party started at half past nine with the cartoon Barney, Google and Snuffy Smith, followed by a chance to see the uninhabited bits of Colorado in the wildlife series Wilderness Alive. After History of the Grand Prix looks at Jackie Stewart's championship season of 1971, we drop in on some refugee families from Vietnam starting a new life in America as farmers in a big country. Then it's a repeat of Paint Along with Nancy, Gammon and Spinach, Get Up and Go and The Sullivans. After the news and regional news in your area, it's a repeat of Emmerdale Farm. Then here today, whatever that is, then it's an hour and a half of racing from Newmarket. That's followed by In Loving Memory, the sitcom that puts the fun in funeral. Mm. Then the 1934 Laurel and Hardy film, March of the Wooden Soldiers. Fucking hell, so much Laurel oh, and Hardy, absolutely, David. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think there'd been a uh, disagreement. They were taken off for a, a couple of years. There was some um, dispute with a German production company or something like that. Yeah, so I think really? that's been resolved by now. Or perhaps it was about to happen. Anyway, yeah, yeah you're in Laurel and Hardy heaven. After the news at 5.45, it's regional news in your area. Then a repeat of Give Us a Clue, where Eunice Stubbs and Lionel Blair are joined by Melvin Hayes, Windsor Davis, Maureen Lipman, Susan Stranks, Barbara Windsor and Mick McMahon. Good lord. Yeah. Benny Hawkins continues his quest to buy a house for Miss Luke in Crossroads, and they've just started the build up for tonight's World Cup semi final between West Germany and France. What a fucking banquet. Mm. That semi, man. Mm. That that, that semi gives me a semi just thinking about it now. So what's jumping out of you there on those listings? It's it's Easter holiday time. It is. And they're just bunging on any old shit for the youth. Any old shit. Oddly enough, Laurie McMenemy is leaping out of me as a name um, mm. from my youth. And But obviously, you know, long yeah. story football career, but all I can remember is fucking Barbican. Yes, it's great, man. It's great, man. Um, and also, the Open University thing you mentioned, 
I have to say, mm. later on in the 80s, open university programmes became a hotbed for musical experimentalism. Did they really? Oh, yeah, indeed. As a Melody Maker reader, I was obviously avidly hoovering up everything that David and Simon Reynolds and various other people were telling me about every week. And I remember mm. putting on one, one, I think it was about industrial welding or something, um, yeah. and it being accompanied by the soundtrack of uh, The Young Gods and Spaceman 3 really? and Loop. Yeah, it was Absolutely. really odd. And I, honestly, I didn't dream and I wasn't tripping. Somebody at Open University obviously loved all of that shit as well yeah. and uh, mm. started soundtracking kind of really odd industrial-like films with the cutting edge of, um, yeah, Melody Maker style music god i wish i'd known that at the time yeah you'd be learning about you know arc lights and uh, your ass would literally be quaking yes yeah <laughs> all right then pop craze youngsters it's, it's time to go way back to july of 1982 always remember we may coat down your favorite band or artist but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have yeah Sort of. What? There is, um... <laughs> well... <laughs> what are you getting at, David? In a sense. Well, I think in a particular... In a certain sense, I have been on top of the pops. Not what? in person. But it turns out I was reading recently... So when I used to do the Talk, Talk, Talk section mm. in Melody Maker mm. in the early 90s, of course, it was the rise of the shaman and particularly Mr. C. Mm-hmm. And his god-awful doggerel <laughs> raps accompanied by a finger-waggling nonsense, you know, that were about as welcome in those songs as a trombone solo, basically. Mm. You know, and um, really, you know, there's just appalling, appalling rubbish. And I just wrote a sketch every week that was about, like, the shaman featuring that irritating little blonde man in which he keeps bursting into doggerel. And the other's like, shut up, you irritating little twat, you know. Uh, and that was the gist mm. of it, really, you know. And it was just an excuse to sort of um, compose spontaneous doggerel supposedly emanating from the mouth of Mr. C. It's Sportingly, we allowed him to do his own sort of retort, right. uh-huh. um, you know, which was bloody <laughs> awful. It was worse than any of the parodies I wrote. <laughs> anyway, you know, fair dues. You know, he, he got his, you know, he got, he, he got his right to reply. But um, anyway, it turns out that he did take these things rather to heart. And in fact, also took them rather closely to another organ. <laughs> really? So what he apparently said is that when he appeared on, I think it was Ebenezer Good, what he did is he cut up the um, articles I'd you know, the pieces that I'd written, the piss takes, and he stuffed them down his codpiece, you know, <laughs> down the front of his trousers. And so, essentially, my writings, you know, my, my work was nestled around the penis of Mr. C. Good Lord. While it was on top of the pops. And so, in a sense, I feel that i kind of been on. Yeah, you have. I, I, I'd argue yeah. that. Well, this changes everything. <laughs> it does. Yeah. You're going to have to totally change does. that to... catchphrase out. I know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> that, that's mental, because if he'd have gathered together all the fucking articles slagging him off, he, he'd look like a, 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 an inverse <laughs> well, Rod Stewart played by Kenny Everett, wouldn't he? <laughs> Good God. Yeah. Well, that's ended chart music for me now. <laughs> What's the thinking about? Is it something like, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger mm. or gives my penis strength or something? I don't yeah. know. It's a very strange thing to do really well w- when we actually get round to Ebenezer good on chart music I'll just send him the fucking episode on a memory stick and he can stick it up his arse mm. or something I don't know <laughs> <laughs> they've been on top of the pops yeah. more than we have apart from David being stuffed into Mr. C's crotch <laughs> there we go there we go clarification <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
7.30pm on July the 8th, 1982, and Top of the Pops, by now firmly into the Yellow Hurl era, is dealing with the challenge of ITV actually putting on something decent for a change. The World Cup, which is currently reaching a crescendo in Spain. Unlike the last World Cup, where the pop craze youngsters were actually denied one whole episode of Top of the Pops so the BBC could screen the opening ceremony and the same nil-nil draw between West Germany and Poland that ITV had put on, the third channel of Bagsid all the Thursday night games, which I believe demonstrates Top of the Pops' place in the pantheon of BBC programming. Don't you, chaps? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you think that was a deliberate man- Maneuver out. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Top of the Pops, it's currently pulling down just over 10 million viewers every week. And, mm-hmm. you know, with the addition of a new programme that we'll discuss later on, they pretty much have a stranglehold on the youth audience on a Thursday evening. And yeah. ITV know that. For years, they've been putting on any old bought in American TV movie shit in the knowledge that people like my dad will be forced to watch it. Yeah. If you're below a certain age, you're watching BBC One on Thursday. Nights. Yeah, you have to. All of this occasioned by the lack of remotes. I mean, even my mate who had a remote, you know those remotes before remotes that were built yeah. into the telly and you could pull them out and they had a cord? Mm. Um, yeah. Even that didn't quite solve these issues. No. And this was back at a time when, you know, when you watch a game, say if you watched a football game on ITV now, you know they'd squeeze in, what, six, seven ad breaks within about half an hour? Yeah. In between every single bit of pre-game sort of stuff. Mm. Then it was a pretty much clear run. I don't mm. remember them going to ad breaks just before kickoff. I remember the no. run from the players coming on to kickoff uninterrupted by ads. So yeah, it would have been a it would have been a thorny issue. You're right, Neil. Remote's my arse. I remember when I was about <laughs> eight or nine. I got what my parents claimed to be a remote control car, <laughs> which was on a fucking wire. And yeah. I made the big mistake of bragging on to my mates about my remote control car. And I brought it out, man. And they just coated me right down. Because you had to stay like three foot away from it. But yeah, you had to follow it around. That's that's no good. Car on a lead. But technology yeah. remotes from there. Do you remember the, in the apartment, that scene where Jack Lemon lemon sits down to his tv dinner and he, and he has a little kind mm. of remote control there and he keeps flicking and it keeps the adverts keep coming on you know friends do you mm. suffer from loose gentures you know and he gets fed up <laughs> in the end and he just turns it off but but yeah the technology was there in 1960 so yeah but it was just a clicky one thing wasn't it you know either forward or back yeah yeah oh yeah yeah but mind you that didn't really matter in this country because you're only two clicks <laughs> away from the program you wanted yeah yeah, absolutely. Jesus. But in terms of like lack of choice and in terms of like lack of opportunity to see pop music, these were the very, very final years of that, really. You know, I mean, it's not long yeah, before yeah. the tube and things like that. Or videos as well, you know, and all those kind of things. Mm. Just around the corner. Lack of remotes as well. It was another layer in which um, sort of you could exert hierarchy in a household or, or a family. Mm. So the youngest had to get up and fucking change over. Uh, um, yeah. Nobody else. Yeah. Whoever the youngest was in the room had to do that. That was their job. Also, affordability <laughs> of TVs. I mean, it was considered pretty much upper middle class to have more than one telly. But, um, mm. you know, they really can't. And in 1970, a telly cost 100 quid. I mean, today yeah. they cost mm. uh, like 150. You know, it's, it's um, and it was, you know, it was a 1970 telly. You know, yeah. Even the Royal Family rented their telly. Really? Well, yeah, there was an episode of The Crown, I remember. They were talking about, you know, they were renting their telly, yeah. so Fucking hell. Yeah, my family, my mum and dad, poor mugs, they were the last <laughs> people in the world still to be renting their, their telly. <laughs> you know, I think eventually they came around and took pity. And they came around and said, like, look, just keep it. You know, you've been giving us, like, 20 quid a month now. <laughs> it's 1987 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> who were they with? Radio Rentals or DER or Radio Fusion? I, I, I think it was Radio Rentals, actually. Right. Could have been Rumble mm. Of course, yes. <laughs> Saves you money and serves you right. Grumble. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine now, chaps, but BBC and ITV's coverage of the 1982 World Cup, patchy as fuck. Mm. After they agreed not to duplicate matches as they'd done before, mm. ITV bags in the opening ceremony and the first game. But as that first game was Argentina versus Belgium, they chose not to screen it. Do you know what they put on instead? Go on. It was a Sunday evening, so we got Sing to the Lord, which was shaking <laughs> songs of praise, Heart to Heart, and a repeat of Mind Your Language. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, de- denying the nation the opportunity to have a good gloat at the world champions mm. getting beaten. Mm. Presum- I mean, presumably a Falklands related thing. that they would- Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Much like the cancelling of Tchaikovsky of late. The yeah. war was still going on. Yeah, yeah. That's remarkable, Al. I didn't know that at all. I didn't know that mm. that kind of... not. You wouldn't exactly call it censorship. I suppose it's ITV being careful mm. about the Daily Mail or something. Yeah. But that is, that is truly bizarre, isn't it? Uh, and as the first round kicked in, you know, we quickly discovered that neither the BBC or ITV were particularly asked about the World Cup, apart from our boys' games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which meant that we missed out on seeing Algeria beating West Germany. Oh, yeah. Hungary battering El Salvador 10-1. Mm. The the Anschluss game, the disgrace of Gijon, if you will, where yes. West Germany and Austria rigged a uh-huh. 1-0 game to shit on Algeria. Uh-huh. And we didn't see any of the games in England's group which didn't feature England. And sorry, but that's shit. Mm, that's yeah. unbelievable, it, isn't it? They would have had highlights packages, presumably, but yeah. But not yeah, but you want yeah. to see the fucking oh, thing course. live, man. It's yeah, the World yeah. Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's what was on in competition to top of the pops over the course of the World Cup. You know, just let me know your mm-hmm. thoughts and, uh, and what you would have plumped for that evening. So June the 17th, Northern Ireland versus Yugoslavia. Yeah, 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 definitely. Because, you know, we had a handy team in Northern Ireland. Definitely. Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd watch that. June the 24th. Yugoslavia versus Honduras. Yeah, I think I'd have swerved yeah. that and gone for TOTP. Yeah. yeah. And last week, July the 1st, this is when the uh, the second group stages kicked in. Mm-hmm. USSR versus Belgium. Mm. Bear in mind that yeah. the Top of the Pops is a 40-minute yeah, concern exactly. now, so course, you're only going to yeah. miss the first 10 minutes of all yeah, of those games. Well, is it? Yeah. But you are yeah. going to miss Jimmy Greaves talking about mm. what's gone on before. Last 10 minutes, I would have known what number one was. Yeah. So if I didn't like number one, it would have been the football. Mm. Penultimate to the number one, it's, it would all have hinged on that. Yeah. And if, you know, fucking the old sailor came on or something like that, I'd be straight over to the football, I think. Yeah. Your host for this episode is Kid Jensen. No, sorry, David Jensen nowadays, mm. who is firmly bedded in at the 8-10 to 10 weekday slot on Radio 1. And tonight he's on between Walters Weekly and John Peel. Even though he's been there since last autumn, when he was tempted back from the Turner Broadcasting System in Atlanta, it's still being very much seen as a good thing and a bit of a coup for the nation's favourite. In the telepages of today's Daily Mirror, Stan Sayer writes, I know our David has been back from America for a while, but it's never too late to pay a compliment. I reckon he's one of the best presenters of this programme, and the lad was badly missed by us while he was in America, making his millions. Hmm. Chaps, it's very rare for a former Radio 1 disc jockey to get back in after they've left, and they certainly don't end up bagging a regular weekday slot when they do, but, you know, the former kid has booked the trend here hasn't he yeah 
because we like him. The listeners like him, the viewers like him, and the people that he works with like him as well. Mm. And he's he's dealing with the comeback fine and done. Yeah. He's a great presenter at this yeah. episode. Yeah, that's slightly different. I think he fluffs a couple of lines or doesn't, well, not exactly fluffs lines, but delivers one or two slightly anticlimactic lines. I, I don't perhaps quite, I mean, I agree, yeah, he's a nice man. <laughs> he's a safe pair of hands. He's a sort of a decent sort, etc., etc. And I'm sure that he has a kind word for the tea ladies, etc., etc., <laughs> in, in the corridors there and what have you. <laughs> but really, when we're talking about him being a great presenter of Top of the Pops, it's more about the, the, the least worst, perhaps. And really, if the bar is set so low as that he's not actually a paedophile, a sex pest, or a helicopter yeah. wanker, it's <laughs> not that I want to hurdle, I would say. No. Also, what the hell is going on with his shirt this evening? Mm. It's got that weird sort of black and white image of the Queen yes. on the front. I, it, I assume it's the Queen. And then this random collage of sort of glitter and abstract art. It looks, It just looks like... You know, something that Matisse would have vomited or something. It's, it's strange. It's just... He looks just like one of them shirts Robert Mugabe would wear, but instead of having his own face on it, he's got the Queen. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned the semiotics of my trousers earlier on. <laughs> yes. and I suppose, yeah, there's a sort of lost sense of significance about what this shirt might have meant at that point in 1982, I can see. But mm. it just looks bloody mm. atrocious now, really, you know. He does look atrocious, but at the same time, I think he's slightly aware that he's getting a bit old for mm. this gig. There's nothing necessarily... Oh, have a laugh at me and my cheekies. Oh, no. shirt. But at least he's sort of self-aware to a degree that you're right, David. It is a low bar that he's not a totally disgraceful and contemptible human being, and therefore we think he's one of the best presenters. But he's no nonsense, strictly biz, very convivial, and where, where so many other presenters, you know, um, you know, all the way even to the sort of new breed that have been introduced in this period, who are ostensibly one of us, like mm. Peter Powell mm. or something. You know, even they would use the intro here to sell their own brand. No. Jensen never does that. And he, he does make you comfortable. He removes that always discomforting kind of rub between Top of the Pops being a show for us to enjoy pop music and a show for DJs to fucking show off and yeah. sell themselves. He is just the announcer. And I, th- I think at this stage, I think he's starting to think, Maybe I'm getting a bit long in the teeth of this. Now, chaps, I've done a bit of digging into his time with Ted Turner, and it it doesn't look like he got out of his depth at TBS, and he certainly wasn't slinking back to the BBC with his tail between his legs. Ah. From his autobiography, Kid Jensen for the record, quote... Bob Wussler, president of the mighty CBS TV in the US, was in London on business for a few days. Turning on the TV in his hotel room in 1980, he caught the end of an open university programme on the subject of heroes. It was hosted by me. There is a lot of luck in any broadcasting career. The opportunity appealed to the little boy in me who had grown up watching the grainy TV pictures as John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962. The chance to work for the guy who helped to produce that historic footage was unmissable. Having read his latest idea of a 24-hour news channel, I knew his parent company was where I needed to be. Increasingly, as I grew older, Radio 4 and LBC had become part of my listening repertoire and I wondered about exploring a more challenging opportunity. On my Radio Luxembourg programme, I had been a newsreader of sorts, but there's a gulf of difference between screaming a few hurried rip-and-read scripts from the Daily Mirror, punctuated by overdramatic Morse code effects, and delivering an envisioned news programme to viewers in Canada and America. 
I also preferred to forget the story in a Luxy bulletin about the Middle East in which I declared without realising that lesbian troops rather than Lebanese troops were gathering. <laughs> I don't know, le- lesbian troops would scare me more than Lebanese troops, I think. Mm. So he discharged his duties at Radio 1, retired the Kid Jensen name forever, and he relocated to Atlanta and started off as the host of a Hearts of Gold type show called Nice People. <laughs> I'd love to see an episode of that. Well, he, well he's a nice person, isn't he? So, he well, is, he is. He's very nice. Who, who's going to be nicer on that programme than Kid Jensen? Oh, I'd yeah. like to see them. Yeah. He then settled in as the host of the 10 o'clock news and he got all the fucking perks. He, he got a house with a pool, mm-hmm. two cars, even though he couldn't drive. He ended up working with George Bush Sr.'s voice coach because they thought he was sounding a bit too English. Yeah. So, yeah, all seemed well in the Jensen Garden. He, he was just about to be sent to Iran to cover the release of the American embassy hostages. Unfortunately, he was starting to be pushed by CNN to become their entertainment producer, which really didn't appeal at all to right. him. So, back to the book. One Saturday afternoon, when I was shuffling my scripts and preparing to deliver a bulletin between the wrestling and baseball, I heard my name being called. Looking up, I saw the familiar faces of all three members of the police. (laughs) This was at the height of their world fame, with Don't Stand So Close To Me topping the charts. What are you doing here? asked Sting. You belong in Britain. The irony of those words coming from a man living in a New York penthouse was not lost on either of us, but his words struck a chord. Mm. Another taste of home was a stock report which crept into my news programme about how Dallas had emerged as the world centre for the radio jingle industry, which included the familiar Radio 1 melodies, followed by an interview with my old boss, Johnny Bailing. Taken aback after seeing the feature in my own programme, I confessed it seemed a little being in the twilight zone. Then the phone rang early one morning. At the other end crackled the familiar tones of Johnny and Paul Burnett. They had been talking about me and decided to say hello and tell me I was missed. I missed them too. Even hearing Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street reminded me of a crowded London tube. After a visit from Doreen Davis, the matriarch of Radio 1, he was invited back to the station and slotted into the early evening weekday slot and immediately ushered back into the talent pool of Top of the Pops alongside the likes of Peter Powell, John Peel, Dave Lee Travis, Simon Bates and Jingle Nonce OBE. <laughs> and this is his eighth appearance since his American hiatus and mm-hmm. it's been an effortless transition back to the routine, hasn't it, chaps? Yeah, yeah. It's as if he's never been away. That's kind mm. of heartrending. That the fact that he got um, he got tempted back by seeing a thing about jingles. Yeah. The thing is, that whole trajectory from UK Radio One to you know a major news network in America. Just thank fuck it was in. Yeah. Because if if it had been mm. Edmonds or something, um, because in a job like that, working for an American news network, you're going to come into contact with people in power. Ultimately, mm. the thought of Noel Edmonds coming into contact with various conservative forces in America in the eighties, fuck knows where that could have ended up. You know, he had a go at it though. When he hosted his own chat show in America for a while, and how did mm. that go down? Not yeah. very well. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think he stood in for someone for a couple of weeks, and yeah, he, he wasn't invited back. He must always be kept away from news, and if he was kept near and, American and news, other people, been, and other people, yeah. Hmm. But if he would have been near the corridors of power, as it were, that that would worry me intensely, and we may well be hmm. looking at a different future if that had happened. Thank fuck. Well, it was- imagine if fucking Travis had, had read the news on CNN. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Colonel Gaddafi, what a pilcher. That earlier, that lesbian troops thing earlier on, it was Lebanese troops. I just wonder if mm. it was some sort of little mental mm. fraud in or whatever type slip on um, Jensen's part, because, of course, Colonel Gaddafi did have his own Amazonian guard made up of this elite cadre of women. Uh, and I just wonder oh, if yes. you know, David Jensen thought, well, if they're in the army, there must be lesbians, and so lesbian troops, Lebanese, sounds a bit like Libya, you know. And oh, just, man, yeah, I'm not yeah. having that. You can't cast such aspersions on Kid Jensen, David. Oh, well, there's a whole big Golden Girls gag that relies on that. We need to find some Lebanese lesbians and see how they feel about it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if any of the pop crazed youngsters out there are A, Lebanese, and B, <laughs> lesbians, get in touch. <laughs> And we begin this week's Music and Lights with this from Imagination. The syndromes pound, the coloured singles cascade, the numbers flash, that voice goes, and pink vinyl explodes all over your mum's carpet as we're hit with a knee on top of the Pops logo with Kid standing next to it, looking suitably early 80s compliant in white trousers and a red, gold and blue shirt, which probably cost your dad's weekly wage packet, with elephants on the sleeves and a portrait of the Queen beneath his rock and roll heart. (laughs) He invites us to another 40 minutes of hit sounds and visions before yielding the floor to the first act of the night, Imagination with Music and Lights. We've covered Imagination a couple of times on Chart Music and this, their fifth single, is the follow-up to Just an Illusion, which got to number two in April of this year, shamefully held off number one by Seven Tears by the Gumbay Dance Band. It's also the second cut from their second LP, In the Heat of the Night, which will be coming out in September, and it entered the chart at number 31 a fortnight ago, which led to a performance on Top of the Pops where Lee John decided to wear a massive silky JR hat, a diamond-shaped spangly breastplate, (laughs) and a pair of Flojo tights a full six years before the Seoul Olympics that left the nation wondering if his bollock would flop out of it, <laughs> angering dads of Albion in a way they could not articulate. <laughs> the following week, the single soared 26 places to number five. And although it's been a non-mover this week, that doesn't matter because it's imagination. And here they are again. And boys, we are off to an absolute flyer. Would you care to describe to the pop craze youngsters what imagination have come as this week? <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, I made a few notes. Um, 
the first two words were absolutely ridiculous, but of course that's no. that's the point. But that's the point. No, 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 that's, that's the point. Yes. They they should be, you know. They don't you don't want you know them to be tapered and restrained. But um, yeah, you got um, I think he's at least wearing like you know, do you remember the Seinfeld episode about the puffy shirt? Mm. I don't want to be the pirate. Um, yeah, there's the, he's got that. The mm. golden pantaloons, um, the sort of hat that Hyacinth Bucket would wear to a wedding. All of his combo, and the other guy, you know, mm. he's wearing a life jacket from some sort of 1980s super yacht. Um, and <laughs> this is what it should be: the stuff of like you know. Arabic legend or whatever, you know, like, yes. you know, when yeah, I say yeah. ridiculous, I use it in a kind of non-pejorative sense, you know, that the, the, the price it would approve of. I mean, because the weird thing is, this is an era in which certainly I was, um, again, you know, semiotic trousers and all that, you know, and one mm. was very conscious, especially with suits, and, and I would have worn a suit or a shirt and tie every day at this point to university, mm. you know, never, never do since, you know, and it, it, was, it was very conscious of um, tapering down, you know, in contrast to the sort of flares and the sort of rocket successes of the 19 70s, but there was a lot of other nonsense, you know, going on in the 80s. I mean, imagination have a certain license, but if you look across the rest of the crowd there, I mean, it's a menagerie of mistakes, really. It's a sea of errors, you know, and that that was all going on (laughs) at the same time. And how we had the gore in the early 80s to sort of like laugh at the 70s as the decade that staff got, because there was some pretty howlingly bad stuff. Like you say, imagination, of course, you know, they they, they rise above it. Song-wise, they can never be accused of um, straying from the formula, but, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's it's great, isn't it? It's, it's a good formula. Know, that's right. That's the whole very point, you know. Formula. And, and yeah. I, we all like to hear the sound of a mystic melody. And um, <laughs> hell yeah, <laughs> oblige. Yeah. They're amazing yeah. what they're wearing, I think. Mm. Yeah. These aren't just shirts that are flouncy. Oh, no. They've looked at these shirts and, and seen spaces where they can add extra flounce. And, yes. and, and they've yes. packed it in. It, it, yeah. It's yeah. fantastic. They are the best-looking people in the entire studio for this performance. Yeah. To the point, of course, where I got really fucking angry with the little city farm cunt looking like... Oh, a, yes. You know, that guy looks like a Dexys groupie. He's got kind of braces yes. and kind of... Or Bobby up. Ball. Yeah, Bobby Ball. He <laughs> looks like a really flamboyant Bobby Ball, doesn't That's he? It. And he's <laughs> yes. dancing on Imagination Stage. Fuck off. Yes, that on is their Im- turf. How dare you? Yes. That is yeah. Imagination Stage, and they completely, mm. completely own it. Yeah. It's, it's like you say, Al totally off to a flyer this yeah. let's put it out there right now lee john looks like a sexy meringue doesn't it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the e stands for extra exciting egg whites <laughs> absolutely yeah he's yeah. basically nicked lady diana's train from the previous summer mm-hmm. and just put it on his hat the thing is there are other people on his show tonight who are who think they look good and they look crap mm. um but i think the difference with imagination is they know the weight of what they're doing they know exactly exactly what they're doing in yes. their sort of dance and their deportment they know exactly what they are and they, they, for that reason they absolutely pull it off yeah 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 and the thing is as a kid watching this because I, I i'd have been like about nine or ten watching this of course now i see the joins but for me as a nine-year-old kid who who's had his mind blown by just an illusion and, and mm. the first few mm. imagination tracks yeah and especially their appearances i just assumed imagination walked about like this you know all the yes. time like all day and all night <laughs> they were dressed like this i mean of course now looking at it i see how this entire routine would have been i don't know pounded out in pineapple dance studios the day before in a way and you know i can also see that they're, they're sort of pantomime miming of this because the vocal is actually not a loud one it's a, like a lot of imagination vocals it's a little sultry one but mm. they've got their big gobs opening um, yes. completely at variance with the tone of the vocal making the, the sort of miming a bit blatant but as a kid 
I'd have just loved this because this is what you want from a top of the pops performance. Nothing cool yeah. and therefore totally cool. Yes. Total gusto. And really, in a way, watching it now, you know, for the first time in a while, actually, this was one of the imagination songs that I think has probably slipped out of a lot of people's memory yes. in contrast to the big hits, you know. Yeah. I think the performance, it covers up actually a really a great song which is a, it's it's like a hymn to pop music it, mm. and, and i like hymns to pop music i like things like uh, kylie's can't get you out of my head and this is kind of like that it's delivered like a lot of imagination's work at this period like there are kind of little pervy queer camp cousin group to earth wind and fire Yes. The thing is, they're avoiding cliche, but also playing with cliche deliciously. And from mm. my current vantage point now, you can really appreciate, I think, what a, what a unique thing imagination were. They're not just a response Definitely. to American funk and soul and pop. They're also a uniquely British black postmodern response to a teenage mm. life spent yearning for both american sort of black pops ease and style but also those strange british eruptions of queerness and oddity into everyday life that watching top yeah. of the pops would have given you and this is why yeah. imagination i think go big you know unlike central line or Lynx or beggar and co uk pop culture much more than us pop culture is a world in which your life can kind of change overnight and where a decision to wear I don't know, revealing togas on TV can make the difference between being a star or not. And Lee, after so many years at the peripheries of fame, because he's done so many jobs before Imagination, you know, um, singing Waiter and all the rest, I think his past is really important. He dates the beginnings of his career in showbiz back to playing a snowflake in a primary school play um, in which his sister was a pixie. And he was a shy kid, used to sit in the corner, and, you know, act everything out in front of a mirror at home. And that shyness kind of gets knocked out of him when he moves to New York with his dad. And that leaves him with bits and bobs of kind of New York slang. He said himself in an interview that living in New York gave him an awareness of himself as a black person and a sort of mm. big knowledge of songs from Broadway musicals. And that mix of show business and the street, I think, is really, really important. Yes. I, I read an interview in Melody yeah. Maker, actually. January 1982, and Paolo, Paolo Ewer asks Lee why they dress the way they do. Yes. And, he, you know, he says that visually, this is Lee talking, he says, especially on British television, you have three minutes to yourself, and in that three minutes, you have to create the biggest, most almighty impact ever. Mm. And if it isn't almighty, you're gone. Um, and Errol actually says as well in that interview, you know, we believe in being showbiz and glamour. And Lee actually talks about Sweet and Gary Glitter and things yes. like that. You know, yeah, and I yeah. think that's really revealing. There's also a fantastic interview in 82 by Barney Hoskins, I think, in the NME, where Lee talks about the videos for Poison Arrow and yeah. the Zarge videos as being really inspirational to him. So when I saw Imagination for the first time on Top of the Pops, there was a similar sense of what the fuckness mm. that I've heard other people talk about when they talk about, say, when they saw Bowie or they saw Bolan or they saw Adam Ant yeah. for the first mm. time. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a sense, it fucks them in terms of developing a long career because mm. what they can't do is settle into comfort and familiarity. They have yeah. to keep giving us these eye-popping performances. And there's a thing that's going to start happening soon with pop stars in the UK in 82. And it's something smash hits, I think, in the music media encourage. That desire to take clearly strange, otherworldly figures and bring them down to earth a bit. Mm. Boy George is great at that, talking about cups of tea yeah. and the day-to-day humdrum things that kind of everyone experienced in a mid-making these, these mad records. But, but Lee John 
can't do that. No, he no. still speaks urgently, even in 82, about how imagination music is total multimedia package almost, and every line needs to matter. And mm. as a multimedia package, imagine they're one of the all-time greatest Top of the Pops performers, I think. Yes. Although I may have forgotten it because I might be flicking over to the fucking footy, this is actually a really, really great performance. And like you say, it Alex, is a brilliant start to the show. Yeah. It is. I agree with all of that, actually. I mean, you know, I was, it was a very, very style-conscious era was... Um, uh, the early 80s and I was like 1920 at that time so I was kind of you know very much into all of that but and I would never in a million years have dressed like imagination but I'd loved imagination and as I say they pulled it off because they knew exactly what they were doing you could tell that they knew exactly what they were doing you know they weren't sort of mm. like you know delusional about you know like looking kind of like suave and and you know and mm. like sort of a million dollars or whatever or anything like that they knew what they were doing and this is you might say it's a masterpiece of overstatement in a sense let's talk about the great unsung hero of early 80s pop ashley ingram yeah you know he starts off the performance holding his bass in one hand with no strap, yeah. not making the slightest effort to play it. And then halfway through, when the camera's off it, he just stashes it by yeah, the yeah. drum kit because he's, he's getting in the way of his slinking about. Yeah. And yeah, like you've mentioned, he's got those white American football pad things on with them big silver balls that you get on cakes that break your teeth. And he's teamed that up with gold Sinbad trousers. Mm. And, of course, you've got Errol Kennedy on the drums. He doesn't come from behind the drum kit this time, which is a bit of a shame. Mm. Imagination were always the black smoky yeah, one there. Yeah, that did happen. You know, the drummer's <laughs> got to come up and get get up the front near the end of the song. That doesn't happen in this case, but he's quite tastefully got on a, a white jacket and a matching scarf draped over his shoulders, but just over some tight black pants mm. not bothered to put a shirt on or any trousers because hey is in imagination yeah well this isn't a simulacra of performance it's 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 no, theater not at all it's theater yeah it's this unity yeah. of theater and stage and performance presentation plus the music i mean mm. one of the great quotes of merrill actually when he's asked about imagination costumes um he goes we worry about it a lot we really think about it what are we going to wear next? And will they let us wear it? I love yes. that. You know, yes. It's, it's as important yeah. as the song. Definitely, yeah. Oh, when Imagination come on, you're always going to wonder what they'd get away with this time. Yeah, which is, of course, an inbuilt dwindling returns thing. They can't keep doing this. But no. for the two years where they were there... Fuck me, yeah. what, one of the greatest British pop groups ever for those couple of years. Just for those Top of the Pops appearances. I mean, mm. I, I, I'm sure the albums are great. But nothing is as mind-melting as Top of the Pops delivered into your room, your little provincial room at 7.30 mm. in the evening with this. I mean, it's just miraculous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, and, of course, Errol's got some right familial grief going on at the minute because his sister, Grace, mm. who's got her own show on BBC Two has just married a millionaire, has been in the papers having a go at Errol and yeah. his band for their provocative image. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if, if you're embarrassing your little sister on the telly, then you've <laughs> won at life haven't you yeah. Yeah. i mean this is the only time in history that black men can caper about like this and have a successful career mm. isn't it yeah. nowadays if you want to be black and camp you've got to be like rupaul and just push the boat right out and just make it glaringly obvious to everyone mm. yeah i've been trying to think what's come close to imagination in this century and the the only thing i can think of yeah. is um peer pressure that collective from alabama who um did videos where they 
took turns to give an Ottoman a C in two to some landfill R and B about fifteen years ago. You ever seen that? No. Now, I I, no. When I say Ottoman, I don't mean some poor bloke mm. in a fez and a big moustache. Yeah. You know the actual yeah, yeah. item of furniture. It's uh, <laughs> interesting and disturbing. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of artists now who I think I'm not saying they could fill imagination shoes. Who could? But there's a lot of flamboyant gay black performers right now who would make fucking amazing top oh, really? performances. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think of Mickey Blanco and other people, gay rappers. I mean, now that the back mm. of that has been broken. I mean, I remember when, you know, a gay rapper was the subject of rumour in the yes. community. Oh, there's a gay rapper out there. It's Pudgy the Fat Bastard or whoever it might. It might mm. have been that week. When I think of The Ones, Flawless, for instance, a video from this century, it's filled with imagination-type visuals. So there's a load of these artists, but of course... That centrality, that that breaking into people's lives who don't want it in their lives, mm. which is so important yeah. to these mind-melting top-of-the-pops moments. Yeah. No, these people have a fan base and they can quite happily exist in the margins without gate-crashing the mainstream. And that's mm. where those people are at the moment. But that's the thing about Lee John. I think Lee John and Imagination, they remember British pop introducing things into your life that yeah, just changed your life. And they want to do that with imagination. With every single Top of the Pops appearance they do, they mm. want to do mm. that. That yeah, yeah, yeah. is never recoverable again. Yeah. But, you know, we talk about queerness and, in a sense, you know, as print shows, you can have male queerness without necessarily homosexuality. Mm. It's, mm. you know, and I think that's actually really, really quite interesting, you know, when you have that. When I was on the school playground, um, getting into the, the usual hot debating topic of the day, which was, who on telly's gay? Yeah, yeah. Imagination never came up. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it was like, well, they're black. They're, black people aren't gay, are they? <laughs> yeah, there was the blackness. There was also the sheer henchness mm. of, um, not Lee, but, you know, Errol and Ashley were big. Yeah. And they were, they were hench. They were muscly. They were big he-men. Mm. <laughs> of course, now, even me saying that sounds camp. But at yeah. the time, no, that wouldn't have been associated with gayness to me. If gayness... Which, you know, as a 70s or 80s British kid, you learn ostensibly from parody and sitcoms yeah. mm. was a limp-wristed effect thing. It wasn't this. It, it was Sylvester or that bloke in that uh, ill-advised late series of um, Alf Garnet. Do you remember when he has the... Uh... Oh, oh, God, yeah. Marigold, yeah. Marigold, yeah. 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 Marigold. yeah. 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 Oh, he was yeah. brilliant. Anything else to say about this? No, it's just fucking ace. And it is so good that it does take your eye off the zoo wankers who are just all mm. around them uh, yeah. doing their usual cuntish yomp. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's there's two occasions in this episode where zoo wankers are present, but you either forget about them or fuck me, they're made to look old-fashioned and shit. Yes. And this is the first. Yes. Mm. That hip-hop and dance review section in this week's NME that we talked about earlier, yeah. the reviewer mentions that Justin illusion is the second most played single he hears on the ghetto blasters after planet rock so yeah they're making a bit of a dent in america as well yeah and the thing is with imagination is that sort of deeply political without being in any way political mm. in a way they're kind of you know I, I, I remember a lot of interviews with Lee John where he's talking people expect them to be more ethnic is the term that he used right at a time when don't forget reggae is being kind of employed as the expressive voice of the black man if you like mm. um, people are expecting imagination to have something to say but of course imagination's point is that the freedom they're exerting in what they look like and what they sound like, that's a statement in itself, basically, um, that's really important. So the following week, Music and Lights dropped one place to number six. 
Although the LP in the heat of the night entered the album chart at number 9 at the beginning of September and would eventually get to number 7, the title track and next single took six weeks to struggle up to number 22 and they never bothered the top 20 ever again. In 1987, after their last four singles flopped, Ashley Ingram and Errol Kennedy left the band, leaving Lee John to get ringers in and they straggled on until 1992 when they split up. Oh, that rubbish decade wasn't meant for one as beautiful yeah. as you, imagination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Music and lights from Imagination. Well, the highest new entry in this week's chart, straight in at four, is from the award-winning motion picture Fame, some three years old, which has spawned a successful television series. Here's Irene Cara singing the title. Surrounded by members of City Farm and one youth with a sensible parting and cheap-looking sunglasses skillfully pivots towards a single that's been knocking around for three years but has smashed into the charts this week. Fame by Irene Cara. We've already covered the former Irene Escalara in chart music number 53 when Flashdance, What a Feeling, appeared in the Christmas 83 Top of the Pops and this is her debut single. It was co-written by Michael Gore, Leslie Gore's little brother, and the lyricist Dean Pitchford, who'd worked with Stephen Schwartz, Alan Menken and Rupert Holmes, and it was originally released in America in May of 1980 as part of the soundtrack of the film version of Fame, and got all the way to number four on the Billboard chart in the summer of 1980, while doing absolutely fuck all over here. A year later, while Cara was working on a sitcom which didn't get out of the pilot stage, NBC commissioned a TV version of Fame and Cara was invited to reprise her role of Coco Hernandez, but turned it down in order to focus on a recording career. After becoming a ratings hit in America at the beginning of 1982, the first episode was broadcast three weeks ago today and became an immediate smash amongst the leotard-crazed youngsters. That encouraged RSO to re-release Cora's single before BBC Records, the owners of the UK rights to the tunes from the TV show, could put out the TV theme, which had been recorded by Erica Gimple, Cora's replacement. It entered the charts last week at number 51, but this week it soared 74 places to number 4, the highest new entry on the top 40. Instead of running the original video or giving Zoo the opportunity to jump up and down on a mini metro, the BBC (laughs) have opted to run an extended clip from the film where Bruno's taxi-driving dad sets up some speakers on his cab and plays the song outside the school. Oh, chaps. There will be a video on top of the pops with Irene walking about Times Square, but we've got this for now, which is giving off some severe screen test vibes to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm expecting Michael Rod to pop up at any time asking some youths what colour Leroy shorts were. Yeah. And it's got that courtesy of MGM subtitles yes. to it as well, hasn't it? Mm. 
Yeah, which is, you know, pretty nice because this clip is essentially an advert for the film, Mm -hmm. which is being re-released in UK cinemas tomorrow and will be competing with the likes of History of the World Part 1, The Coal Miner's Daughter, Georgia's Friends, Firefox, Partners, Some Kind of Hero, Countryman, and Honeymoon Swedish style. Mm. <laughs> a lot of crisp bread action in that last one, I'll be bound. <laughs> I, I would have pretty much detested this at the time. And of not, course you would, well, you know, Not necessarily out of um, humorlessness, or a bit out of humorlessness. There are various things that, that still stick in my craw. I mean, that whiny guitar sound <laughs> is my least favourite sound in all of pop and rock. It's just yeah. insipid. It feels kind of entitled. I don't know. It just sort of signifies all manner of awfulness. (laughs) I mean, it's strange that the whole vibe about fame, you know, it seems to imply, you know, know, there's a strong kind of multi-ethnic sort of sensibility, a Sesame Street-ish sort of thing, you know, community activity, dance, blacks, white, Puerto Ricans, everyone just a freaking, you know, halting the traffic, subverting commerce, (laughs) you know, in their leg warmers, you know, upsetting the rabbis, all that. You know, there is something that's kind of somehow sort of socialistic and subversive about it. But of course, every single, it's not just this, are in Cara song, but other songs it says it's all about individualist ethos, and it just felt mm. a little bit sinister. Really, a, a, a sort of transatlantic cultural exchange is you know between Thatcherism and Reaganism is just beginning to come into force, and it's coming through in the popularity, I think, of things like this. Really, you know, and it's yeah. it's a bit like when somebody once described the difference between European feminism and American feminism. That European feminism is about like how women in communities can kind of like you know raise themselves as communities and as part of a wider community, and in America. It's all about it's all individuality, how I can succeed, how I can break through. Mm. It's all very, very individualistic. You know, the dream, hold on to your dream, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. That's what makes it, in a way, for me, slightly more insidious, that it's wrapped up in this kind of likability, this amiability, this sense of young people doing their thing as a collective. Mm. And it doesn't really feel like it's actually about that at all. It feels like there's a sort of propaganda is being kind of not too subtly smuggled in at the lyrical level. Yeah. Completely. I mean, Neil, you coined this, didn't you, last episode? The genre of music that I believe is up there with white pyjama music <laughs> and yacht rock. <laughs> Dancy Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> and this might not be the first example of that genre, but it's definitely the one that broke the dam, oh, don't you think? Oh, I, I think, in, in a weird way. I mean, it's a very meta start to Top of the Pops. This. We've got Imagination singing about pop. We've got Car- Irene Cara singing about fame. But crucially, where Imagination seemed to be quite 90 1982 this in a totally ghastly way it could also tell the story of kind of 83 and 84 and 85 and it because it it foregrounds Mm. that american notion as, as david's been saying this lie of meritocratic fame you know, yeah. in the UK, fame is seen as miraculous and random in a lot of ways. In the US, powerfully, especially in the dancicles um, that this would birth, you know, and you could argue, actually, that this song is a very stagey, dry run for flash dance in which yeah. cinema and pop totally cross over. This still has a kind of jazz handy staginess that remember, remember bits are very, very stagey. Mm-hmm. But there is this neatly kind of Reaganite idea that combines, as David said, this dissolution of differences between people towards this capitalist mindset of, of work bringing reward 
Yeah. So, yeah. so it's all about really the only thing holding you back is your laziness. Yes. And, yes. and this deeper suggestion, I think, that the vast majority of lives are anonymous and mortal and that the only way to make your life immortal, to have people remember your name and live forever and see you and die, is to gain this mm. celebrity, which is utterly detached from the ability to change the audience, but entirely sort of down to your own messianic zeal about your own ego. The the enemy for a song like this, much as it is throughout sort of Reaganite conservative culture to this day, really, is self-doubt. An absence of self-doubt is a triumph in itself for a song like this. Um, mm. And we're about to hit it really badly. I mean, we're two years away from the LA um, Olympics, right? Which mm. I remember being the first time I heard USA being used as a chant, um, yeah. You know, we're close to Top Gun. We're close to the second Rambo film. You know, do we get to mm. win this time? When he dances on a tank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the film, I think we've discussed this last time we talked about fame. You know, it is quite 70s grit. And it, it, it's the film at least contains the suggestion that dreams can get derailed by reality. And that, you know, yes. your race, your gender can have an effect on that. The misreading that the TV series does of the film is very akin to the way that US culture in general say misread something like Born in the USA. But mm-hmm. like that song, this song seems to invite that misreading. And the video backs up all of this. I, I'm just kind of disappointed. There is a performance of fame by Irene Cara on top of the pops later on, I think. Um, right. Perhaps when it climbs up the charts a bit more. I'm sure I didn't dream this. Where, you know, to Hollywoodify it, and make sure that we know this is a big Hollywood thing. She's singing it in front of a backdrop, basically of posters for Star Trek Wrath of Calm. Um, right. And it's a really, really odd performance, <laughs> no. that. But um, yeah, no, everything that David said, really. Oddly enough, though, you know, two years after it's been created in 1980, it already seems really dated, doesn't it? It sounds yes. like fucking prog rock roller disco or something yes <laughs> definitely you know the other songs <laughs> from the album or whatever you know high fidelity star maker they just cement that so a mm. bit of a, a bit of a come down to be honest with you after imagination but i'm only yeah. saying that now as a kid you know the, the scheduling was obviously really important for fame the tv series that is why mm. it got so big and its international success became really important to the show itself i think it, if it had just remained an american yeah. show it probably would have died to death within a couple of years. But it oh, would have gone after one series. Yeah, but it keeps going till 1980 fucking seven yes. because of its international popularity. Well, I mean, the BBC love having this on because they're screening an advert for a film, but they're also screening an advert for a TV show that's going to be on right after this episode of Top of the yes. Pops. Mm. Yes, indeed. Fame's doing really well at the minute because it's kept the audience at Top of the Pops for another 45, 50 minutes. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. so they're getting, I think they're getting slightly more than Top of the Pops. So, you know, the Emmerdale crowd have pitched in. And of course, being on at the same time as the World Cup, mm. there's going to be a lot of, lot of people who go, oh, okay, I might as well watch this then instead of the dishy soccer men. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of the appeal of this, just like the part, I mean, the massive appeal of all American TV shows in this period, especially when you're a kid, is just, this is what you think America is like. Yes. You know, whether Definitely, it's this yeah. or the fucking Dukes of Hazard or Cagney and Lacey, whatever you're watching, this is what you think America is like. Yes. Uh, by the way, do you know what the most popular show in the UK was at the time? 
No, Ooh. I don't know. To the Manor Born. Was it an American show? Was it an American show? No, oh. no, it wasn't an American Blankety show. Blankety blank. I, I, no idea, no idea. The biggest non-film TV audience last month was 13.1 million viewers yep. for Crossroads. Fuck Ooh. me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the counter-narrative. Yes. <laughs> so it's not all about American dreams. So the, the clip that we see... Um, mm. It's essentially the world's first flash mob, isn't it? Mm. It's the scene where Bruno's overproud taxi-driving dad decides to rig up a PA on his car and park up outside the school and blast out his son's demo, which, you know, wouldn't be embarrassing to you at all, would it? <laughs> I mean, imagine if your dad had parked his car up outside your school, Neil, and, and read out your um, early reviews. <laughs> Oh my God, Father! He complains, doesn't he? He says, "This is just this is just a demo. This isn't finished yet." And he's like, yeah. "So we're getting fobbed off with an unfinished version, then, are we? You know, and it's all <laughs> it's not finished yet." Exactly, David. That's right. We'll come back when it's finished. Then the pop craze youngsters would have been absolutely thrown yeah. at the release of this single because this isn't the theme to the TV show, which, to my mind, is a superior version because Erica Gimple sounds mm. like a woman still learning her craft, while Cora right. sounds like Donna mm. Summer, like she always mm. does. Yeah, yeah. And you don't get bangy stick woman telling you you've got big dreams, you've got fame mm. and fame mm. costs and right as you start paying in sweat. Yeah. We don't get no sweat. No, you don't get no sweat. You get a tiny hint of the aggravation that actually happens in the film when yes. the scene happens because it ends badly, doesn't it? As it may, far as ends I extremely badly for Yeah, the cops for come Coco. and break it all up. You're with a, yeah, absolutely, yeah. it ends badly yeah. for Coco. But, um, thank I, I mean, mean, we get a fight between two taxi drivers. We get a lot of why I ought to. Mm. With a yeah. proper Hollywood yeah, yeah, smack yeah, in yeah. the face as well. You know, that, that, yeah. you know, it never sounds like that when you actually punch somebody in the face. Not that I would know, because I don't, you know. It could have been so much mm. worse, because they could have chosen the clip from the actual TV show. Mm. Which, on a weekly basis, to be honest with you, served you up some fucking atrocious bits. Mm. Oh, yes. I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole with this, and I found the show, 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 Sharofsky clip. Yes! Of Bruno. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. You've got to put that on the on the yeah. playlist, I think, this week. What's he going to say? Have a nice day. <laughs> God, it's just fucking yeah. awful, man. <laughs> I can't believe this shit used to entertain me, but it did. No, oh, it did. It entertained stay, everyone. I used to stay on BBC One after Top of the Pops to watch Fame. There's no yeah. denying yeah. it. Yeah. Another small thing about this is I mentioned previously in a uh, you know chart music episode about you know the old sort of checkered black and white thing down inside the New York cabs and. You know, yeah. it was such a wonderful signifier of New York in the early 80s and Definitely. ZD records mm-hmm. or Z records, all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and it turns out, and I read about, you know, what, you know, and at the time I thought, what mean-spirited cancer officials said, no, we can't be having that anymore. Um, we've got a surplus of yellow mm-hmm. paint or whatever. But, yeah, it's just, that's just market forces got rid of it. It was some firm in Philadelphia um, who were producing, you know, these, these checkered cabs, and it was just no longer feasible for them to uh, carry on operating, you know, and it's just ridiculously sad as a result, you know, because the free market, you know, Reaganism is all, that, you know, you lose something as kind of small but joyful as that. Yeah. The other main difference between the Irene Cora version and the Erica Gimple version is that Irene Cora sings, people will see me and die, mm-hmm. whereas Erica Gimple says, people will see me and cry. Oh. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. that's nothing to brag about. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Really? Mm. Cry is at least ambiguous. You can cry in joy, you know. Whereas you, yeah. you know, um, people see me and die. Yeah. That is a weird line, isn't it? Well, it's that see Naples and die, isn't it? I guess so, yeah. But yeah, basically implies that after you've 
seen Irene Cora, there's nothing left in life to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But, but even, you know, the dancing in this, as is about to be revealed by something coming up on the episode, is in itself so fucking dated. Oh, it really is. I was watching, um, th- there's one thing I used to illustrate the way that white culture commercialises and blams out black culture or black innovation. And it's mm. two clips from the 50s. It's Little Richard doing Tutti Frutti on telly, and yeah. then Pat Boone doing yeah. it two, two years later. Yeah. And... Yeah, this is kind of what's going on here. Um, it's street dance that looks a fuck of a lot like ballet, basically. Oh, yeah, it's just um, goes skinny girls doing plies or whatever yeah, off, yeah, exactly. off a Cadillac or something. <laughs> it just annoys me seeing people dancing on cars. Mm-hmm. What, in all circumstances? I don't know. <laughs> now you've put that in my head, I'm trying to think of a good example of a dance on a car. I can't think of a good one. I, my mind can't get past Nicolas Cage dancing on a car in a fucking annoying way. Yeah. Yeah. Good car dancing. Does it happen? Janet Jackson, When I Think of You, isn't there a sign that? Oh, yeah. Oh, there we go then. Mm. Does Grease Lightning piss you off as well? No, not at all, because they're doing something constructive. (laughs) You know what I mean? They've got to be on that car to do what they're supposed to be doing. If they want to have a bit of a dance along the way, then who am I to stop them? (laughs) But this is essentially what everyone under 30 thinks the 80s was like all the time. Mm. And I've got yeah. to say, if there are any younger listeners to chart music, number one, why? What's up with you? <laughs> Go out and have sex or something while you can. <laughs> and, and number two, no, mm. it was never like that. We never no. danced on cars. Yeah. So the following week, fame would fly high <laughs> to the very summit of Mount Pop, staying there for three weeks before giving way to Come On Eileen by Dex's Midnight Runners, although it would take another five weeks before it was dislodged from the top ten, by which time the BBC Records LP The Kids From Fame had begun its 12-week run as the number one LP in the UK. Although Cora's follow-up, Out Here On My Own Tonight, only got to number 58 in September of this year, Fame would go on to sell 1.1 million copies over here, the second biggest single of 1982, one behind Come On Eileen, and one ahead of a single that we're going to deal with very soon. And she'd roar back in 1983 when Flashdance, What A Feeling, got to number two in July of that year year taken from a film which was written by dean pitchford the lyricist of this single is so incestuous Mm. chaps Slice of Americana coming up just a little bit later. A couple of weeks ago, Jeffrey Daniels from Shalimar danced his way onto the program, and we've had hundreds of letters from people asking for him back. Well, he is back, moving to his music, A Night to Remember. Kid! Back amongst more members of City Farm warns us that we're going to get more American stuff later on before reminding us that social history was made in this studio a fortnight ago and we're going to get another taste of it with the next single A Night to Remember by Shalimar. 
Formed in Los Angeles in 1976, Shalomob was originally a concept created by Dick Griffey and Don Cornelius, the booking agent and producer-presenter of the American music show Soul Train, which put out a medley of Motown classics over a disco beat called Uptown Festival in early 1977, which got to number 25 on the Billboard chart and number 30 over here in May of that year. Inspired by its chart placing, Griffey formed a vocal trio to perform under the name and picked out two regular dancers from Soul Train, Jodie Watler and Jeffrey Daniel. They joined Gary Mumford, one of the singers on Uptown Festival, but after he bailed out a year later and his replacement left a year after that, Howard Hewitt was folded in. And the first single with the definitive Shalimar lineup, Take That to the Bank, put them back in the charts, getting to number 20 in January of 1979. This single... The follow-up to I Can Make You Feel Good, which got to number seven in May of this year, is the second cut from their six LP Friends, which came out in January. It entered the charts five weeks ago at number 49, and two weeks later it got up to number 25, and Top of the Pops came a-knocking. With Jodie Watley being stuck at home being pregnant and the group being on hiatus, the logical option was to stick on the video. But when Michael Hurl was made aware that Jeffrey Daniel was in London doing promo work and hoovering up influencers from the club scene and the King's Road, he invited him on a fortnight ago to dance to the single on top of the pops. Daniel responded by turning up in a new haircut and performed a body-popping routine he'd knocked up in his hotel room the night before, which featured a move he called the backslide, which involved travelling backwards whilst giving the impression of moving forwards. And the pop-crazed youngsters went berserk! While the single jumped eight places to number 17 the following week, the BBC were bombarded with letters from the body pop craze youngsters, panting for them to repeat the performance. But Hurl, God bless him, has tracked down Shalomar's management, who were with Daniel in Amsterdam, and begged them to drag him back for an encore. And this week, after the singles jumped another 11 places to number 6, here he is again. And before we move into it, Kid's fallen into the unnecessary S-trap there, hasn't he? A, a rare misstep on his part. Jeffrey Daniels. Yeah, a yeah, little misstep, yeah. I was, wasn't quite sure his heart was 100% in this one. Mm. Um, I think he brightens up considerably for the next one. But uh, yeah, I, I, look, I, I, I saw the time... I absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, I mm. you know, particularly the first performance. I may have missed this one. Looking at it now, it's great. It's really, really good. And obviously, yeah. it's technically wonderful. It's just a little bit alternative car park in places. Uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, walking down the imaginary staircase, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. the limbo manoeuvres. And yeah. I don't think he quite pulls off the moonwalk, not to the extent that, like, Michael Jackson, who obviously famously copied it from him, does. But um, this was absolutely far and away the coolest coolest thing on the block um, was Shalimar in my world. Mm. It's transatlantic, it's robo-romo-funk, it's contemporary, it's electronic, it's rockless. And I think there's a real bonus, the sense that, like, Jeffrey Daniels and, to an extent, um, Jodie Watley, actually, they connected with the sort of the whole new romantic, you know, the fashion thing, the club thing Mm. that was happening in London, and it affected their appearance. How I didn't quite get it, really, yeah. 
sort of affect him. But because um, that was always a disappointment. At this time, I was just like listening to so much music coming out of like New York whatever, in the early eighties. In, in, in a particular style, you know, and um, the appearances of the, you know, which was, you know, I took deeply to heart, you know, the appearances of the people making it didn't, always, they felt like they were still in the sort of 1977 vibe, basically, mm-hmm. you know, too many sort of flares and big open shirts and all that and medallions and, you know, and wrong hair, you know, for, for my liking and moustaches and what have you. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, you can see that Jeff Dunton has been really affected by that kind of sensibility of what's happening in London on the club scene. He's going out and, um, I, you know, and I love that. And I felt it's, um, you know, I felt there was a kind of a reaching out there that was going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's absolutely true. That, and I didn't realise until much later on when a lot of the um, Soul Train footage was released onto YouTube of just what a great dancer Jodie Watley was as yeah. well, and just how how yeah. brilliantly they worked in tandem. You know, they, they just do these kind of wonderfully kind of like sprightly routines. At one point, they pretend to have a fight, you know, and she sort of pretends to punch him out, and then everybody else. And 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 you just sense that, like, I mean, a lot of the sort of soul train dancers were pretty game, but they just weren't at that level. And I think that one or two of them sort of bridled a little bit at these two, um, you know, frankly, sort of brilliant youngsters showing them up on the old Soul Train line mm. or whatever. But, I uh, mean, the original yeah. performance of this is, it's the definitive Starman moment of the early 80s to my mind. And yeah. I'm going to go further, yeah. Chaps. I, I believe this is even more influential than the Starman moment because, you know, yeah. Bowie encouraged the youth in 1972 to experiment with hair dye and eyeshadow, but he never got them to perform Kabuki theatre in a shopping precinct on a Saturday afternoon, <laughs> did it? Yeah. This was so fucking influential. Yeah, oh, massively. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's remarkable because it's such a happenstance thing to happen. It's just down the hill making mm. a phone call. Yeah. You know, but body popping, when we first saw it as kids, it was fucking miraculous. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. miraculous. Yeah. It was like, like hip hop in a sense. What was exciting about it was that it looked mental and great and amazing. How do I do this? But it seemed self-sufficient. You just yeah. needed to crack the trick, the magic, and you could do it. Yes. And it, it didn't seem like something, I mean, obviously it probably was, but it didn't seem like something you needed to put years of effort into learning. It wasn't mm. like fucking juggling or something. No. It, it was, what was exciting about body popping, especially for little kids, I think, was that it was almost like an attempt to, um, how can I put it, to sort of cartoonify human flesh. Yes. It was, it was like replicating robot moves. It was a massive nod to pop culture. We'd grown up watching cartoons of robots and things like that. Mm. And that kind of liquid metal kind of thing. Uh, perhaps I'm going too far, but it's only, of course, later you realise as a kid how it emerges from things like the electric boogaloo and that idea of a human body without bones. And, of mm. course, Jeffrey Daniel has been popping on Soul Train, if you like, for years. He, yeah. he says he's been mm. doing it from 78. But the crucial thing is taking it from Soul Train to Top of the Pops, that is a massive move, not just in yeah. UK dance culture, in UK playground culture. Yeah. And it proves, again, yeah. the centrality of Pop and Top of the Pops to young people in the UK. Mm. And what's really telling about, even though this is the second iteration of this, what we are seeing here isn't just this amazing dance routine. We're ultimately seeing the past kind of fading away, including yeah. the past of dance that's indicated by Sherlock Fame. Yes. That's yeah, dying. Yeah. Yeah, and totally. this new age is being born. Of course, there's still a BBC-ness to things that can mm. never be avoided. They've, you've got that strange random floor manager guy walking past towards <laughs> the left at the beginning. You've got that strange shot from between a guy's legs where you half think a knackersack might start swinging from the top of yeah, the screen that bit looks like he's humping up towards absolutely poor old jeffrey but it feels yeah. so distinctly new and and my mm. god yeah. how shit does zoom look yeah yes. during this yeah i remember 
not to preempt any, you know, what are we talking about the playground stuff, but everyone, every time this appeared, you, you, just have your minds blown yeah. and you'd have discussion about how we did it yes mm. i remember talking yeah. with my friends about this and like some of them were always like, oh, on wheels or he's, <laughs> you know, he's on oil or some shit like that it was a proper proper mystery yeah it was so cool and you wanted to know how we did it like david said i do think mj does the backslide slash moonwalk better mm. i think mj's just a better more fluid dancer and he has the extra mm. aura of fucking being michael jackson yes. for christ's sake so that truly blows yeah. minds yeah. but i recall this blowing a lot of minds as well now in the original performance of course he accentuates the oddity of the backslide with that final moment where i think he's handcuffed isn't yes. he? And, he, and he backslides off mm. here the gimmicks are a tad force the drinking of a cup of tea yeah and the yeah. umbrella snowstorm and all that but it's still pure mm. magic my jaw would have yeah. dropped watching this the original performance it really helped that he was introduced by dave lee travis who by this time <laughs> is looking like an absolute relic of the 70s yes his yes. beard's starting to go a bit grey at the edges, and he just looks like Anne Widdicombe's crotch by this time. <laughs> um, you know, he's got 14 more episodes in him, and he's looking more out of yeah. place as time goes on. And yeah, yeah, yeah. The Golden Oldie yeah. Picture Show is beckoning. So to set him aside, yeah. Jeffrey Daniel, fucking hell. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, anyway, yeah, fuck yeah, Travis, yeah. let's talk about this. Yeah, I can definitely see how Neil... You know, being at school at the time, how he would have, there would have been a real direct playground mm, impact. Definitely. I'm absolutely yeah. sure. I was at Oxford and uh, there wasn't a lot of body pop in Hartford College quad. But, um, didn't you have a varsity breakdance crew? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the blue ribboned massive but actually there was this stuff was going on or at least the sort of the bodyguard thing at um, when they started doing a club in Oxford about 82, mm, 83 yeah. there, was a, there was a whole you know a bunch of sort of local geezers came in and um, you know did the whole sort of moves to pretty much everything whether it was in Tume Juicy Fruit you know it was all you know it, whatever it was you know it didn't have to be electro frunk no god yeah. no yeah, you yeah. learn how to do it you just got to do it all the fucking time aren't you yeah mm. or Leet Warehouse when he had things like um, the electric tees what was it ET phone yes. home you know you know that electro fuck the other thing like that you know that was just so it really was happening and i just couldn't do it i just stood and watched and admired basically i think there is also a connection i maybe i've mentioned this before on, on chart music but it's worth reiterating in the context of something like this the attraction of you know young african-americans to things like craft work to things like automation mm-hmm. to this kind of like futuristic things which a lot of people decry as mechanical and soulless and why you're sort of performing soul like you did back in the old days or whatever and I think, you know, there was a link between, you know, the, the attraction of, of futurism and black people. I mean, you think about how nostalgic sort of white rock and pop culture is, you know, and mm. a lot of it's, you know, the subtext. You know, weren't the 50s good? Weren't the 60s mm-hmm. good? Weren't the mm. 70s memorable? Were they? And, you know, black people want to say, not for us, they mm. fucking well were. Yeah. Um, you know, and so there's perhaps you know, sometimes a disinclination to dwell on a past that was like full of like strife and the struggle for civil rights or whatever present it won't like great either but the future maybe yeah. yeah we're only a couple of years away from like model 500 no ufo you know i mean mm. it all feeds in definitely this is the year that shalimar absolutely blew up in the uk mm. that was down to them and daniel in particular coming over here and just sucking in the new pop aesthetic uh, in an interview with smash hits this year he essentially laid it all out and he said when i watched top of the pops for the first time it was pause abc 
they were something I'd never seen before. Mm, right. White guys in gold mm. lame suits doing all these choreographed steps with a funk backing. Bow Wow Wow, Imagination, Mark Almond, they all had their own concepts, which is yeah. something you don't get in the States. Everyone just hears a guitar yeah. lick on someone else's album and thinks, that's great, we'll rip it off. Mm. English acts, on the other hand, are genuine. <laughs> Wow. And you you can actually see how quickly he's picked it up because on the cover of this single, he's still in 1979. He's got an afro and leather trousers on. It's fucking amazing. Let's break down the routine then. So it starts off with a load of zoo wankers, but they eventually part to reveal Daniel Mm -hmm. rising from behind a table with a Shalimar logo on it, essentially reprising his role as a barman in the video. Mm. Then he does the walking downstairs bit and then he comes up via an imaginary spiral staircase. He does the backslide because that was expected of him. Yeah. I mean, he's doing the backslide behind the table so you can't see what his feet are doing, which is what everyone would be watching yes. at this point. Yes. So he's teasing us. And when he comes round from the table, he looks like he's come from the future. Mm. He's got these amazingly complicated red and white trousers tucked into white socks. And he's got a Roy Lichtenstein-esque image of an anti-aircraft gun going rat a yeah. on a mm-hmm. sleeveless T-shirt. Mm-hmm. A month later, I was watching him on some Channel 4 show and he had a similar T-shirt on that just said jam with about five A's in it. And I just thought, <laughs> fucking yes, he's a Wellerite too. <laughs> and he's surrounded by the zoo wankers who tried to dance along with him. But it just looks mm. like a pub team playing keepy up next to Maradona, doesn't it? Oh, gotcha. Eventually he's they give up. blown them out yeah. of the water. It's one of those great things where the right 80s throws into a leave the wrong 80s. Absolutely. Like the zoo yeah. Oh, God, the yes. The crowd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also, it's, it's quite interesting. It's quite... Into, to top of the pop's credit here is actually a quite an adventurous playing around with the format. Mm. I mean, you know, on Hill's part to sort of do something like this yeah. because if I think of all the great previous top of the pop's moments like the Starman thing or or um, Sparks is Tannet big enough that both of us they're, they're just things that occur within the format of the show. Then here they've actually sort of you know been quite imaginative in terms of the format and said yeah why not do this yeah yeah and, and it's a course- throwback to Ready Steady Go and that isn't it because it's like saying look mm. here's the new dance that everyone's talking mm. about here's how you do it. Yeah, yeah, well, here's how you do it. But the thing is, like you say, Al, we're, of course, as kids, we're like craning our necks close to the television, trying to look at his fucking feet. Like, yeah. how does he do this shit? But even beyond the backslide and moonwalk, there's actually a more, even more mysterious moment in this where he, he sort of revolves. Yes. And I, I swear down, like, as a kid, I remember looking at his feet. Of course, this is pre-video and everything like that, mm. so you couldn't re-watch it. I watched it again, obviously, for the purposes of chart music. still can't figure it out. Cannot figure out how he does this stuff. No. That's true magic. And that stays with you in a big, big, big way. There, there's this revolving mm. thing he does. He, like, turns circles, and he's moving like a robot whilst he's doing it, seemingly yeah. not moving his feet. How the fuck yeah. is he doing it? I this know. is before mm. the days of, you know, you can buy trainers with wheels in them. So yes. It's a real mystery, a real <laughs> yeah. mystery. And we can see Kid in the background watching on at the beginning as he yeah, trances yeah. everyone else. But halfway through, we see him talking to someone out of shot and laughing. I don't know what that's about. I wonder what they can see behind that. Well, I know that he's just doing the walking down fake stairs stuff, Mm. but it's exciting seeing that, that some people have access to what the fuck he's doing behind that screen. Mm. But yeah, like David said, it is weird, isn't it? It's a totally different thing for Top of the Pops. Yeah. Having this like almost a magician's table. Yes. Distinctly odd, but because of that, unforgettable. Mm. So he does the backslide with an umbrella while 
someone yeah. blows confetti at him with a fan. And then he mm. goes into the only bit of the routine that I didn't like when he, he does the thing with a teacup and saucer. You know, an actual yeah. teacup yeah. and saucer that's on the mm. on the table because I felt patronised as a British person. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely for the British. <laughs> definitely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember the other year in the Women's World Cup and I got really into it, you know, and I was really up for appreciating the, the skill and flair of the American team when they played mm. England. But then that woman did a goal celebration by mimsily drinking a cup of tea and crooking a little finger. And I just thought, ah, fuck off, you bastard. I know. I really wanted one of our players to score and then pretend to be morbidly obese and shoot loads of school kids. That would have fucking taught them. They're absolutely obsessed Americans. I remember interviewing bands and they keep making jokes about tea and high tea. And assumption that Everything stops at four o'clock for high tea. I remember there was a trailer for, I think, when Frank Bruno fought Mike Tyson in America. Yeah. And it shows, like, Bruno, like, really kind of, you know, wailing away in a sparring session. Then a little butler rings a bell, ding, ding, and everything pauses in mid-round so they can have high tea, you know, because Frank Bruno is English. And, uh. Then he backslides behind the bar suckily shoes the zoo wankers out of the way mm. and then he descends behind it giving us a wave as he goes like you say David a lot of the stuff is just mime but he's done mm. the amazing thing of doing mime and, and not being a wanker yeah. that's yeah. incredible yeah, yeah, yeah. could you do any of these moves Al? no and I didn't even bother trying me neither yeah. I just thought well that's fucking brilliant I can't do that no this is mm. it I rapidly realised I couldn't do any of oh you had a go though um, Neil that's good everyone in the playground was having a go but you could figure out within 10 seconds oh shit did you have a crew no I did not have a crew Al oh. no I'm sorry but I didn't everyone had a go but no I realised rapidly mm. um, I couldn't I'm still jealous of the fact that Sophia can moon no oh, god yeah she can moon what Without a doubt. In fact, oh. she likes, if I'm telling her off, moonwalking away. Um, because she knows it, <laughs> no, she knows it staggers me. Insult. Well, it's a good it's a good way of evading get her telling off, you know. Not just fucking off mm. with two fingers. No way of pursuing her, is there? You just have to stand there waving your fist. But backsliding away, it leaves me struck dumb with both awe and anger. So um, she uses <laughs> yeah. that a lot. Brilliant. Someone in Knotts made a documentary about breakdancing and body popping in Nottingham mm. called NG83. And I did an article for the newspaper I edited. I ended up meeting a lot of original members of the of the Rock City crew, the yeah. very good but very unimaginably titled <laughs> yeah. breakdancing crew who played at Rock City and were based there. And I always asked them, you know, obvious first question, what what was it? What was the first, when was the first time you saw this and wanted to do this? And yeah. I just thought, well, okay, uh, Buffalo Girls, uh, Wild Style being uh, shown on yeah, Channel yeah. 4, but no, no, no. They all said the original performance of this. Mm. Wow. Jeffrey Daniel just fucking changed this country. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Yeah. He made the Weetabix breakdance, for fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> they stopped being racist biscuits and started spinning on their grains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of Jeffrey Daniel, we got to see kids robot dancing on That's Life. Mm. <laughs> we got that advert for Right God with the bloke in the suit breakdancing yeah mm. and we got i know what breakfast is all about it's ready break there ain't no doubt yeah. he made ready break cool for yeah. fuck's sake and the thing is i mean i know it's a sort of cliche hip-hop has these four pillars and all that mm. but there were sort of four different ways in 
you know, and you could be into graffiti, you could be into dancing, you could be into the music. We're about to hit a period where hip-hop is in danger in a sense of becoming not a fad, but a detail of pop. Yeah. rather than a genre to itself. Of course, down the pipe soon, we're going to have things like, yeah, white lines and message blowing our minds. And in a couple of years, we're going to have Houdini. But, mm. you know, this period, this was remarkable. And, yeah. it, and it seemed to sort of, yeah, open up possibilities. We obviously were not seeing wild style. We had to wait like fuck to watch that film yeah. but this was a glimpse of something that and I, I think the promise of that the excitement of that stayed with a lot of us and it takes a focus right off the rest of the band mm. the one person in the band who doesn't take solos is the absolute front person of, of the band now mm. that must have pissed Howard off big style <laughs> well look at what we're talking about we're talking about the dance. We're not. To- I mean, it's a fantastic record, of course. And we need to talk about it. And we need to talk about Shalimar because Shalimar of fucking skill. Yeah, mm. it doesn't get said enough. Mm. To all intents and purposes, a disco band who have gone post disco. Is this single the follow up to "I Can Make You Feel Good"? Yes. I mean, fuck me, what a run they're on. Yeah. Is this sounding slightly dated? No, not really. The futuristic dancing helps. It's a brilliant song, and people forget about it because there's there's so much shit around this song, good and bad. Yeah. At the time, this was held up as a as a prime example of Gary and Sharon music. Mm. You know the John Gobber play, Bouncers? Mm. This is the song that the Sharons sing at the disco. Right. The prime example of, oh, disco, eh? Oh, good on the Sharons. Totally. And plus, it's, it's been chopped up a lot, this song, mm. to the point where the chorus becomes the thing that only people remember, mm. and the rest of it is forgotten about, yeah. because it gets used in adverts so much. But yes. it glides so yeah. beautifully. Yeah. It's such a beautiful Absolutely. song. Absolutely. And it's had such a long, long afterlife. Mm. You know, it had been played and heard countless times since 1982 in a way that, like, sort of precludes it from dating. It's up there with Boogie Wonderland as prime disco. Mm. Yeah. Totally. yeah. So the following week, a night to remember nipped up one place to number five, its highest position. The follow-up, There It Is, also got to number five in October, and they'd round off the year with friends getting to number 12 in December. In the meantime, tapes of both Daniel's performances were asked for by Michael Jackson, which resulted in Daniel linking up with him and teaching him the backslide, which he used in his performance of Billie Jean at the Motown 25th anniversary special in March of 1983 and called the Moonwalk. In 1984, after Shalimar split up, Daniel relocated to London, presenting 620 Soul Train for Channel 4, popping up in Give My Regards to Broad Street, being a train in Starlight Express, and releasing the single ACDC, which was written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Richard Stilgo, and becoming Michael Jackson's choreographer in the late 80s fucking hell he went from this to Richard Stilgo <laughs> but the, co- the choreography yeah. in Bad and Smooth Criminal which are the two videos I think he works on are fucking amazing so you know yes good collaboration mm. that and in the early 90s a night to remember was saddled with being the music for an advertising campaign for shaking Bernie in Harvester restaurants but survived it <laughs> Because it is that fucking good. Let me just throw out two more things. If you've not seen Shalimar's performance on the tube at the end of this year, go on YouTube and do so. The version of A Night to Remember is fucking astonishing. Uh Hmm. And number two, imagine if Zoo had formed a band. (laughs) Fucking (laughs) hell. Oh, my God. That's made a little bit of sitcom in my mouth. I'm sorry, dude. (laughs) (laughs) 
practice without supervision, I guess. Jeffrey Daniels from Shalimar and a night to remember. And by way of a contrast now, let's join ACDC in concert for those about to rock. Finally surrounded by some real kids, including a youth in an orange Hawaiian shirt who looks like he's in an orange juice tribute band, a girl in a blue banana armor vest, and a really chunky black lad in a white dinner jacket that he's actually tucked into his jeans, <laughs> warns us not to either pop or lock without adult supervision and calls him Jeffrey Daniels again. <laughs> he then offers up a change of pace as he introduces for those about to rock by ACDC. Formed in Sydney in 1973, ACDC were a glam band put together by Malcolm and Angus Young, two transplanted Glaswegians whose older brother George was a member of the Easy Beats and the co-writer of Love is in the Air for John Paul Young, no relation, and whose sister gave them the inspiration for the name when they saw it on a sewing machine. After rapidly rising through the ranks of the local scene and bagging a support slot on Lou Reed's tour of Australia in the summer of 74, they changed their management, relocated to Melbourne, ditched the glam for a blues rock sound and knobbed off their lead singer for another Scottish immigrant, Bon Scott, who had recently come out of a three-day coma after having an argument with his previous band, the Mount Lofty Rangers, getting pissed up and having a bit of a crash on on his motorbike. In 1975, they put out their first LP, High Voltage, and a year later they landed a worldwide deal with Atlantic Records, which led to them playing the Lock Up Your Daughters tour, sponsored by Sounds, and being properly introduced to the UK. They made the first dent on the UK singles chart in 1978 when Rock and Roll Damnation got to number 24 in July of that year and they spent the rest of the 70s making more of an impression on the LP chart than the singles one. In February of 1980, they were back in the UK to promote their latest single, A Touch Too Much, which they performed on top of the pops. But 12 days after that performance, Scott was found dead in a friend's car in East Dulwich after a night at the music machine. Although the remaining members of the band were inclined to finish there and then, they were told by Scott's parents that Bond wouldn't want them to, so the search for a new frontman was on. After being turned down by their first selection, Noddy Holder, <laughs> they were advised by their producer, Mutt Lang, to give Brian Johnson, the former lead singer of Jordan, a fair go. Remembering that Scott had bigged him up to the band after seeing a performance in the 70s, which ended with Johnson rolling around and screaming on the floor and having to be taken off in a wheelchair, and unaware that Johnson didn't normally do this but was suffering a severe attack of appendicitis at the time, they tried him out and gave him the job. They immediately set to work on their next OP, Back in Black in the Bahamas. And when it came out in August of 1980, it smashed into the UK album chart at number one, staying there for two weeks and eventually selling over 50 million copies worldwide and becoming the second biggest OP of all time after Thriller. 
This is the second cut from the follow-up LP of the same name, which came out in November of 1981. It's the follow-up to Let's Get It Up, which got to number 13 in February of this year. It entered the chart at number 25 last week, and this week it's up 10 places to number 15. And here is a sliver of the 6 minute 18 seconds video, which was filmed on tour in late 1981 at a gig in Landover, Maryland. And finally... ACDC step in the arena and this is the reason that we're doing this episode pop crazy youngsters Neil threatened to knock me out with those American thighs of his <laughs> if we didn't do an episode with ACDC on it so there we go much to talk about but I think the first thing we need to discuss is fucking hell Noddy Holder really oh, I, oh absolutely you know what though that would have totally worked yes it, it would he's, he's got just the right voice for DC that kind of raucous yeah. growl but also an ability to do pop Mm. which um, you need as an ACDC vocalist. It boggles the mind. Yeah, confirmed by him in an interview, Mm. straight from the lathe's mouth, if you will. I mean, it could have worked. It it almost feels like too good to be true. I just wonder if Noddy Holder would have, you know, with his kind of, all of the kind of the baggage and history that he brings, he might have, like, overwhelmed it. I think that Brian Johnson is just right. It would have overwhelmed it in Britain and... Mm. uh, bits of Europe but in America they didn't know who he was yeah. really no no I mean several people um, were up for audition for ACDC they did end up with the right man for the job yes, yeah. yeah I've wanted to talk about ACDC for ages because for me they're one of the greatest mm. um, they're, they're, I mean I'd, firstly I'd like to if that's okay to talk about the Bon era for mm. me that period um, they are one of the great reductivist rock bands of all time that run of albums mm. they did from 76's high voltage through their high point power age i think to their perhaps true masterpiece of crossover highway to help it's one of the best runs of the 70s this being on top of the pops even though it's just a sliver I can just hear the denim creaking in living rooms up in the country just enjoy at this. Yes. The wrist-banded fists would be <laughs> pumping the air right now, Oh, they? yeah. Just so big with the kids and also grown-up metal fans. And the thing is, though, although they're tied in with heavy rock and metal, of course, they've always stood somewhat apart from that. For ACDC, I think the distance of Australia might have helped in a sense. Yeah. They look at heavy music, the rest of heavy music, that is, in the 70s, and they... they kind of look at it with a kind of contempt beyond that i think they look at the 60s with contempt mm. they see everything going wrong with rock and roll as soon as elvis joins the army basically yeah. <laughs> you know when you listen to songs like rocker or a song like let there be rock which attempts to you know biblically tell the story of rock and roll and, cl- <laughs> and claim that history it reveals fundamentally you know they're little richard obsessives that's yes. what they are ultimately and we should always be looking for the little richard's obsessives in the, in, in mm. the 70s including the new york dolls as well so musically you know acdc stand apart in the 70s from the rest of the kind of metal brigade if you like there's an almost punk like insistence on simplicity on three or four chords yeah you know yeah. which is ironic because they hated punk yeah when, when they came to the uk people come up to say are oh, you punk then because you're dead lad yeah and um, yeah they, they weren't impressed but let there be rock that album is loved by punks precisely mm. because of its raucousness and kind of its simplicity you know everything they do is three or four chords angus is this amazing virtuoso but what he's playing it's not van halen type shit or, or no. richie blackmore type shit it's just pure licks and magic there's, there's no attempt mm. to bring anything outside of yeah. rock into rock or progress it in any way the mm. attempt always with acdc's music is to just purify and distill the impact of rock and and i've got to say as a rhythm section there's an almost 
disco-like solidity that sets in by about 78 to what Malcolm, Angus and Phil Rudd do. When you listen to the grooves of something like Touch Too Much, which I think is possibly their high point, the disco groove of that is really brought out by Mutt Lang. He really pushes them to a new level, if you like. And in this period, before we're seeing them here, um, atop of all of this is was Bomb who called himself a toilet poet. Yeah. I would argue he's one of the greatest rock lyricists ever. I mean, granted, they're, they're kind of laughable, you know, the body of Venus with arms, you know, and things like that. <laughs> but there's too many amazing couplets by Bond to pick up. But crucially, he has this openness and generosity in his lyrics that are unlike anyone else in rock. Mm. For my daughter, who's 16, you know, getting to learn 70s rock, she loves Zep, she loves DC. She noticed this. When you think about Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, for instance, you know, big yeah. leg woman's not got no soul it's i mean i'm not saying it's body shaming or anything but contrast that with whole lot of rosie which is just yeah. a celebration of this enormous groupie and, and he's he's always like that he's got a real bonner's just got this genuinely canny ear for really iconic lyrics and the symbols of the kind of the latter half of the 20th century that are important and that become totemic things for the band all of the acdc songs from that glorious run i'm talking about they're all about um electricity Cars, mm. tattoos, V8 engines, <laughs> and very, very elemental rock and roll. It's kind of lyrically, he's actually quite a lot like Mark Bolan, but entirely shorn of that kind of Beltane way elfin stuff. It's mm. pure blue collar. And yeah. when Bon Scott, I mean, I just think it's, it's one of the greatest runs of albums and one of the greatest bands of the 70s. So when Bon Scott dies, it's a big deal. It's not kind of something that's going to be easy to replace. Unlike a lot of metal bands who struggle with new singers, um, like Sabbath and Dio, Ronnie James Dio, for instance. It, ACDC are always going to just sail on because of the innate simplicity of the music. But you have yeah. to have a frontman that, you know, makes it work. There's never going to be any musical differences in ACDC because they all just basically have a massive intolerance for fannying about. Yeah. So, you know, Johnson, as you've said, he's an idol of Scott who recalls, you know, seeing him as a frontman for Geordie. The good sign, actually, at the audition is they're waiting for him upstairs mm. and he doesn't turn up. Um, they find out that Brian Johnson's actually downstairs playing pool with the roadies, which is a right. good sign if you're going to be an ACDC. You know, you get on with roadies, you, you're a drinker, mm. etc. And he auditions with a whole lot of Rosie. He also does Nutbush City Limits, yes, which does, I yes. wish I could have heard that. You know, he's still living with his mum, um, <laughs> Brian Johnson. <laughs> at this. He is, yeah. But <laughs> as a rebrand... What they do with Back in Black is amazing. Uh, you know, in the, like you say, it's such a big seller. In the year it comes out, it's only outsold in the States by like five other albums. The only rock album ever to sell more worldwide than this album is Dark Side of the Moon. And it's a massive totemic album for kids who'd missed the 60s and 70s. And I do think that for a lot of new ACDC fans, it's the start you know, back in black and, and, and kind of the Bond, I'm not saying the Bond Scott era is forgotten, but um, they're a new sort of sized band at this point because they're stadium sized now. Yeah. And Brian Johnson crucially has a stadium sized voice. Yes, um, what was warm and lovely about Bond Scott's voice was it's almost kind of sleazy nightclub size and feel, which suited childish songs like Big Balls and, and stuff mm. like that. And Balls was another mm. obsession of theirs. But by sticking to what they did, they, they carve out this very unique turf and i have to say you know i have been in the past um, very much you know you know what i'm like with bands when they split up i'm kind of very doctrinaire mm. oh no aussie no sabbath you know and i was for a while 
kind of oh if it's not Bon Scott I'm not interested that's not DC yeah. anymore um, I have to say though the first couple of albums with Brian Back in Black's a masterpiece and the one that this is from as well is is still a good record yeah. but they're, they're unique at this point in metal I know I know they're kind of almost um, array of metal cliches in a sense but You've got to realise, on the one side of heavy metal, you have bands like Iron Maiden and Priest and Merciful Fate. What are they doing? They're multiple time signatures, lots of fiddliness, lots of galloping, no groove, you know, and progging it up. You can't dance to those bands. You can only kind of headbang. And on the other Mm -hmm. side, I would argue, you've got Motorhead, you've got Saxon, and you've got ACDC. You can dance to these bands. They've got groove rather than just gallop. In fact, you could see this very track for those about to rock, as a kind of twin of Saxon's hilarious yet m- brilliant denim and leather, a celebration of the audience akin to sort of we are the champions. But yeah. but for me, it does reveal the shortcomings, if you like, of this new iteration. Brian's voice is kind of unlovable. It's this squawky thing. I should stress... I've only seen ACDC once uh, at the NEC. It was like about 10, 15 years ago. And they were fucking amazing. It was in a period where I was watching bands playing stadiums, rock bands like Pearl Jam, for instance. And what a band like that does in a stadium, they play what they'd play in a club and they just assume a stadium should get with it. ACDC never did that. They're full-on showmen. Massive bell that Brian swings from and big catwalk that Angus can do his duck walk down and all of that. And at the back of it, there's the rhythm section and the rhythm guitarist just staying virtually still and just keeping this massive mammoth groove going. They were fucking amazing. But as a recorded phenomenon... From this time on, really, uh, ACDC become a singles band more than an albums band. And they get kind of repetitive in a bad way, ripping themselves off over and over again. And without Bond's humour and his lyrical grace, they become a bit cold. Um, It all becomes about power and electricity. And and there's, I don't know, there's no warmth to it. They're still, as you can see in this video, although, my God, what a grainy fucking video this is. You can barely see through the murk. But um, they're still gloriously cartoonish, albeit now with... With, you know, seemingly someone from the Jocks and the Geordies in them, yes. but but that but that that comically overdrawn thing with the lyrics always means no one can really take offence. My only kind of problem with this, I guess, is it does signpost the future in which D- ACDC become increasingly less relevant. Although, when the Beastie Boys bring out Licence to Will, you know, I mean, that's covered in ACDC samples. ACDC become a real source. Hmm. This appearance here, this video, it's great that Top of the Pops is showing it, but it's too brief. It seems almost tokenistic. But for the kids who are into ACDC, this would have been a mega fucking moment. This would have been, you know, one of our bands appearing. So it's glorious to see them. I I think, yeah, for me, Bon Era tops everything. And it's one of the greatest discographies in all of rock. By Mm. now... It's becoming a bit samey, and I don't think Brian's enough to sell that sameness. He's not got enough wit and humour. But, you know, I, I'm still hard pushed to resent this. They're still good at this point. Yeah. And, and it's glorious to see them on top of the pot. In amidst this episode in particular, they yes. really are completely out of the blue in this episode. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about metal fans, isn't it? They're, they're extremely forgiving of big lineup changes in their favourite bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We spoke in the previous episode about Echo and the Bunnymen getting mm-hmm. rid of Ian McCulloch and, and struggling on, on their own and the undertones mm. and people like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, no, that's game over. Mm. But with metal fans, they're all right with it. They're all right with it. I mean, beyond being all right, they're, they're, I mean, I, I remember when Ian Gillen 
you know, mm. is, is kind of um, uh, becomes Black Sabbath vocalist. He's got absolutely no problem doing Paranoid and all of these things that Ozzy did. He's also yeah. got no, um, Sabbath have no problem doing Smoke on the Water, you know. Yeah. Um, there's this, yeah, there's this kind of openness to that kind of thing. Because for metal fans, these big totemic bands are massively important. They don't want to see them disappear. No. Um, and everyone, truth be told, everyone was really heartbroken about Bon Scott going. It was too mm. soon. There was lots more to do. So yeah. I remember amongst my mates who were metal fans at this time, they were ever so ever so happy that acdc were carrying on and not calling it a day because even to this day there's something that happens with angus young where he can still knock out at least one killer riff per album it's normally the single and it sort of justifies their existence in a way is it because in metal bands the lead guitarist is the real front person because yeah. Angus was the absolute star of AC oh, yeah. amongst my pairs without a doubt I mean if Angus my mate had a dog called Angus after <laughs> Angus Young yeah I mean if <laughs> Angus was not only yeah he's he's almost like the mascot of the band he's like Eddie mm. is to Iron Maiden he has to appear on every sleeve you know there's lots of ACDC sleeves where he's the only person on it and you know I mean Angus crystallises everything that's amazing about the band look at his duck walk total homage mm. to, to Chuck Berry but also a statement you know that rock and roll got ruined once the 50s were over it's a real kind of purist idea um yeah. if angus had been unfortunate to have passed on acdc there's no way they would have continued um another guitarist yeah. simply would not have done it um at no. all sabbath as well if tony iomi went you know what i mean it just would not happen but that i think i think to a certain extent that's partly to do with the fact that with a lot of metal bands the guitarists are the prime motivators and instigators of the band um mm. because they're the ones into guitar rock they're the ones who want to be guitar heroes and they consequently are often the ones who start the bands and if the band you know lose them they're forced to fall apart i mean richie blackmore hasn't let a band happen in a sense that he's not part of you know even when rainbow were popping out he was very very angry about all of that guitarists dominate heavy metal you're right um, much more than frontmen yeah. I'm not saying frontmen no, are interchangeable yeah. but you know no. um, they're, they're a lot more interchangeable than guitarists same thing up mm. with Iron Maiden yeah Paul Diano first album yeah and then Bruce Dickinson forevermore um, unfortunately mm. Diano is great mm. I would actually not mind Maiden if he'd have stayed vocalist can't stand Bruce Dickinson there's just something a bit Brexity about that guy we'll come to that in good time <laughs> let yeah. the rock expert have his say um, yeah I mean I think it's true about you know guitar heroes no one wants to be a bass hero for instance yeah I mean it is very much you know, <sighs> a few minute thing. so anyway it's 1982 there I am in the um, j- junior common room at uh, my Oxford College in my semiotic trousers mm. and red braids <laughs> well yeah yeah but of course, you know, I'm very much anti-rockist at this time, in line with enemy orthodoxy, mm. and my lip is inevitably curling at the prospect of ACDC. <laughs> I mean, at this point, metal was just despicable. It was it was like the Tory party yeah, or something like definitely. that. People at the Tigers <laughs> of Pantang were like Norman Tebbit or something like that in my aesthetic <laughs> ideology. You know, which is funny. They were sexist, troglodyte. Mm. All my kind of cultural mm. values were... You know, metal was an aff- deliberate affront to them, my aesthetic values or whatever, everything. I would have sneered a bit at ACDC at the time. I think I made a sort of, you know, I cut a sort of rather cutting quip in the um, college magazine about <laughs> Led Zeppelin meet the Crankies. <laughs> no, which sadly didn't torpedo I their careers. go and see Led Zeppelin meet, <laughs> meet the, the Crankies. Crankies. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, it didn't torpedo their careers, and I think that's just as well, really. We Jimmy Page. <laughs> now, the thing about, when AC, about ACDC, when you actually sort of 
listen to them as I did, I would have confused feelings, you know, basically. It's a bit like finding Hitler a bit erotic or something like that. Well, actually, it's not that. It's beyond that. <laughs> Genuinely, they're fucking good. Um, yes. You know, you'd not just have a heart of stone not to like ACDC, but ears of stone and, frankly, a brain of stone. <laughs> there is an Australian component in a sense. You know, it's like Ayers Rock. It is pure rock. There's no twaddling yeah. about. It is, yeah, yeah. as Neil said, it's reductive. It's getting to the absolute essence of rock. You know, and it, oh, I mean, <laughs> M- Motorhead kind of got a pass, I think, you know, by the punks. And, and I yeah. think ACDC should, well, that, that similar sort of thing. Yeah, the fact that he does dress like a schoolboy, Ang- Angus Young, there's that wonderful sort of masculine self-effacement going on just in mm. that, really. You know, there's mm. no sort of self-glorification or whatever, you know. And I think there was always a sense of that. You know, there's just no bullshit about them. Yeah. If you didn't know ACDC, you wouldn't be able to tell them from their own roadies, would you? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. No, yeah, you wouldn't. No, absolutely. No, I just yeah. think that, you know, Brian Johnson is, you know, he's got sort of sufficient pedigree, but he isn't, he, he doesn't really that much of a star. Really. He feels kind of replaceable in a sense, really. Mm. I think what he yeah. provides is mm. a texture. He provides um, a necessary element but what's really important is obviously Angus Young and the rock and the riffage. The thing is with the school uniform with Angus, what it also neatly does, it destabilises any sense of egoism, um, really. And and that's absolutely crucial to ACDC. ACDC are not a band of egos. What they are is a band of... It it is five cogs in a machine, ultimately. Mm. And and it's the machine-like nature of what they make that makes it so beautiful. It glides, it's got hydraulics to it, it's lubricated, it's a lovely, lovely thing when it's set in motion. Now, I don't think Angus is replaceable because he's the main songwriter. But I think by doing that, by making himself look a bit daft, basically, mm. he stopped any sense of ego in a sense. You know, that I'm at the front mm. and I'm the most important or look at me, I'm amazing. It's just, you know, when these guys plug in and play, something fucking miraculous happens. And, and it yeah. still happens. And you can mm. see it happening here. Brutally truncated, though it is. I mean, maybe that's just me as a metal fan thinking, oh, that's not long enough. But it just felt yeah. a bit, you know, clipped. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it was—it's lovely that they put it on. I mean, you know, Back in Black was a massive success, so it makes sense for Top of the Pops to put it on. But it would also make complete sense for them to not bother. But these are the moments that you know kids will remember. If you're sat there with your sister who's in a pop and you're in a metal, and this comes on, that's a fucking moment and a half that you that you probably never forget. So mm. wonderful to see it in the midst of an episode that, um, apart from this, is obviously like really—I mean, apart from some of the dreadful shit that we might. Run into soon. Um, it's quite free of rock. It's nice to have a bit of raunch and heaviness in the middle of it here. I mean, of course, being a jam lad who was still reeling mm. from the events of the autumn of 1981 when I went back to school and discovered that most of my peers had swapped their madness modness badges for ACDC patches. <laughs> I would have been watching this not necessarily with disgust, but with puzzlement. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, when my nephew was five years old. His favourite thing to eat for his tea was half a cucumber rolled in salt. Yeah, lovely. And I would sit there just watching him thinking, really? You, you actually really like that? Seriously? And I'd have been doing the same thing with this, you know, just trying to work out why my peers were into something that absolutely reeked of the 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd be thinking, did we have the Lambrettas for nothing then? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, mean, I get it now, of course, mm. but... At the time, it was like, 
It felt like a step backwards, but I didn't hate it because ACDC are absolutely impossible to hate. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, like, I, it's just, there was a lot of tribalism in the 80s, and, you know, no, you were just yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's much easier metal bands to hate in this period. Mm. Like yeah. fucking Maiden, for instance. Maiden are uh, the zenith of that kind of ridiculous, laughable side of metal. Um, I hope we get onto Maiden, actually, because I want to slag them off at some point. But um, just to annoy my daughter. But yeah, there, there was that totally <laughs> laughable side of metal. ACDC, no. If you're laughing, you're kind of half getting the point, to be honest yeah. with you, with ACDC. Mm. So you're telling on yourself if you laugh at them. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is good that Top of the Pops have put this on, but, you know, you've got to downgrade them a little bit for lopping off the intro, mm. which sounds a bit like Barbara O'Reilly era who. Mm-hmm. And they've cut it before they get to the cannons going off, which is <laughs> clearly the best bit. Yeah, it's yeah. the 1812 moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they were worried about kids going off and playing with artillery <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> I mean, that. The reason they put the cannons in, apparently, was when they were recording this album, they were in London, and, you know, they were watching the telly when the Royal Wedding was on while they were rehearsing, Mm. and they saw all cannons, that'd be good. (laughs) Let's bunk some of those in. They know Mm. their crowd, Mm. you know, and they distill things down to simplicities. So many metal lyrics at this period were full of, sort of, nonsense. ACDC, really, they could have read out, I don't know, um, the manual for some new capacitors or something. It's just like, it's, it's pure, it's right right down to electricity cars and, and energy and power almost seen as abstract concepts almost in some in, in some acdc lyrics it, it's rock yeah. and roll yeah taken to this sort of abstracted um place where mm. it doesn't really make much sense but as a kid it's pure pure adrenaline and that's what yeah. you want from rock and roll at the time i like everyone else had a metal mate yeah, hey, yeah. jake wherever you are oh, yeah. he tried to get me into acdc and he played me this song and he said wait till you hear this <laughs> the cannons bit and it was like and I nearly wavered it was like oh actually that's really good <laughs> I really prove but we don't get to see it on top of the pops which is a damn shame it is a damn <laughs> shame but truth be told ACDC at this point they don't need the help of top of the pops um, no you know AC, no. top of the pops need ACDC perhaps a little bit but not mm. the other way around Anything else to say about this? The only thing I can stress is, yeah, Power Rage is the best album. Highway Tower is a fucking amazing record. I, I consider if you don't have them, you're bereft of knowledge about rock and roll music and why it means so much. So the following week for those about to rock stayed at number 15 and would get no further. The follow-up, Guns for Hire, got to number 37 in November of 1983, and they'd have 11 more top 40 hits throughout the 80s and early 90s. But their biggest hit on the singles charts came in 2013, when a live version of Highway to Hell got to number 4 in December of that year. Mm. Uh, So in closing, I would like to add this quote in. My first conscious decision with music was when I heard Back in Black by ACDC and I was sold. ACDC always were, are and will be the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Nobody will beat them. Fuck your stones. Fuck your Beatles. Fuck all your white stripes and all your new fucking bollocks. ACDC are the greatest rock and roll band ever. Bon Scott first and then Brian. The spake, the great Chris Needham. <laughs> I knew uh, halfway through that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you were going to say Keir Starmer then for some reason, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 
places to number 15. Well, last Sunday, the 4th of July, there was great celebrations right across the United States. It was Independence Day. Let's see how Jonathan King celebrated as he goes through the Billboard chart. Kid! Standing amongst a smattering of zoo wankers and actual real-life people has to remind us that we're four days past the 4th of July because British people still haven't cowered before the might of American cultural power just yet as he informs us that we're about to be treated to another <laughs> instalment of Jonathan King's Cuntertainment USA. <sighs> David, me and Neil have already had to deal with one of these, so come on, tell us, how did you feel about this sort of thing at the time? I didn't care for it, it wasn't the America that I wanted, Um, and um, Jonathan King, I mean he had that whole business, I mean the next slide was like Prince Charles meeting Jimmy Savile, looking at Jimmy Savile, and Mm. thinking that, you know, yeah, he's a perfectly sound, decent bloke. Um, yes. I mean, sometimes you really can judge a book by its cover, can't you? you know, when you're <laughs> yes. Barbara Carton or something like that, I think, I think I know what to expect here, you know. Like, call me prejudiced, but I think I'll give this a swerve. <laughs> and I mean, he looks like what he is, does Jonathan mm. King. Um, and, you know, that's possibly appearances ist. Mm. But, yeah, this like to again, it's that sort of transatlanticism. I mean, I don't think that Jonathan King was at all a Reaganite. In fact, I do remember him doing one of these broadcasts in which he was assuring us that, um, you mm. know, you, you, you might be fearing that Ronald Reagan's going to get elected, but um, and that would be a dreadful thing because it would be him and George Plastic Man Bush. But I think it was safe to say that Jimmy Carter will win the 1980 um, presidential oh. election. Thanks, Jonathan. Um but it just feels like the sort of, yeah, the famism, the transatlanticism about all of this. I mean, I guess there is a sort of a closer relationship, you know, post-Freddie Laker and all of that between the two continents. But I, I just feel like we're getting the shitty end of the stick of it all, you know. Um, Mm. Especially through this conjure. I mean, what joy is this man given anybody ever? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, even doing this for chart music, I felt such a familiar feeling mm. whenever this cunt appears on anything. It's just you start feeling these precious seconds of your life mm. just swirling away from you into an unrecoverable void. Yeah, yeah. Um, whenever he appears on screen, and so it proves in this. And this is the thing, you know, we always talk about like there being half an hour every week, you know, there's just sliver of entertainment that's kind of relevant to our pop lives. But of course, in end it's not even half an hour it's quite often it's only about 10 minutes or something like that because there's all of this to wade through and he gives us a bit of a fucking history lesson at the beginning doesn't he oh Mm. yes Mm. because that's just what you want in top of the pops Mm. definitely that's why i tuned in (laughs) yeah but come on chaps let's not moan it's america in 1982 in it so Mm. africa bambata tom tom club (laughs) exactly prince Uh, grandmaster flash in the furious five rick james oh this will be fucking good bring it on Two hundred and seven years ago, this was British soil. Two hundred and six years ago, America declared its independence, and they're still celebrating that with various guns going off, parades, and so on. However, the British influence on music is still pretty strong in the American charts. Haircut one hundred and Kim Wilde are slowing down, lower down the charts. But you'll notice that Fleetwood Mac have jumped from twenty-two to twelve, and Tainted Love by Soft Soul goes from eleven to nine. And at number seven, Juice Newton with Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me. Rather like these guns. We are whipped over to a very boring part of New York 
as someone dressed up as a revolutionary war type does some bugling. And as the camera pans back, we discover King dressed and looking like Simon Bates after a night spent sleeping in a skip, standing in front of some cannons. He reminds us about that war we lost as the cannons roar, sadly pointed away from him. And then he tells us that a load of singles we rinsed late last year are finally showing up on the American charts. But never mind that, because here comes Love's Been a Little Bit Hard on Me by Juice Newton. Mm. Born in New Jersey in 1952, Judy K. Newton spent her college years in California and had a go at being a folk singer, eventually formed in the country rock band Juice Newton and Silver Spur in the early 70s. After middling success, the band split up in 1977 and Newton began a solo career. And a year later, she had a moderate hit in America with a cover of Bonnie Tyler's It's a Heartache, while a song that she'd co-written, Sweet Sweet Smile, was covered by The Carpenters. In 1981, she put out a cover of the 1968 Merrily Rush single, Angel of the Morning, which sold over a million copies in the USA, got to number four on the Billboard chart, and got to number 43 over here in May of that year. This is the follow-up to The Sweetest Thing I've Ever Known, which got to number seven in America late last year and did arse all over here. (laughs) It's also the lead-off cut from her new LP, Quiet Lies, and it features Andrew Gold himself on guitar and backing vocals. And this episode screeches (laughs) to a halt, doesn't it? (laughs) Fucking hell. Let's talk about the 4th of July bollocks for a start, because that meant nothing then. I mean, this is it. As as Neil said, this is, you know, this isn't Michael Portillo's great train journeys or something like that. It's fucking top of the pops. Get on with it. Yeah, we don't need to be told about a war that we fucking lost. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, I used to hate that. When I first started going on the internet, I got involved in this uh, internet forum in like the late 90s that was uh, kind of like American sports themed. I was the only non-American on, right. the, on the thing. And I'd get non-stop shit from fucking morons saying, oh, you lost that war, dude, and oh, <laughs> you scoreboard on you and all this kind of stuff. And I'd just say, well, number one, I wasn't there, so I don't give a fuck. Number two... A load of people telling the British royal family to fuck off. Good on them. <laughs> what a shame we haven't done that yet. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, crucially, a lot of British people telling the British royal family to fuck off. That's the thing. I mean, Americans yeah. winning that war. It's not exactly what happened. But I mean, mm. you know, Jonathan King is a time sponge, man. Um, and, and yeah, this opening section. Yeah. What you said, Al, about the cannons not being pointed at him. Gutted. <laughs> but anyway, this this thing here. I mean, this would be like Solid Gold or American Bandstand devoting five minutes to the latest British videos, and mm. and we gave them the oldest swinger in town by Fred Wedlock or <laughs> fucking Fan Dabby Dozy by the Crankies mm. over an abattoir video. I mean, no offence to Juice Newton, but what the fuck is she doing here, man? She's about as comfortable on this episode of Top of the Pops, as if she'd be if she'd just walked into the men's toilets at half-time at a third-division football <laughs> ground. It's like, Juice, sorry, Doc, no, this isn't for you. Go, no, go. The, the thing is, this this persists to this day. This this thing that 
you know, when I was trying to research Juice Newton, because I'd never heard of her nope. before watching mm. this, you know, and it, no. it, 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 what you get is a lot of people saying, why was she never a big star in the UK? You know, how, how inexplicable is her lack of success in the UK? Mm. Look, we don't... Because of this. Well, mm. we don't care about this shit. I mean, it's like, you know, this still the desire to get the UK into American mainstream country music persists. You know, whispering Bob Harris, the enemy of pop, he yeah. had his own country show on Radio 2 a while Did he back. Know? And, you know, on a weekly basis, he was moaning about why this stuff wasn't big. You know, bar certain members of the Birmingham line dancing community, nobody gives a <laughs> fuck about this <laughs> stuff. And by no. the way, I'm not just making it up about Birmingham line dancers. I wanted to check out if my idea about Birmingham being the Texas of England is true. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so the other day I was looking for line dancing clubs in Birmingham and I found four. Now, come on now. Mm. Jesus. Um, oh, yeah, you've got Dancing Tonight Line Dancing Club. You've got Bobby Sue's. You've got John's Jive. And you've got Smoky Mountain Country Music Club, all in the... Uh, well, great- where's the Smoky Mountain <laughs> in Birmingham, man? <laughs> well, I looked at the Google map of it outside. It just looked like some sort of warehouse, basically. Well, not even a warehouse. Oh. It's like Norman Fletcher starting that cowboy club yes <laughs> there was a bloke who next door to my best mate uh, who was into all that kind of stuff mm. and every sunday afternoon while my mate and his family were settling down to tuck into something traditional and british all mm. they'd hear is the cunt next door firing his guns in the air and <laughs> whooping and and yelling and at the mm. same time on central news there was a, a news story about a bloke who uh, dressed up as a Native American and spent a lot of time in a teepee in his back garden. <laughs> mm. And the bloke next door had a right moan about it to uh, my mate's dad saying, look at this cunt here. Who the fuck could do something as stupid as that? <laughs> While he's dressed up as a fucking cowboy. Mm. That's the thing. The, the, you know, we need that imagery in a sense to get into it. The, the, this is why stuff like Juice Newton remains stubbornly kind of unloved over here. Mm. I think to an extent it's down to our perceptions in this country of country music. I mean, we take yeah. some of the music seriously, but for it to become pop music to us, it has to contain a bit of gimmickry. So it has to contain songs about gambling or poverty or the mm. novelty of Kenny Rogers' beard or, or Dolly Parton's tits or whatever. Ray Stevens' The Streak. Mm. (laughs) I think this is unique to England, you know. Mm. Irish and Scottish friends of mine are far more likely to have grown up listening to country pop regularly um, rather than the sort of Johnny Cash, Dolly Parton records that we all have. Whereas to us, you know, in England... Listening to country is a, is a bigger crossing of the racial tracks than listening to reggae or soul or mm. bungra music, you know. Mm. And and this Juice Newton, she's not even got any of that cowboyish gimmickry. It's just main, no. mainstream pop, really, with a country twist. And why the fuck yeah. would we be interested in that? With a twang, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I paid close close attention at this point, you know, to the charts. And this, if I even knew this existed, um, I forgot it did. I mean, I may have missed this episode or just gone for a slash during this particular segment or something like that. <laughs> nah, you were watching Jimmy Greaves, weren't you? <laughs> well, could, could well, yeah, I was all geared up for that, no, you know, possibly as well. But um, Willing the Germans on, no doubt, David. Oh, 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 no, 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 not at all, no. I was an absolute um, Germanophobe, that, that, that really? tedious, right. strutting Schumacher, good grief, no. <laughs> uh, it took me a long while to recover from that, actually. Um, yeah, that, definitely, no. I was a, very much a Francophile this night. Um, if, if I saw it, if I was, it just evaporated. I couldn't even muster the... Uh, um, 
as much as I can't now, really, to be honest, I can't yeah. really muster the words or the energy to say anything about it. It, it is <laughs> just nondescript. It's fucking cat shit, isn't it, this? I mean, the only thing that I... I tried to make notes from it. You know, it's pretty much a blank page, and then I just thought there's... Looking at some of the video and, and, and whatever, they, they, there's nothing worse in this world than a slightly new-waved, influenced American from the early 80s. Mm. That's all, again, in terms of, like, you know, the sort of the attire that people were wearing in, oh, yes. you know, in the kind of video and stuff. Also, that weird video, it's a bit like that sort of Dangerous Brothers type vibe. Yes, it is. It, yeah. I mean, it mainly consists of Juice Newton and a band who are the textbook definition of serving suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, which one did you hate the most out of that band? I think it was the one who was properly new waved up i.e. Yeah. non-flared trousers and a skinny tie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. That, that horrible band, definitely. Yeah. And um, it's interspersed with clips of her being severely and repeatedly injured by her thick ponce of a boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we see mm-hmm. him picking her up outside her house and then slamming the car door onto her mm. leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He then goes on to accidentally whack her in the face with her own crutch as he gives her some mm. flowers. And then he accidentally pushes her wheelchair over a cliff. And mm. that was... Have you seen the whole video? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it's like a fucking public information film, that wheelchair <laughs> going off on a cliff. It's really fucking graphic. Mm. And she ends up with uh, her legs wide open in a full body cast in hospital. As I say, it's not quite done with the Dangerous Brothers panache, though. You know, there is no, an art to no, this kind really of um, morbid slapstick, and uh, I don't think... Uh... <laughs> I mean, this is for mums, isn't it? This is the reason why I say so, The mums have, have not done well out of this episode so far, so mm. this is this is for them. Maybe so. Yeah, but what mums are going to be into this? But it's just a litany of domestic violence, accidentally or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which goes well with country music, I suppose. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, there's always had that humorous, you know, Cletus the slack-jawed yokel type. Yes. Was it one on The Simpsons? It's like, you know, came home one night, caught my wife in bed with my best friend. You bitter? Uh-huh. Bit him, too. <laughs> That's funny. No, that's a joke. So yeah, this is this is what America's got to offer at the moment. Yeah, it's not enticing, is it? Great. Mm. I think even the mums would have felt, you know, is this what we get? It's like a shit Mother's Day card or something. <laughs> so love's been a little bit hard on me. Ended up doing fuck all over here, and rightly so. And she never bothered our charts again. Mm. Yeah, Good. Quite right. Next. These ridiculous things are Dealey Bobbers. Everybody's wearing them all over America. But back to the charts. Going up from seven to six is the Daz Band with Let It Whip. And jumping from nine to five is a future number one record by Survivor. It's from the movie Rocky Three. It's called The Eye of the Tiger. We cut back to King, standing outside a cinema, who introduces the UK to... Steely Bobbers and Chaps, the 80s have truly begun, man. The, the age of Aquarius sort yeah, it starts of. with a Nadir, basically. Him wearing fucking Dealey Bobbers. Yeah, the age of Nadirius, <laughs> if you will. Mm. I mean, King is a spiritual Dealey Bopper, so I don't know why Very it's kind much. of like, you know, in this sort of like... You know, detached <laughs> sophistication and superiority. You know, you are a dealy bopper. You know, there was, there was good 80s mm. and bad 80s as far as I was concerned. There was a very sharp divide. And good 80s was ABC, the mm. Associates, Scrutty Politi, you know, early Simple Minds in the early 80s, etc., etc. And bad 80s, and it was zoo wankers and dealy boppers, etc., etc. Mm. And crucially, Jonathan King telling us that all Americans are wearing dealy yeah, boppers yeah, 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 on yeah, an yeah, almost yeah. constant basis. 
Yeah, well, there's loads of people milling about, <laughs> Sorry, walking yeah. past yeah. him, and none of them are wearing No, they're all them. walking their pet rocks, but, you know, they don't have dilly boppers. Yes. <laughs> Invented in Los Angeles in 1981, dilly bobbers were a headband with two springy baubles attached to them and were the brainchild of Stephen Askin, who had already come to prominence in America by marketing Ayatollah Khomeini dartboards during the Iran hostage crisis. After making a load of them in his kitchen, he took them to the Los Angeles Street Fair in the summer of 1981 and sold all 800 of them at $5 each. He sold the invention onto the Ace Novelty Company at the end of the year, who called them Dealey Bobbers. By the summer of 1982, an estimated 2 million other fuckers had been sold by Ace Novelty, with the market awash with cheap imitations. And this is their first appearance <laughs> on British television. And somewhere out there, Dave Lee Travis is stroking a thoughtful beard, oh, isn't yeah. he? When I see Dealey Boppers, and I do call them Dealey Boppers, because I'm damn convinced that's mm-hmm. what they were called mm-hmm. over here. I immediately associate them with Daily yeah, Travis. with characters. Mm. Yes. Mm. Total Colin Hunts. Yeah. And Jonathan King Wareham is a nice start, in a way, yeah. isn't it, to the phenomenon? Yeah, set the tone. <laughs> yeah. He then reminds us that Americans get films ages before we do, as he introduces Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Formed in Chicago in 1977, Survivor were a rock band formed by Jim Petterick, the former lead singer of the Ides of March, who had a number 31 hit in the UK with Vehicle in June of 1970. After forming and then dissolving the Jim Petterick band, he intended to go into radio jingle work, but was talked into giving it another go by his road manager. So he formed Survivor, who were almost immediately picked up by Atlantic Records. Their first LP, Survivor, flopped in 1980, but the follow-up a year later, Premonition, spawned the singles Poor Man's Son, which got to number 33 on the Billboard chart. Later that year, Sylvester Stallone was wrapping up the filming of his next film, Rocky III, and he knew exactly what he wanted for the theme tune. Another One Bites the Dust by Queen, which he had inserted into the preliminary cut of the film. But when John Deacon knocked him back, Stallone left a message on Petterick's answering machine saying he liked the working-class rock stylings of Poor Man's Son and wanted something similar for the title theme of Rocky III. And by God, this is it. (laughs) It's not available in the UK yet, but over in America, it's jumped 10 places from number 19 to number 9. And as the video we've come to associate with the single isn't available, Top of the Pops are giving us another film clip of Stallone over-emoting in a boxing ring, while Lawrence Turode, a former bouncer in a nightclub called Dingbat's Discotheque, turned tough man boxing champion, turned bodyguard for Michael Jackson and Muhammad Ali, glares on at ringside displaying regretful compassion for the imbecilic Mm. oh boys we're bound to run across the official version of the video at some point so let's put that Mm -hmm. aside and focus on this because once again the bbc are practically running an advert for a film aren't they yeah they are and and to be fair the video makes the film look pretty damn good um yes it it really does. does but you know much like with the film uh, when I did get to see it, it, it let's be honest, it's Clubber Lang you want to see. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're a yes. way off 
at this point, 82, we're away off, you know, Mr. T serial and the, and the Mr. T cartoon series, which I actually feel is his greatest work. Um, because, oh, yeah. What, when he manages a um, diverse gymnastics team. Yeah, well, not only that, he punches a shark, he throws an alligator about, of he does loads he does, of stuff. Yes. It's mint. Um, I would recommend the, the compilation on YouTube, by the way, of his moral messages at the end of the cartoon. Or be somebody or be somebody's <laughs> fool. Yes. <laughs> Homespun That's common sense homilies on the importance of not bragging and not moaning and basically, you know, don't be bad, be good. Um, but he was the most compelling thing about Rocky Three, Mr. T. Yes, he was. And this is the first time we get to see Mr. T, isn't it? Mm. First Dealey yep. Boppers, now this. this. Fucking hell. That America, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Rocky Three is also the first time that we see Hulk Hogan, so mm. a cultural monolith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I liked Mr. T, I think, from things like Top of the Pops and looking at because obviously this is way before A-Team as well. But I was finding something with the Rocky movies because um, I was taken to see Rocky, probably the first one, really young. And I did watch Rocky 2 as well. So I was looking yeah. forward to Rocky 3. I felt old enough to watch this kind of stuff now. But I was detecting something. I, can't, I didn't like Mr. T's defeat um, mm. in, in this film, you know. And the way the film, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, it's about the great white hope. All of the Rocky films are. Yes. But the way that Rocky 3 in particular, it kind of rewards Carl Weathers for being the right type of black boxer, mm. you know, giving it up for the yeah. white saviour. And Clubber Lang gets demonised for being angry, basically. Yeah. And, yes. Yeah. For being an angry black man. I mean, by the by, if you really want to open up a can of indignant worms and trigger <laughs> white Americans, just suggest somewhere online that the Rocky films might might be racist they really oh, do not God, like racist as fat at all. just as somebody that was yeah. kind of conscious of like african-american culture and a you know keep boxing fan i mean it is just a ludicrous exercise in wishful thinking <laughs> yeah you know the yeah, whole completely. thing it's chuck wetner i think it was a guy called chuck wetner who went a long way with ali yes and he took him all the way and i think that's what inspired him you know like you know perhaps a white man could yeah. beat up a black man you know and it's just that's all, yeah that's all there is to it <laughs> yeah 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 i mean look stallone in a weird way He's a good popular artist. My favourite of his is, by the mm. way, the fever dream of action cinema that is Cobra. But, um, but Rocky <laughs> Three, I remember that being the first one, I think, where I started detecting the faint racism of Rocky films and having mm. a big problem with it. Mm. Yeah. It really yeah. does trigger a lot of Rocky fans and boxing fans if you dare to suggest that the Rocky series is in any way racist. I suppose by mm. Rocky Four, it's just entered cartoonism. I didn't, Rocky Five, don't bother with. Um, Rocky Balbao I've not bothered watching although I was amused that um, Carl Weathers wanted to be in it um, mm. Sylvester Stallone pointed out hold on a minute you were killed in the fourth one um, and because Carl <laughs> Weathers got so pissed off about that that he wasn't allowed to be in Rocky Balbao he could have been a ghost yeah as a ghost or something who knows he refused to let um, Sylvester Stallone use any of the Apollo footage from any of the films yeah because if you have a ghost boxer are you going <laughs> to land on it <laughs> you know what I mean yeah it's a host of difficulties mm. isn't it mm. But yeah, Rocky yeah. 3 is the first one where I sort of start detecting that there's something up with this series. But that said, I mean, yeah, talking about the video, you do have to sort of talk about Survivor at the same time. Yes, you do. It's a good intro, this tune. It does its job, mm. um, do Survivor. Lyrically tells the story of the film without really mentioning any any specifics, which frankly would have been ace. I would have loved to have heard the words Rocky and Apollo in these in these lyrics. Uh, you know, when they do the exact same trick in Rocky Four and they do Burning Heart, mm. um, that film, they do actually mention the sort of you know the socio 
geopolitical <laughs> import of Rocky IV. You know, there's that line, seems our freedoms up against the ropes. Mm. But, um, you know, this song, although it inhabits the same sound world and dynamics of something like Stevie Nicks' Edge of Seventeen, whereas Stevie is a totally compelling lyricist and singer, the chap from Survivor isn't. Isn't, mm. no. It, it is what you'd expect from a band pretty much made up of jingle writers. It's rock produced and sheened to the point where nothing really grabs you and everything snags your esophagus a little bit. It's got that weird sense of this is meant to be heavy while sounding really fucking weedy yes. once it gets going. You know, but the intro's good. I can't deny it. it's a good build to the film. It's used cleverly in the film. But Survivor don't really care about rock and roll. They're Tim Pan Alley types, not really rock and rollers. So I kind of applaud the mm. craft but loathe the sentiment. But the film itself, you know, I was having problems with that as well. Perhaps, you know, the first time I had problems with the Rocky series is definitely Rocky 3. Yeah, Mm. yeah. It's really funny though, because Clubber Lang obviously heralds the arrival of Tyson. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And also, when a white heavyweight boxing champion finally comes round, he's a bit nearer to Ivan Drago than Rocky Balboa, isn't he? Yes, indeed, yes. Mm. There was articles in the Village Voice and places like that when the first Rocky came out suggesting, you know, this is all about white working class people feeling that black people have been given too much progress and this is about claiming something back not many people picked up on the racism of rocky three at the time it came out mm. um it was very triumphalist when it came out but yeah it, it's pretty blatant i haven't watched the film for a while i must give it another viewing but as i recall mr t is given this character club lang Clubber Lang is, he's like a Mandingo type figure of fear mm. and kind of mm. hypersexuality and, and all the rest of it. It's a real coalescing of a lot of author, a lot of stereotypes. And he's throughout the film, I think, contrasted with Apollo. Apollo learns to acquiesce to the Great White Hope, learns to actually help the Great mm. White Hope, you know, and is a businessman and all the rest of it. Um, Clubber Lang is this angry young black man and consequently he's demonized throughout the movie. Um, and I remember feeling distinctly uncomfortable about that. Yeah, it's a definite vibe. Good black yeah, man, bad so. black man, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting that um, another one bites the dust. Which I don't think that would have worked particularly well. I think no, it's too much of a cliche. No. I actually think. I mean, I can't stand this song. Um, I once heard. <laughs> I mean, one of my worst nights ever. I think was in Leeds at some pub, and it was one of those. It was dying, you know, when the London Symphony Orchestra kind of produced hits of the day to a kind of little four-four disco beat or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And you know, did, did some version of I as a Tiger, and I just felt so <laughs> oh. sorry for the players in this. You know, they come into this world to play. <laughs> Bartok and Stravinsky and Schoenberg, and they're playing fucking Survivor, the poor sods. But I actually think it kind of does its job in terms of, like, mm. capturing the sort of cheapness, the sort of cheap emotion, the sort of contrived adrenaline or whatever of the Rocky film. I actually think it's a kind of a decent match. Um, my mm. beef with... One well, of my beefs with Rocky, again, as a boxing fan, is just the awfulness of the... the ridiculousness of the boxing scenes. I mean, they're risable. Oh, mm. he, yeah, yeah. fistically over-exit, doesn't he, Stallone? Absolutely. I mean, it's ridiculously. At a time when boxing was fucking amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I know. And then you got this nonsense. You know, it's pretty much like World Wrestling Federation stuff. Really. You know, Very you much so, yeah. Three or four scenes in which people, boxers, are knocked clean off their feet. I can recall <laughs> this happening <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah, in the yeah. same round, you know, and it's just like... You know, with roundhouse punches or whatever, I only saw that once in heavyweight boxing. It was George Foreman in 1973 against Joe Frazier, where he actually does land an uppercut, and you see Frazier actually just jump off his feet. And this, you know, this is happening on a sort of four or five times per round basis in this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a time of Hagler and Hearns and Leonard and Duran and oh, oh no, yeah, absolutely, yeah, I know. 
and Sublime, and these feel, you know, these are wonderful things to watch. You know, these, these, Robert Lindsay. The idea that this is some idealised version of what boxing ought to be, and that the real thing is a bit boring, is absolutely ridiculous. Mm. This is mm. risable. Mm. Also, your boxers, put your fucking dukes up. You know, and it's just like you know, people, mm. you know, the way that like the, 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 you know, the fights sway back and forth, and no one has any idea of like how to sort of conduct a defence. It, it's just just insulting, really. Yeah, and and it's kind of insulting that, you know, Stallone, when he's making the Rocky films, he seeks out people like Joe Frazier for advice and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and and it's not Joe Frazier who ends up with a statue in Philadelphia. It's no. fucking Sylvester Stallone, do you know mm. what I mean? Fucking it's- Philadelphia, what the fuck is wrong with you? Mm. But this song, I mean, it does become just the general kind of motivational anthem, applicable and usable yes. in all kinds of different scenarios. You oh, know, when, yes. when Mike Walker has his short, unhappy reign at Everton, he gets them to ditch Zed cars in favour of Eye of the Tiger. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't work for them. <laughs> you know, but it's that kind of fucking song, isn't it? Mm. Mm. I think I've only seen one Rocky film in my life, which was the original one, when the BBC showed it after the uh, England-Germany semi-final in 1996. Mm -hmm. And I just remember sitting there, pissed up, absolutely maudlin, just looking at it and going, what the fuck are you going on about miracles come true? Mm. Fuck off. (laughs) So I've Mm. never watched another Rocky film, but... After seeing this, I don't have to see Rocky film. I, I, I get everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm. you completely mm. do. It's a really good little capsule of a film. Mm. The thing that jumped out at me was the uh, the images of Stallone all over the magazines and newspapers, particularly the London Examiner, <laughs> uh, which reports on another Rocky victory alongside uh, a news story <laughs> where the headline is Chelsea's friends there, <laughs> which probably had more to do with their supporters than anything <laughs> the team was doing yeah, in yeah. 1982. Mm. World of cricket and the tantalising headline Eagle Farm Today. <laughs> I'd love to know what that's about. Well spotted. Yeah, but the, fil- the films are weird because the films are this weird mix of kind of like almost kitchen sink drama. But the boxing scenes, they're, they're for children. I yeah. mean, there's more realistic action sequences than fucking Scooby-Doo or something. Yeah, absolutely. But great advert, BBC. Yeah, they've done a good job here. They've done the film well. Yes. But immediately, the most captivating thing is not Sly, it's Mr. T. And we want to know more about that guy. And as time will tell, we do get to know more about that guy. I mean, the only good thing I've got to say about Survivor is, uh, and this song, is that Eye of the Tiger was the first song I ever played on Guitar Hero about 15 (laughs) years ago. So, you know, I've got a bit of residual fondness for it. I used to love Guitar Hero. Did you partake, chaps? I I didn't partake. I have heard, though, that this song is a particular joy to play on Guitar Hero. Oh, you know what? It's that chord just after he sings Eye of the Tiger. You know, know, the bit that goes, it's the... Oh, yeah, yeah. And the first time I hit that chord, it's like, oh, man the power of rock compels me (laughs) the best thing you could ever do with guitar hero is have a load of people around and make sure there's one or two musos who are sitting off to the side refusing to get involved Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with their arms folded and faces like smacked asses oh it's not real musicianship you know (laughs) i used to love that Mm. i used to just stare at them while i was playing and go look at me i'm a guitarist everyone (laughs) it was like having your mate who's a fucking carjacker coming around watching you play Grand Theft Auto and going, oh no, it's not like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a total misrepresentation of the art mm. of stealing cars and hitting people. <laughs> and uh, King's going to give himself a pat on the back and, and claim that he introduced Survivor <laughs> to the UK, isn't he? Yeah, you get Survivor, Genesis. Chalk another victory up for JK. <laughs> Two weeks later, 
Eye of the Tiger would run all the way to the top of the marble steps of the American chart, deposing this week's number one, and would stay there for six weeks, eventually being battered to the floor by Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. On the last day of this month, it entered the chart at number 54, rocketed 25 places to number 29, then soared 23 places to number 6 and stalked the number 2 slot for a fortnight before taking down Come On Eileen and spending four weeks at number 1 over here, keeping Save a Prayer by Duran Duran, Private Investigations by Dire Straits and The Bitterest Pill by The Jam off number 1 before yielding the floor to Pass the Dutcher by Musical Youth. Oh, mate. The follow-up, American Heartbeat, got to number 17 in America, but didn't get anywhere near our chart, and they had to rely on Stallone again for their second and final UK hit, when Burning Heart from Rocky IV got to number 5 in March of 1986. The single was nominated for an Oscar, losing to Up Where We Belong, and was nominated for a Grammy, losing to Always On My Mind by Willie Nelson, but received the ultimate accolade when it was covered by Cilla Black in Surprise, (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Have you seen that, Neil? Oh, yeah, thanks for sending that through. Fuck me. (laughs) Unlike many singles of its ilk, it experienced a strange afterlife last decade when all manner of American Republican cunt politicians were sued by the band Mm. for using their song to whip up banjo-twanging inbreds at their rallies. Sticking at number four this week is Asia with Heat of the Moment and jumping over it from number five to number three is John Cougar and Hurt So Good. We cut back to a long shot of the Statue of Liberty while King leans awkwardly on a rail like people do when they're having the photo taken and think they're going to be out of shot. He tells us some more chart info that we're not that interested in before introducing Hurt So Good by John Cougar. Born in Seymour, Indiana in 1951, John Mellencamp was a college student and Roxy Music fanatic who played in the local glam band Trash and left his wife and child behind to pursue a music career in New York in 1974. A year later, he was discovered by Tony DeFries, the founder of Main Man, who had just finished being David Bowie's manager, signed him up to MCA, and he was immediately rushed into the studio to record called his debut LP Chestnut Street Incident but it wouldn't come out for another year and when it did Mellencamp discovered that DeFries thought his name was too Germanic and had it changed to Johnny Cougar Mm. after being dropped by MCA after the LP only sold 12,000 copies and a follow up LP that DeFries refused to shop around to a new label the two parted ways However, Mellencamp was picked up by Billy Gaff, Rod Stewart's manager and the owner of Reva Records in 1978, and he spent a year in London under his wing, changing his name to John Cougar in 1979. 
This is the lead-off cut from his fifth LP, American Fool, which features Mick Ronson on guitar and backing vocals. It came out last April, and it's the single that has finally put him over in America, having jumped nine places to number 20 this week. And here's the video, which was shot in Medora, Indiana. Mm. A place that's uh, currently undergoing a population boom at the minute, chaps. Mm. The last census has the population at a whole 853. <laughs> it's now 635. Somehow they didn't manage to capitalise on the uh, on the tourist value of it being the site of a John Cougar video. <laughs> Mm. It's a horrible video. Oh, is it? Um, yeah, oh, it's fucking just a, it's vile. Mm. He, he, it's one moment where he cakewalks kind of between these lecherous pensioners on bikes who are pouring yes. at his two kind of rock chick dolly he's got with him. It's vile mm. on chains as well. Oh yeah. god, it's horrible. I mean, just the awful smugness of it. Yeah, just running the gauntlet. You know, these appreciative, as you say, sort of um, aging hell's angels. Yeah, the fucking worst looking hell's angel gang in the whole of America. Man, <laughs> yeah. they're the hell's angel version of the orphans. Aren't yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you go over there and knock over their bikes in a domino effect thing, and yeah, what are you going to do? You look shit. But I, I first became aware of, um, well, it was, it was, you know, Johnny Cougar, I think, in an advert in Melody Maker in the late 1970s. Yes, well, yeah, let's, let's address this right now, David. As far as I'm concerned, there is only one Johnny Cougar, and he is the kind of the seminal wrestling map man of Tiger and Scorcher fame, you know, a walking compendium of, like, um, Native American cliches, you know. Hey, hey, sir. That's Johnny Cougar. You, you're he big cunt is what you are yes exactly David <laughs> yeah I mean you might as well call yourself Billy Dane or Skid Solo yeah I just thought it was a pretty good name yes. yeah. you know yes, Roy Race it's just, you know, it's just yeah. not on and then also or Hot Shot Hamish <laughs> absolutely yeah with his song you know when he talked about how well, it just came to me it just seemed like a pretty good title it's already been done Millie Jackson you know mm-hmm. had a hit with this yeah, you yeah. know the idea just just, just, just absolute thief yeah the song's awful terrible substones bollocks the first thing well the second thing after what david correctly said what a knob end he looks <laughs> yeah. he's got yeah, this he dead type black leather waistcoat on with a bandana around his neck and bizarrely he's got cream colored chaps around his jeans which is fucking thick i mean no chap wearer am i but surely the whole point of chaps is to keep the dirt off your trousers so why would you wear light colored ones that's no, well, uh, doesn't I work don't like think that. He's, he, he's not quite worked his look out yet. I still think he's no. got a bit of glamness to him from his early years. But yeah. what he's aiming for here is really something a bit more blue collar, and it ain't working out for him. No, um, at all. No. He, he looks like the worst dressed homosexual <laughs> in the Castro, doesn't he? <laughs> Which was Fred Wedlock's ill-advised yeah. follow-up to his one and only hit. <laughs> Yeah, very much so. He looks awful. He sounds terrible. And as yeah. is the case with much of this bit, this whole Jonathan King bit, you just sat there, a British kid at home, just thinking, when are the charts coming back on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Our, yeah. Charts. our charts. And why haven't, you know, the proper there's so charts. many records they could have played, man. That they mm. could have played. The video consists of him doing a turn with a band of absolute fucking American egg and chippers mm-hmm. before he leads the crappiest motorcycle gang in history and then he walks down Main Street with two women who are clearly not gossip <laughs> and they pretend to enjoy it while they avoid being groped by the rubbish bikers. Mm. This whole segment really feels like there's some sort of cultural necessity for like American white rock and pop that we may not have considered before to yeah. be promoted in the UK. Like yeah, it's almost like yeah. a, some sort of charitable work that's required. Yes, it's ridiculous. We're not exactly. interested. It's shit. <laughs> you know, absolutely. But it's like, won't you give Johnny Cougar a hearing? You know, no. Somewhere 
Johnny Cougar is waiting for your help. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Do you consider yourself a rock and roll singer? Uh, more than an opera singer, I guess, yeah. <laughs> but, but you think rock and roll may be coming to the end of its life? Well, I think rock and roll's a dinosaur. You know, it's been around 20-some years, and I don't know what else they can do new, you know. I mean, you know, synthesizers aren't new, uh, guitars aren't new. I mean, you, know, you only play DGNA so many ways, and that's it, right? If it ain't DGNA, it ain't rock and roll. Well, then what's the next phase? Next phase, I don't know. You know, if I knew, we'd I'd tell you, and we'd go out and do it and be rich, right? John Cougar, thank you very much. We're treated to an interview with Cougar where he pretty much says that rockism is dead, which a young David Stubbs would have been nodding furiously, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. Hey, David. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I say, he, he kind of... Uh, he, he warms me a little bit in this interview. First off, because when Jonathan King says to him, would you consider yourself a rock singer? And there are so many people um, in various sort of across the musical spectrum who would just said, "I just that's just a category. I just defy all categories." No, you're obviously a rock singer. He says as much as you're more than an opera singer, you know. So I don't, you know, that kind of slightly warm to that. And yes, of course, for his prediction that rock was dead. I mean, obviously, his own rock is stillborn and sterile. That's certainly true. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's reasonably kind of honest stuff. I, I, I did slightly warm to him as a result of that interview. But the interview does. Matter- Make the entire record that we've just seen, yeah, just seen entirely cynical, doesn't well, exactly, it? Exactly, I mean, yeah. He, yeah. he doesn't yeah. believe in any of it. It's a load of shit, and I'm just trying to turn a pound off it. <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah Do you want to buy some dealy boppers yeah, off, man? Totally. I mean, it's just like you know when Frank Zappa said, "Jazz is not dead; it just smells funny." And I mean, this is you know a similar sort of thing, really. It smells funny, <laughs> but you know, it's a video from the Heartland, mm. which is going to be shoved up her ass <laughs> over the next few mm, years. Yeah. It's just basically American long eating, mm, isn't mm. it, this place? <laughs> <laughs> so Hurt So Good would eventually spend five weeks at number two in America, unable to dislodge Eye of the Tiger, but did fuck all over here. Right, right. <laughs> However, the follow-up, Jack and Diane, would get to number 25 in the UK in November of this year. His one and only top 40 hit as a solo artist and not even changing his name to John Cougar Mellencamp in 1983 and reverting to John Mellencamp in 1991 could help him much over Mm. here. Okay, back to the American charts. At number two is Rosanna by that fantastic band Toto. And at number one, well, a few months ago, Phil Oakey complained in the press about Top of the Pops wasting time, always looking at the American charts and why did we do it? Well, I'll tell you why we do it. This week's number one in America is a record called Don't You Want Me by the Human League. You were working as a waitress in a King tells us how fantastic Toto are before taking massive offence at Phil Oakey when he spoke for the nation and said that this section of Top of the Pops is absolute cat shit and what's the fucking point of it anyway? Why do we do it, says King? Well, I'll tell you why we do it. This week's number one in America is a record called Don't You Want Me by the Human League. What the fuck is he going Mm. on about? What's that even mean? As if that proves the value of this segment, Mm. you know. And his reported complaints from Phil, they would have had a nation nodding vociferously. Oh, yeah, totally. Especially us pop kids. Yeah, feel 100% correct, yeah. 
And if the charts are just awash, you know, with the British invasion stuff, then the whole section would be superfluous anyway. Yeah, no, the entire purpose of the section is to, is to showcase people like Juice Newton and Johnny Cougar that no one is interested in. Phil yeah. is absolutely right. When Phil's talking, you usually get some sense. We've already covered this single, the Christmas number one of 1981, the biggest selling single that year in the UK, and the fifth best selling single of the 80s in chart music number 49. Since then, it's been handed down to less modern and cutting-edge countries such as America, and my God, it's driven them synth-pop crazy. And this week, Don't You Want Me has shoved the piano that Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder were sitting on right off the top of Mount Popmore and taken its rightful place as America's number one. Yes, fuck Ebony and Ivory. It's all black plastic and white plastic now, isn't it? <laughs> me and Neil have already covered this. Mm. Uh, so, David, your thoughts? I mean, this song is its like a sort of, it's more than a hit. It's like a sort of fact of life these days. It's... Is just absolutely preserved, mm. but obviously at the time, I think that um, the words synth pop were inevitably followed or preceded by the word disposable, and I think the idea that mm. they were they were the sort of the dealy boppers of their, um, you know, yes. of the charts or whatever, and the, the, the things that would truly last the ages would be the great sort of stone and metal edifices of like Prague or or the kind of current relevant works by like the Tigers of Pantang, all of which are just fallen to dust really in the public memory. And what has actually endured mm. is the synth pop, it's Depeche Mode or, or Human League, you know. And here's yeah. an absolutely prime example of it, you know, that this is disposability is absolutely not. Yeah, I think just what I love about this point of Human League, though, is is the takeover of when you know Joanne Catherine and Susan Sully when they come in, and and I think that they almost force the issue. Maybe sort of, I, don't, I think it's something that they're very kind of conscious of wanting to do, that they represent themselves, that they are what the Human League are about. They are at the absolute essence of it. It's not Joe Callis, it's not Adrian on the slide, it's not any of the other kind of musicians that came in and out. It's them. They are. The pop essence, the sort of the smash, you know, the sort of slightly kind of uncoordinated dancing, a certain spirit of smash hitsness of popular music in the 1980s, and that has endured right through. And they're still touring now; they're still on the road. Yeah, just the absolute durability of it, I think, is just a great thing. So once again, the whole artifice of this section has been completely exposed because, hey, look, mm. here's that thing that you all bought seven, eight months ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is basically a section that reduces a 40-minute show to a half-hour show of relevance, really. Mm. And and look at what they could have won. Look at what they could have been playing mm. um, yeah. in the 10 minutes that we get here. When I look at the chart... Right, five minutes. Well, five minutes. Okay, but... Uh, but it feels like 10. It feels like 10. When I look at the charts and when I look at the records in there, Japan, Hot Chocolate, even Dollar, fuck it, Adam mm. Hunt, Soft Cell, Bow Wow Wow, ABC, Visage, Roxy... Just, I mean, fuck it. In fact, never mind other good records in the charts. They would have been better off just giving imagination five minutes. Just yeah. give them five minutes. Do what the fuck you like, mm. Lee. Do whatever you like. Free swim. That would have been better. <laughs> or get Jeffrey Daniel out and say, right, show us in real slow motion how you do that backside. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That would have been more value to the nation than yeah. this shit. Mm. So Don't You Want Me would spend three weeks at number one in America, giving way to Eye of the Tiger, and, as in the UK, would be their only number one in the USA. Well, we may have lost the colonies, but at least we've still got the number one record in the American charts. From Jonathan King at Independence Day Parade in New York, back to the studio. 
A fantastic achievement, that, for the human league. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan King was going through the European number ones, and at that time, Trio were number one in Austria and Switzerland. And now they have a hit in the UK, and here they are with Da Da Da. You don't love me, I don't love you. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Next to a zoo wanker with all glitter in her hair that makes it look like she's been involved in some Cyberman bacaca <laughs> gives the human league a pat on the back. I-, I think that woman is definitely using glitter spray, which was one yes. of the adverts that would be seen on Channel 4 in its first year and was absolutely fucking hammered to death, man. <laughs> you know the one that goes, you got a glitter, just keep this spray 18 beautiful inches away, you glitter girl. <laughs> That was on all the time. It was that mm-hmm. and them adverts for Freddie Barrett's off-licences, which mm-hmm. were fucking mad, which no one outside of London had the slightest clue what was being advertised. <laughs> it was just this middle-aged bloke gnawing on a massive bone or d- doing something <laughs> mad. Good old Channel 4. Mm. He then goes on to virtually claim full responsibility on behalf of Top of the Pops for the success of the next single, Da 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 by Trio. Formed in Bremerhaven, West Germany in 1966, McBeats were a band put together by vocalist Stefan Remier and guitarist Gert Krawinkel, who were heavily influenced by Das Roland Stonen. <laughs> After changing their name to Just Us, they became a regular feature on the North German beat combo circuit, but split up in 1969. Undeterred, Remy and Crawwinkle formed a folky prog band called Crawwinkle, which signed to Phillips and put out two LPs before splitting up in 1972, which led to the two of them spending the rest of the 70s as teachers. In 1979, however, they decided to have another go and recruited Peter Behrens, a veteran of the Hamburg scene who was in the krautrock band Silberbart before attending the Milan Circus School and was currently working as a clown and pantomime artist. After renting a house in a hamlet in Lower Saxony and moving in together, they pieced together their debut LP, recording it in the cellar. After shopping it around 23 different labels and being rejected by 23 different labels, they found a champion in Klaus Vormann. Yes, that Klaus Vormann, mate of the Beatles and bassist of Manfred Mann, who had seen them in concert and recommended them to his mate, who was the German A&R manager for Phonogram. After signing to Phonogram and being given Vorman as their producer, they commenced work on an LP called Trio, which came out in West Germany in October of 1981. While touring the LP around at assorted record shops across the country, they wrote and played out this song, which leaned heavily on the teenage spod lust object of the age, the Casio VL1 which was retailing in W.H. Smith at the time for £39.95, pence, <laughs> which is about 163 in today's rubbish money. <laughs> they were so knocked bandy by the response, they immediately pegged it over to Zurich to borrow Yellow Studio and knock it out as a single. 
It was put out in West Germany in the spring of 1982 and immediately shot up the charts, getting to number two but being unable to dislodge Der Commissar by Falco and Ambition Freedom by Nicole, but it spread like wildfire through Europe, getting to number one in Switzerland and Austria and lodging itself in the top ten from Norway all the way down to that there Spain. Three weeks ago, on Top of the Pops, Jonathan King presented his segment from Madrid so he could show off that he was at the World Cup and you weren't, but also to break down the Euro charts, and they played 30 seconds of Da 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 to the UK, after which Simon Bates went so far as to say, well, we reckon at Top of the Pops that Trio, if that record was released in this country, could be a British number one. As we all know, Simon Bates's word is bond. And when it was released over here at the beginning of the month, it entered the chart at number 54. And this week it soared 24 places to number 30. And here they are in the studio with Top of the Pops pushing Das Boot out to put them <laughs> over. And oh, chaps, all is well with the world again because this performance is skill on so many levels. Oh, and I don't even know where to start with it's it. It's magnificent. Isn't it, it, it just? It's one of the most memorable Top of the Pops appearances of the entire first half of the decade, I would say. Yes. Mm. On an episode where Jeffrey Daniels done his pieces, fucking hell, we're spoiled tonight. Mm. Obviously, we have to give the floor over to uh, to the rock expert, the author of Future Days, a definitive book on kraut rock, and uh, Mars by Nineteen Eighty, which does likewise for electronic music. Come on, David. Thank you. All right, here we go. Well, I, perhaps um, I'm going to sort of drop a bit of lukewarm water here, just based on oh. well, just based <laughs> on how I felt about this at the time, because you know I was a, I was pretty fierce about my my music and I was actually hoping to like this more than I actually did because it was it was European and it was kind of mentioning Dada and we already touched on my passion for Dada. Mm. You know, this is terrible, Al. I realise I perhaps don't have any kind of sense of humour. I've always no. thought I was one of the chaps, you know, game for a laugh and all that, you know, mm. a chuckle. But what happened? It was like this. Um, I've long been an admirer of the great Dadaist sculptor, poet. Um, Jean Arp, also known as Hans, mm. um, also his wife, Sophie Teuber Arp, um, who yeah. exhibited at the Tate Modern recently. Right. Since about 1981, I've been aware of like the Dada movement. Of, but I was listening to this Danny Baker podcast recently, and for mm. some reason he was discussing you know, this great artist. And the first thing he said, he says, like, his name's Hans Arp. I mean, what's funny about that? And I think, shit, that's funny, isn't it? Hands up, of course. You know, Ottawa, hands up, me. No. Oh, my God. And in 40-odd years, I didn't get this. It never occurred to me that this is funny. So I just feel terrible. I feel like possibly, you know, as I say, I've always thought of myself as having a lighter side and all that. But I have no sense of humour at all. Um, oh, terrible, man. terrible business. But this song. Right. What's up with it, David? Why don't you like it? What the fuck's wrong with you? I don't know. Because so, obviously... Why with my... do you hate Germans? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I love Germans. But I think, I don't know, as it kind of progresses in this kind of willfully enervated way, you know, with this kind of ticking deadpan Casio, I just think, what would Hans Arp, baby Hans Arp, have made of this? I don't <laughs> think that he would have felt that this is the true Dada spirit. There's something else that perhaps they're just sort of exploiting the reductiveness of, you know, of the Dada moniker or whatever. So I felt a bit stern about that. Also, I I just felt that at this point, 
a lot of groups that were kind of operating in in a post-punk era in Germany and having this kind of sort of brutalist sort of neo-krautrock type thing going on in a sense. And mm. and all of a sudden it was getting codified as the Neue Deutsche Welle. And, right. and I always think that like this, with its kind of quirkiness, was a sign that things were just about to go wrong and we were all going to get a bit 99 red balloons any second. Mm. Oh, he's um, having a go at fucking Nana now. I know, exactly. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. I just, I don't know, I just felt a bit like, you know, when people like Nick Kershaw and, you know, and Howard Jones rocked up in 1983 and I thought, this is the end of something here. Um, so I kind of felt a little bit embittered about it on that basis, I guess. I didn't th- I thought it should have, never mind trio, I thought it should have been da-da-da, D-A-F is who I thought should have been enjoying this kind of pop. And mm. D-A-F at this time, um, so you mentioned Nicole, um, a little a little bit of peace, or whatever it's called, a little piece. A little piece. A little piece, yeah, which won the Eurovision Song Contest that year. Yes. DAF immediately came out with their own repost, Ambition Krieg, A Little War. You know, and I just thought, that's what oh. you know, that's the stuff <laughs> to give the troops. And, um, yeah, and so I, I suppose I just found all, all of this under kind of the quirky roboticisms and all that, and I thought, no, no, Kraftwerk do that properly and more thoroughly and better. Also, you're not DAF. And so I think I kind of, sort of resented it on that basis. Yeah. Um, but... Obviously, now you can perhaps appreciate from afar the strangeness of it, the audacity of it. Nevertheless, you know, perhaps I'm sort of setting, you know, like setting up high hurdles and strict standards or what have you. Um, I just suppose I can never quite get over that initial disappointment, you know. No, I can, I can completely understand that. Mm. Um, you know, um, at the age you were, David, you know, yeah. elitism yeah. is a big part of, of, uh, totally of listening. Annoying. Absolutely. I mean, for me as a kid, obviously, nine, ten years old, the, if we can just talk about the record before we even get mm. on to the performance. Yes. The record on the radio had already, you know, entranced me really, mainly because that that Casio beat, oh. that was, you know, it's both melody and rhythm, but the, more importantly, it's accessible to me. Mm. Yes. I can go into Dixon's and I can press buttons yes. and make that sound wow. happen, you know. Yeah, and yeah. also, it my might s- not be the sound of the street in 1982, <laughs> but it's definitely the sound of the high street. And yes, <laughs> yeah. Neil, like me, utterly infectious to yeah. people of our age, massively mm. reachable. You know, we had some of these keyboards in our school in the music room, so so there was that as well. Oh, uh, you jammy bastards! I know, jammy bastards. But that uh, a massive pop hit could be hinged around something so simple was it was a real revelation to me because since you know in the hands of people like human league etc they were everywhere i looked but they always seemed kind of impossibly expensive you know used Mm. by technicians and here they're being used by people who definitely aren't slick in a way and they're being used in an almost childish and infantile way in terms of the expertise needed um it's a really mind-blowingly kind of minimal thing but it's yeah. immediately arresting because of that sound when you're a kid. It's a real earworm. And, and so the, every element that then gets blended in on that basis, um, you know, the basic rock and roll guitar that we hear, and of course the motif melodically that ends up getting played on the Casio, they become mm. big pop moments. And that's yes. the thing. It's a big pop smash made out of very small moments. The only record it reminds me of in that regard is something like The Flying Lizards. It's, mm. it's one of those records that's right on a tightrope. It's totally catchy pop magic but it's also showing you the nuts and bolts in a way it's like this kind of wizard of oz revealing um method of production you know and and, and of course inviting the question even as a kid are we getting played by this record do you know what i mean Mm. are are we getting caught so it's an amazing record for for a little child Mm. um but the great thing about, I think, this performance is that everything good about it, including its, its odd stance somewhere between sort of despair and a smile, it's accentuated by Top of the Pops. Yes, it is. Hurl completely goes along with oh, the weirdness, yes. which is really lovely to see. The VL1 sound. It's one of those sounds that kids 
fucking go mental for? <laughs> We're four years away from that beat that happens in the first round of 3-2-1, which kids always used to get up and dance to. Mm-hmm. We're about four months away from hearing the countdown bit for the first yeah, time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah this yeah. is a golden age for bleepy bloopiness. <laughs> bleepy bloopiness, yeah, mm. exactly, exactly. Michael Hill's mm. played an absolute blind here, so let's break it all down. So, first of all, for the first time in the whole episode, they've actually let us see the kids. They're all sitting around the band in a horseshoe, holding up pieces of card with faces drawn on them. And that's giving off some severe vibes of the opening credits of Rolf on Saturday OK. Yeah. <laughs> which was produced by Michael Hill, of course. Oh. But we can still see them peeking out from behind the cards. Yeah. And, and they look a million times better than the zoo wankers. Oh, too mm. bloody right, yeah. I mean, there's one lad who you think's part of the band at the beginning because of the camera angle. And he's got a Theatre of Hate logo stenciled on the arm of his leather jacket. He's sitting behind a girl who is the absolute dead spit of a teenage Rose West. (laughs) There's loads of miniskirts on the girls which are coming back into vogue. Mm. And there's one white girl with dreads. You know, this is months before Do You Really Want to Hurt Me becomes a hit. Yeah. And there's one bloke who's a bit older and he looks the dead spit of Mick Mills, who's just come back from Spain. So, yeah, there's Mm. a lot going on just with the audience. Yeah, and I wonder Mm. about those pictures that they're holding up. I sort of started assuming, and I think I did at the time that the audience had been asked to draw pictures of themselves that's what i thought yeah and i'm not sure what point that makes but i loved its oddity and and its boldness well Mm. according to someone on youtube who was there the kids were given the portraits which had already been done and were conjoled into getting involved basically saying if you want to see yourself on telly you hold this card up it's pretty clear that about two or three different people have have done the artwork yeah i think that goes with the image on the t-shirt that stefan romey is wearing which is the cover of uh, the single right, which yeah, is yeah. you know childish drawings of the band yeah yeah mm. feeding mm. into that dada thing a little bit but i mean yeah, yeah, yeah. and making it appear that the the kids are part of the band yeah definitely and mm. i remember the response to this especially in the smash it's letters page and stuff being mm. about how ugly trio are right Mm. and you know because they're not tarted up they're not made up like everyone else is in this episode no they are i wouldn't say they're ugly but if they are ugly they're ugly in a way that we've not seen on top of the pop since really punk since since the kind of punk era yes you know and and that in itself they're kind of unmade up unoutfitted sort of what the fuckness Mm. is kind of revelatory in itself you know and you've also got you've got so much else going on in this performance you know yeah the top of the pops videos screen's been brought out of storage in order to show us the lyrics and there's a robot dancer in a boiler suit who is neither tick or tock he's a black dancer so yeah black robots good lord is that not daniel do you reckon that might have been daniel oh no 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 you sure yeah well, look, when I watched it, I chose to think it was him. No, well, we're, that's what we're saying now, then. <laughs> no. I think what you guys are saying really makes sense, and it's another reminder as well as <clears throat> of our age gap. as like father of the chart music house who realised what an old git I am. And, <laughs> and I was like probably a bit 10 years too old, too old even at this point, in a sense. Um, um, you know, I think w- w- what you say does make sense. I mean... Obviously, what they they are doing is it, it is an act of, sort of deconstruction. It's sort of stripping mm. things back yeah, to yeah. element, and also it's a kind of anti pop thing going on. So meta pop is almost like Definitely, it's like a Brechtian yeah. thing going on. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I don't love you. You don't love me. It, it's all shades of like um, you know, is it peaceful? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dribble wedge in the vegetation. I think it wasn't it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, nineteen eighty two is the most German year. 
mm. uh, in British culture, isn't it? The, you know, Kraftwerk, number one with a model, uh, high mats, dust boots. Mm. Oh, it's all going on. Yeah. We're, mm. we're finally opening up to... Uh, to our German cousins. But every, yeah. time, every time I watch this clip, something inexplicable catches me. I mean, this time yes. it was the parasol behind the drummer. Yes. Why the fuck mm. is that there? And one other thing I noticed, which might seem like a tiny detail, but let's face it, chart music's all about tiny details. It's Definitely. the fact that the singer chews gun was a big deal mm-hmm. for me. I thought that was so cool. I, I, the only other person I remember chewing gum a lot was obviously Paul Weller, who always yes. seemed to chew gum. Um, he might have nicked that habit from Nick Lowe. Mm. And there's also that great bit, of course, when, uh, you know, something you just wouldn't see pre-Watershed at all. Oh, now, God, yeah, yeah, when the guitarist um, sparks up a fag. Um, yes. off stage and purchased it on his guitar string and then that don't work mm. so he lights up another one these yeah. are odd things for a Top of the Pops performance and you know yes. I'm sure Trio perhaps just did what came naturally but by doing that mm. they've made something really memorable really memorable mm. I don't know about that Neil because being Germans they would have seen a lot of Top of the Pops yeah, throughout that's the 70s true. That is true, because yeah. Music Laden and all, all, all the Top and Poppin' shows were always showing Top of the Pops clips. So they, they would have come to this knowing what was expected of mm. them mm. and what they could do to, to put themselves over. Yeah. yeah. yeah but yeah. yeah, I mean, the band looks sinister as fuck. And you're mm. right, I was getting a lot of punk vibes off it. Yeah. As we mentioned when we do punk era episodes of Top of the Pops, there was always that element of the singer just staring at the camera yeah. and shitting up children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And we get that here. Stefan Remier, he looks like Glossich, who's the, the scabby outsider in High Mat. Mm. He's in a, a shapeless black suit with a brooch on his lapel shaped like a woman's arse mm. over a trio band T-shirt, which he kind of like flashes at, at one point, and a big inside pocket so he can whip out the Casio VL1. But halfway through singing one of the lines, he just snarls at the camera. He does. He does, but it never mm. feels... And it's fucking brilliant. The thing is, the crucial thing is, it never feels mean-spirited. No. I, I mean, I, I read an interview with Trio by Gary Bushell, I think. And, right. and you know, it, 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 their English isn't great. Neither is Gary Bushell's, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but at one point, the lead singer does say, you know, the word we use for our music is frolic, which is near to your cheerfulness. Right. That's what he says. Mm. And he says, you know, we're the first of German new wave orientated bands who put entertainment into the act in little gags. Mm. Uh, he says before everything was only frustration and anger. We make rock and roll with entertainment, but it's more like a cynical cheerfulness where you don't know mm. whether to laugh or cry. There's a black mm. humor to it. Yeah. And he also says, by the way, um, we don't want to be lumped in the same bag as Grupo Sportive or Haircut 100, who are only entertainment with nothing to refer to. Ooh. So they're not pure pop, but they're also not mm. scowly punk. That There's a kind of in-betweenness to the, to the record and, and mm. this performance that, as a yeah. kid, certainly you don't know where to put this in your mind or no. file it. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's always a memorable moment, you know. Yeah. I mean, also... It's one of those things, you know, you've got like John Cleese and the Germans, you Germans have no bloody sense of humour. <laughs> and yet again, yet again, especially through the media music, you know, German, there, is, there is a profound and sly sense yes, of humour. Yes. Not only a sense of humour, but a sense of humour of which British acts or whatever actually wouldn't be capable. Mm. I mean, and humour has a way of enhancing a lot of great German music, like yeah. Kraftwerk, like mm. DAF, you know. Mm. Objectively now, I, I can see that it, it, it was a very, very special thing and it mm. was, you know, it, it is an occasion. I still feel that if somehow or other DAF 
or Dear Plan, or even Baby Helen Tonehausen, if they'd have gone on top of the pops, it might have been even more blind. Oh, God, yeah. Mind-blowing. Yeah, that's, that's the <laughs> yeah. thing. Didn't write a hit record, though, did they, David? Yeah, yeah well, this is true. Unless <laughs> <laughs> you got Dear Mussolini, you know, but, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, Gert Kravinkel, he, he looks like an absolute Krautrock refugee, doesn't he? Mm. Wearing faded double denim and a Where's Wally hat, and yes, his bit is lighting up the fag. Mm in the studio and screwing it into a springy cigarette holder on his headstock. Yeah. Which, again, would get him flung straight out of sparks. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Behrens, the drummer, he's come as a skinhead Tintin, essentially, hasn't mm. he? <laughs> in a white T-shirt and incredibly thick red braces. And he kicks his bass drum at the beginning. Uh, looks like he's wearing a pair of kickers. And then in a heartless plunge of the dagger into the hearts of the English pop-crazed youngsters and Mick Mills, who's in the fucking studio. <laughs> he brandishes a Telstar football with thank you yeah, written man. on it and uh, then just smiles right. really fucking evilly. <laughs> yeah. A clear dig right. over West Germany topping their second-round yeah, group absolutely. Yeah. three days previously. I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned right at the start about, was it McBeat? And, and, and the fact that 1966, the kind of group they would have been in, I mean, Trio, in a sense, precede and succeed Krautrock, um, mm. because Krautrock, was actually part of it, was a response to the fact that, like, so many German groups were simply aping the Beatles, yeah. the Rattles, yeah, yeah. people mm. like that. It was almost like a sort of cultural martial plan that was going on. They felt, look, you know, we're Germans, we're creative. We need to sort of find something, you know, original of our own that isn't just sort of following ang- Anglo-American orthodoxies. You know, it's actually vital as part of our post-war regeneration. You know, they're kind of mm. thinking in those musical terms. And so it's hard, you know, that they should have been part of all of that and, of course, have the Klaus Vormann connection uh, to exacerbate that. But then, yes. yeah, and then, but then come out and be, and be part of almost, I suppose I do think of it as, as the point where sort of post-punk West German moment was perhaps just beginning as much as it was in the UK was just beginning to sort of fade um, mm. but um, so yeah so perhaps I bring you know sort of a, a certain amount of begrudging baggage to trio that they don't merit so I'm glad that you chaps uh, you know and get the joy mm. of it. Well, I mean, part of what gets this across to me as a kid is actually Hurl, actually. Mm. I have to say this, that, you know, that we, we've often talked about Hurl being uh, sort of l- overlooking a, a slight golden age, but also we've picked out the things that he did wrong. Mm. But what he did right, I don't think what he did right was tell bands what to do. No. He just did that perfect thing of putting things in place mm. yeah. and letting accidents happen a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they would have pitched up and he would have said, look, we've got this for you. We, do, we want to do this, we want to do that, we want to do that. You cool with it? Good, let's do it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, yeah. and this is where magic happens Yes, in living rooms. You know? Yeah, that's the very, very, very dada, you know, the element of chance. Yeah. I was on a German exchange in the spring of this year. You know, I'd have been back mm-hmm. about six or so weeks ago. Hand on heart, I can't remember hearing it once when I was in Germany, which is fucking mental. Maybe it was played out by then, Al. Maybe it was like a done deal. Maybe it was. But when it was on top of the pot three weeks ago, just 30 seconds of it, it fucking rocked the fucking playground to its foundations. I remember one of my mates, Daryl, (laughs) just saying, have you heard that song that just goes, da, 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 da. Yeah, it's fucking mad, isn't it? And we got it instantly, of course, but, you know, mm. as as we've already pointed out, it, it created an absolute generation gap, mm. even with someone who's only a bit older than, like, David, mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. you know. Our yeah, parents no, fucking hated it and started mm. wondering who won the war anyway. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is a record that would be held up as kind of, is this even music? Yes. You know, it, it's I, that kind of I, I do have to yeah. be distinguished from members of that generation because, of course, as we know, I am a very rarefied soul in terms of Mario Fine's aesthetics. Yeah. So <laughs> we can point, you know, since no one else is going to point that out, you know, I just thought I would. <laughs> yeah. Well, a letter in the Daily Mirror soon afterwards, which I dug up, uh, entitled, What a Load of Da, Da, Da. Mm. I couldn't believe it when I saw the German group trio on top of the pops pointing to the words of their hit song, Da, 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 on a board. Oh, for the songs of my childhood. Why can't today's composers write such happy numbers as Keep Your Sunny Side Up, Happy Days Are Here Again, or The Sunny Side of the Street? <laughs> Yours sincerely, R.M. Lord, Rochford, Essex. Ah, mm. oh, fuck off, Grandad. <laughs> yeah. Kids live in it. Anything else to say about this? It will always be returned to da da da, I think, when something needs to be summoned, i.e. this kind of futurism that failed. If yes. You like. And and you know, like Slang Tang, it's it's a rhythm that's a melody that's a whole record mm. in a yes. way. And, and it's, God, it's yeah, kind of same age, year, you know? isn't it? Yeah, same year. I'm shocked that we didn't hear more of that sound on records. All I can think of at the same time is the Bubble Bunch by Jimmy Spicer. Mm. And that was sampled by uh, Delight for Who Was That? Mm, mm. And, of course, Poor Georgie by MC Light, that, which is fucking devastated. When that yeah. kicks in, man. Oh. Yeah, but most musicians, you see, they'd be getting better kit than a Casio, one of those little Casios. Whereas yeah. Trio, they're deliberate. I don't want to call them fucking pranksters because that makes them sound awful. Mm. But they're deliberately going for the cheapest thing you can mm. get. Yes. Um, and, that's, and it's yeah. great when he just pulls that out and holds it close to his face, go, look at me, look what I'm using. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, two absolute landmark performances on the same episode of Top of the Pops, and an example of Michael Hull getting it absolutely right. Absolutely. Yeah. Hats off, yeah, sir. Definitely. So the following week, Da 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 soared another twenty-three places to number seven, and the week after that, it jumped to number two, held off the top spot by fame. It would go on to be number one in New Zealand and South Africa and sell 13 million copies worldwide. And a week after this episode, in the wake of Italy beating West Germany in the World Cup final, Italio Chancer's Masters put out Mundial Da Da Da. Hmm. Not very good. The follow-up... Anna Let Me In, Let Me Out only got to number 113 over here and they returned to being a German-only concern, splitting up in 1984. But the song lived on, ending up on an Ariston advert in 1987, then a Volkswagen advert in America in 1997, and an unpar version was deployed by Pepsi for an ad campaign during the 2006 World Cup. Mm. Sadly, Stefan Remia is the only surviving member of the band. Oh. What a shame. Yeah. I just imagine just living on a sort of island. Even though it was 13 million sales. I just imagine just, mm. you know, at the end of um, Trading Places, that island they all retire to. Or a massive luxury apartment block shaped like a Casio. <laughs> <laughs> Now, 
why wasn't that the German entry to the Eurovision Song Contest, we wonder? That's Trio, this week at number 30, in our top 30. Right, Odyssey, stay at number 3 with Inside Out. Back with the zoo wankers, including the one I hate the most. Some twat with a tash and a bouffant, with what looks like Hulk Hogan's thong around his head. Regrets the fact that Da 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 wasn't the West German entry for Eurovision, while Hulk Hogan thong twat blows a kiss at us. I hate him, I've seen him on previous <laughs> yeah. episodes of Chart Music, <laughs> and I've always wanted to mention him, but he's not done anything yet, and now he has. I love the fact you have a most hated Zoom. You've think- got to, haven't you? Have you got one, Neil? I think it might be him, I think it yeah. might be the same guy, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you had a particular dislike for that horrible smile smug twat dressed up as Dracula in that yes. Halloween episode. Yes. I haven't seen him since. <laughs> up next, Inside Out by Odyssey. Formed in Stamford, Connecticut in 1975 from the ashes of the Lopez sisters, Odyssey consisted of Louise and Lillian Lopez and a rotating cast of male singers before settling on Bill McEachin, who immediately jumped on that disco train and rode it all the way to Chartland. In 1977, they lifted a track from Frankie Valli's latest LP, Native New Yorker, and had a whopping hit with it, getting to number five for two weeks in January of 1978. But management problems and an attempt to move away from disco resulted in two years in the wilderness until they roared back in 1980 with Use It Up and Wear It Out, which got to number one over here for two weeks in July of that year. This is the follow-up to It Will Be Alright, which got to number 43 in September of 1981. It's the lead-off cut from their new LP, Happy Together, and was written by Jesse Ray, the Scottish braveheart of funk, mm. who was working with Bernie Worrell in the P-Funk band Space Cadets. Mm. They're apparently backed up by Slave, the Dayton funk band best known for having ah. Steve Arrington as their lead singer, okay. and it's entered the top 40 at number 18 a fortnight ago, and this week it's jumped four places from number 7 to number 3. This fucking group and this fucking song. Mm. Chaps, Al Simons made mention of certain songs that while you're hearing them is the best single of all time. And I've got to say this is one of mine. And I was shocked to hear it on an episode of Top of the Pops as late as 1982 because I always peg it two years earlier at least. Mm. And the way Odyssey look is kind of (laughs) a date as well, especially the chap. Oh, God, yeah. He looks like it could be from, yeah, 78, 77 sort of era. Yeah, totally. I was just going to say that. It's party for Oxy. They haven't sort of, um, yeah, drunk the old um, Shalimar Kool-Aid yet. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. No, this is their last ever appearance on Top of the Pops, though. Yes, mm. but what a way to go out. Oh, yeah, their mm. last top 40 here. But you think of the run from Native New Yorker to this. It's amazing. But, I mean, for me, it's not actually this record that is my favourite Odyssey. I think it's... Um, I cannot get over looking for a way out. I fucking yeah. love that record. Mm. Yeah. Um, mm. I can't forget that. But, th- yeah, they're, they're so great, Odyssey. Lillian Lopez, yeah, what a fucking voice. And she's also, in mm. this performance, she does this thing she repeatedly does, actually. Um, remember when I was telling you... About, 
way back when, I think probably the first chart music I ever did, how scared I was of Kate Bush and her wide yes. eyes. Lillian Lopez does that all the time as well. Um, <laughs> it's really quite <laughs> creepy. But um, yeah, this is a wonderful record. Wonderful record. Mm. Like you say, Odyssey are clearly not 1982 people. Mm. The Lopez sisters are 47 and 49 respectively. And they're there wearing very ornate dresses mm. uh, in the Lopez sisters. Uh, Almost looks like a sari. Mm. Yes, mm. I was going to yeah, say yeah. that. Yeah. So they're wearing that. And uh, Bill McEachin's come as Big Bill Werbenuk, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah. In his snooker outfit. And they're, they're doing not much of anything. There's no real... There's a, 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 a kind of a cursory wave at a routine. Mm. But who gives a toss? The exactly. single is exactly. doing all the work. Exactly. It's a glorious it single. Is. And I, I really wouldn't want it any other way than it is. The only slightly disappointing thing was actually old David Jensen's intro, old kid's intro. He just says, um, Odyssey, you built up a large fan base in the UK because they're constantly touring. Mm. That's it. I thought you were going to get a quip or something like that, a really half-assed Noel Edmonds type quip or something like that, or yeah. just, um, of the sort he's been sort of attempting throughout the show. I just thought it was a strangely flat. It's a very, very boring fact indeed. Really, it's only barely a fact. Mm. Really, um, that's the only note of disappointment. This is a beautiful, magnificent single, mm. and the fact that I mean, Slave, who were fantastic. You know, they're really sort of undersung as Slave. Um, yeah, their involvement is is great. I just just love- a touch of love is a fucking tune. Oh, it's a fucking tune, man. Did that ever get in charge? Here. We're never going to see that on top of the pops, are we? No, no, we're not. absolutely Gutting. brilliant. We're yeah, not. yeah, watching you, all that kind of stuff. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, absolutely excellent. I mean, I just love the way that the, the slap bass keeps sort of picking, which really sort of high and keeps sort of um, mm. popping up through the mix. You know, there's actually something strangely understated in a sense about about the whole vocal performance. It's, yeah. it's enigmatic in a sense, mm. but all praise to Jesse Ray. Oh, God, yes. What a character. I mean, like, he lived in America for a while. He was he became a runner in the New York Stock Exchange just yeah. to sort of make his money with that. And that's how he met Roger Trout and Bernie Warren. And obviously made such a strong impression on them. You know, oh, he made, yeah. when he did his own solo stuff in the late 80s, they all sort of dutifully came out to the Highlands, whatever, and, mm. and performed on these videos that he did. And, and Yeah, um, over the sea. Mentioned before, fucking amazing. That's right, yeah. That I mean, should have been a hit. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan King should have been sent up to Scotland to fucking yeah, totally, yeah. do, do his bit. <laughs> and I just love the fact that, you know, he just didn't hold back. There was so much kind of sort of Scottish, you know, wet, wet, wet type sort of white soul at the moment. And I thought, no, this mm. is what you want. You want, yeah. you know, absolutely mega funky, but unapologetically Scottish as Jesse yeah. was. Yeah. Scottish people are fucking mad into funk, though, aren't they? Yeah, if you absolutely. Met, if, if, when I was in yeah. London, if I ever met a Scottish person... It would be about a 75% chance that we'd end up talking about Sly and the Family Stone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I went to that Sly and the Family Stone gig in Bournemouth, fucking hell, about 12 years ago. And I just ran into a, a, a gang of proper meaty Scottish lads from Glasgow. And they were fucking mint. We were gabbling on for ages about funk and what we were into and what we grew up on and all that kind of stuff. They'd had a hotel room. I was planning on sleeping out on the beach and getting the first train home. He says, nah, come back. Come back to the hotel. We'll get pissed up. It was like, yeah, fucking brilliant. And I lost their phone number and I've always wanted to thank them. So if they are listening, respect to you, my dears. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this song is rightly revered and beloved and very, very well known. Oh. But I would definitely encourage anybody to seek out anything by Jesse Ray on YouTube or whatever. Yes. And just, you know, in his full kilt and regalia and um, armour and whatnot. And, um, mm. but, you know, it's, as you say, it's an absolutely logical link. And I just thought it was an absolutely brilliant riposte to all that kind of Marty Pelloism and, you know, that type of that was emanating from Scotland at the time, you know. But mm. um, um, it's, it's such also politically, he's so strange because basically, obviously, 
as you can imagine, he's a Scottish mm. nationalist, is mm. uh, Jesse Ray. But he wants to take it further. He, first of all, he wants Scotland to get its independence and then for the sort of Scottish border regions, you know, Berkshire, to declare their independence <laughs> from the rest of Scotland, you know, I think. Blimey. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's on a mission. This record, you kind of don't want it to end. Um, you do need it to end in mm. the context of Top of the Pops, but whenever I listen to it, it's like, I don't know, I know it's not looped in on itself, but it almost is. You don't want it to end because the lyrics, they've got no narrative to them. It's about those first few weeks of love when you're so bound up with someone. It's amazing, this record. Well, it's a bit more than that, Neil. It's about um, being in love with someone who's with someone else Well, at the yeah, moment. there's that as well. <laughs> but it's, it's yeah. It, yeah, it's just this beautiful, gaseous, glowing, kind of beautiful thing. It, it's just full of desire, mm. this record. Yeah. And it's just mm. unrequited desire, but a lovely place to be. You just don't want it to end. Yes. You know? mm. Yeah, the, the bit where it goes it's, it's, in, it, yeah. side, out, and the bass goes fucking mental. Mm. It's just like, no, c- can we have this for like half an hour? <laughs> and again, it's another example of Britain adopting and cherishing American songs that can't get played in their own country because disco sucks. Mm. Fuck mm. off. Mm. Absolutely. And it's as funky as it is soulful. Yeah. And yes. as soulful as it is funky, and that sounds almost trite, but... There's not an awful lot you can say that about, and that perhaps yeah. might be something that is extinct these days. It may it may not be actually possible mm. for whatever you know in time to make a record like this. It belongs, you know, it's obviously it's eternal, but it belongs to all of its era. Could it only really be made at a certain yeah. time? And yeah. coming after Jonathan King telling us that the Americans we should be listening to a Juice fucking Newton and John Cougar, you know, I yes, know. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, the standout song of this episode for One me. Of them, mm. Thank mm. fuck. It's still early enough in the episode that I wouldn't have missed it. Yeah, of course. Mm. Of course. So Inside Out would spend one more week at number three, its highest position. The follow-up, Magic Touch, stalled at number 41 in September, and they never troubled the top 40 again. Although the band is still going to this day, it's a complete triggers broom situation, as both Lopez sisters died last decade and McEachin retired a while back. Oh, we'll see you soon, though, Odyssey. You feature in a lot of early 80s episodes of Top of the Pops. Yeah. Yes, their performance is somewhat dated, their clothes are somewhat dated, but it could have been so much worse. A couple yes. of weeks before this, mm. Zoo dance to this yes they did and oh my fucking god yeah scrape my eyes out (laughs) i think that was the last performance of zoo as a dance troupe yeah yeah they wouldn't let him do it after that because it was so fucking rubbish Mm. what they do to this record yeah uh they almost take the Mm. piss out of it you know and that's what really aggravates me about zoo's performance of this Mm. yeah it's sadder than being dead i just remember there was a certain time when i realized that astronauts and disco Mm. stars were dying of old age and that sort of somewhat (laughs) depressed me (sighs) thanks david (laughs) inside out inside who built up a large fan following in the UK because they're constantly touring, and that's number three, Inside Out. Right, it's time to go to the electric scoreboard now and check out the charts. You at number 30, it's Trio and Da Da Da. At number 29, up one for Dollar and Videotech. At 28, Goody Two Shoes from Adamant. Heart Stop Beating in Time from Leo Sayer is at 27. At 26, Do I Do, Stevie Wonder. At 25, Soft Cell with Torch. At 24, I Want Candy, Bow Wow Wow. With ABC at 23, The Look of Love. 
At number 22, up from 28, Leonard Skinner and Freebird. At 21, it's Night Train from Visage. And at number 20, Bananarama. And here they are with Shy Boy. Next to some of the kids and a zoo wanker on another zoo wanker's shoulders just in case we don't see them tells us that Odyssey are big in the UK because they're always touring. Then he whips us into the first third of the charts, settling upon Shy Boy by Bananarama. We've already discussed Bananarama on chart music number 27 when they and the Funboy 3 struggled to be picked out amongst a blizzard of zoo wankers and balloons while recording Really Saying Something, which got to number 5 for two weeks in May of this year. This is the follow-up of sorts to that, and not only is it their first single since the Funboy 3 gave them a leg up into the charts, it's their first non-cover version, written by their new producers Steve Jolly and Tony Swain, the knob-twiddlers behind Imagination. Originally called Big Red Motorbike, which the group didn't like at all and demanded a lyric change, it was released just over a fortnight ago. Enter the charts at number 61 last week, and this week it soared 21 places to number 20. And although there's a video, directed by Midjor and Chris Cross of Ultravox, where the Ramas give a spod, played by Terry Sharp, the boyfriend of Sarah Darlene and future lead singer of The Adventures, a makeover, here they are in the studio. Let's get into them chart pictures first, chaps, because as always at this time of Top of the Pops gestation period, they're pretty and sadly professional in the main, aren't they? That, that mm. They are. There's no, 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 I didn't spot a single oddity. Amongst the children, no, got one or two. Oh, yeah. I mean, trio are wearing the same clothes as they did in the top of the pops performance, leading me to believe that the BBC didn't have an actual image of them and hustled them outside for a last-minute photo shoot. Yeah, very probably. Yeah. There's that great photo of Soft Cell poncing about with oversized musical notes which pops up quite regularly on top of the pops. It does, and I think it's on the front cover of um, The Art of Dancing, isn't it? Ah, there we go then. Yeah. There's a really 70s-looking washed-out photo of Dollar mm-hmm. uh, when they should have used the picture of them in this week's record mirror when they're all japanese up. Have you seen that <laughs> one? Oh, my gosh, no. I can only imagine. Mm. Therese is uh, all geisha up, and uh, David Van Day's gone full samurai. <laughs> All David Van Day's The Water Margin, <laughs> if you will. All the cultural sensitivity of sort of Japanese boy, basically. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's a satisfyingly crappy shot of Ronnie Van Zant bellowing into a microphone with a big hat on for Freebird, because mm. that's been re-released. There's mm. a bit of a grab revival going on. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And a pic of Bananarama looking extremely pissed off at the fact that they've got to hold up some inflatable bananas. Yes. Kind of like predating football terrace culture by a good 10 years or so, but mm. they're still not happy about it, are yeah, they? Yeah, they do well, that. It's under protest, um, you know, but perhaps that's the whole idea, you know, perhaps it's perhaps they concede, you know, the idea, and let, let's let's hold up some bananas and make out we're pissed off about it. That would be very, very meta, very post So this performance then, um, I mean, the good thing about it is that it looks like three of the better-dressed women in the audience have come on stage to do a turn, mm. and in this case, that's the bad thing too, because let's get this out from the off to me this is no really saying something well you say it's their first non-cover 
And it, mm. it is a cover of Come See About Me, basically. It, it, it's, yes. it's very yeah, much yeah, yeah. a cover. The thing is, you know, as a poptimist, I should be into this. I should really support mm. Banana Rama as a kind of counterpoint to to lad rock and lad pop but it's tremendously difficult holding something like shy boy up as anything yeah. other than a record really in which everyone us and banana rama themselves really are being entirely cynically manipulated um mm. that you, you said there that they didn't look like they were happy in the shot of the molding but bananas are, i mean the key thing for me with banana rama really throughout their career is that never post their work with fun boy three they never look like they're enjoying being pop stars to be honest with mm. you there, there's always yeah. this kind kind of sense of manipulation sense of stuff that they're uncomfortable with i mean i realized that Mm. this this record is never going to be a powerhouse motown type song i realized that the point of banana rama is their weakness in a sense vocally Mm. this isn't Mm. music for girls to sing along to in their bedroom mirror this isn't sort of betty everett doing the sheep shoots it's the sound of girls singing along in their bedroom yes. mirror in a sense you know there's there's no harmonies yeah. in banana rama's music they all sing the same yeah. note and that kind of amateurism can be really endearing but mm. the trouble is what i find here what's sad about this it, it's obviously a tremendously exciting period for the girls but the, the, i think here be the seeds of problems that they face later on you do have to wonder yeah. how much autonomy they're exerting over their appearance and you know this single the b-side don't call us is better because it's theirs it's them their own song um there's an interview with oddly enough another sort of all-female band but obviously completely different the raincoats in 1982 Mm. that i've read where vicky from the raincoats she talks about girls being brought into ornament groups and she's talking about the human league now yeah. by then i think the girls in the league have totally proved themselves but banana rama mm. certainly become in this period a target for that kind of idea of manipulation really thanks to records like this because it's a weak sounding record yeah. uh, they sound kind of bored which can sometimes be a good thing but they feel and they look on this appearance they feel a bit pushed around, a bit pushed mm. into this. And I know that's the bargain that they're accepting. Do this, yeah. get hits, don't feel particularly happy about it. But it always made Bananarama, for me, a little bit uncomfortable, in a sense, um, to mm. really get into, you know? Mm. Yeah, Neil, because when we covered Bananarama, when they did really saying something in a previous Top of the Pops, we were all for them. Yeah, yeah. You know, they came off as the, the three older girls sitting on a wall that if, you know, they nodded at you and acknowledged your existence, that was a really big deal. And there was a dubbiness to really saying something that lifted their take on a Motown song. But that's gone now, and it leaves their singing abilities exposed. So while you could appreciate their take on a Velvetette single, with this original song, you're left wondering what the Velvetettes and the Motown house band could have done with it. And uh, a bit more than this, I'm afraid to say. Well, the thing is, Bananarama, they're punks, and they're post-punk girls, you know? Mm. And and that's why their work with Funboy 3 suited it. Now they are being pushed into this new kind of type of pop for the 80s and and it ill befits them I think a little bit I mean don't of course it doesn't because they end up having a fair few hits Mm. but at no point I I don't think they're enjoying I I think already then we're we're obviously years before the the pizza incident that blows the band apart but Mm. um, you know I sense already they're not enjoying this no it's interesting Neil that you say that because I think in a sense 
that suspicion is kind of vindicated by um, when they um, hooked up with um, Stockache and Waterman. Mm, yeah. However, mm. I'm a lot more positive about this single two chaps. And I was at the time. Um, I, I really liked it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think before we just, why did they seem to get so much press? And I mean, obviously, you know, there's mm. the, the fancy ability factor. But I think they used to work as, mm. as sort of a press officers. They used to come up to um, music press officers before my time um, and sort of hand out vinyl, you know, to journos and editors and probably, you know, build a rapport um, that way. So there was probably a sense among journalists that there were some of us as it were yeah similar yeah. thing with emma out of lush um i remember that when she did that before. right but, um i do like this I, and i think there is a sort of kinship with um human league what i was talking about earlier on mm. in a sense there's a certain effortlessness not in the usain bolt sense of qualifying for the 100 meters final you know in the semis looking like he's strolling through that not that but a sort of lack of i don't know like robusting strenuousness that you yeah. get from the mm. 1990s onwards that era in pop when women in pop become re-objectified Frankly, mm. you know, that's it's there's a certain withering disdain about them. There's a little half smile that um, Karen gives to the camera um, on the line every minute we're together, and it reminds me of a similar smile that um, Joanne out of the Human League does in yeah. the video to keep feeling fascination. Um, you know, mm. it's a sort of you know, it's it's, it's a half smile. It's, it's very sarcastic. It's, you know, it's got. You know, they're out of sync uh, when they're dancing, and that's great. I mean, whack a handbag down there on the stage, and that'd be about the size of it. And if those geezers from Only Fools and Horses, like Mickey Pierce and his mate, come sidling up to they'll just mouth, piss off, yeah. and, without missing a beat. You know, there's that. You know, I, I like all of that. Mm. I like them. I mean, I, I like, yeah. I always like Sarah or Sarah. Her iciness, she never cracked mm. a smile, as mm. far as I was aware, throughout the 80s. So, yeah, I do like them. I, I, I found the song a little bit weak. Um, but yeah. perhaps I'm reading in later Bananarama problems into what they're going through at this point. Maybe they're completely happy doing this. And they've got a big hit all by themselves without having to, you know, um, have some male band introduce them. So it is mm. a successful moment for them. Yes. But I just never got the feeling with Bananarama. They enjoyed success much. No, well, they're shooting each other looks as they're performing and cocking mm. a leg and lifting a knee and all that kind yeah, of stuff, yeah. as if to say, what the fuck are we doing here? <laughs> you know, we've been through this week's NME where they were mm. interviewed on Music Laden, and I've seen that performance, and it's fucking brilliant, simply because the Fun Boy 3 are on there as well. The audience are a typical European pop audience, like mm-hmm. bored shitless, not reacting to anything. Mm. And Terry Hall's exactly the same performing on the stage so you get this feedback of boredom between <laughs> yeah. him and, and the audience it's fucking great mm-hmm. and, and I think that is okay it's kind of mandatory when I was a kid at school one of the worst things you could do was have a cheapy I be over enthusiastic about something. Yes. You know, hey, oh, he's having a cheapy there, isn't he? Mm. You, know, be, you know, you really have to curb your enthusiasm, and I think that was kind of mandatory at this era of punk. You know, it's it's it's. Um, I mean, if one thing slightly lets them down, it's what they're wearing. Oh God, yes, it is distinctly zoo wankerish. But in every other respect, they are the antithesis of zoo wankerdom. Mm. I mean, they're all mainly in white with um, mm. sort yeah. of colourful bits and bobs here and there. You know, they're, yeah. they're wearing banana. Well, one or two of them are wearing in Bananarama vests, obviously. Mm. Unfortunately, in Karen and Siobhan's case, uh, their outfit involves baggy shorts that just look like mm. massive nappies. Yeah, yeah. So they yeah. end up looking like Pamela Stevenson 
pretending to be Claire Grogan on Not the Nine O'Clock News. Yeah, <laughs> yes, there is a bit of that. And there. yeah, uh, by this point, I'm starting to wonder what Jimmy Greaves is saying about Germans on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Banana Rama is one of those bands where you do have to take their singles on a case by case basis. Yeah, and this one, no, it's not doing anything for me. Do, do it for me. I mean, uh, what normally happens with bands is that they start exerting more control as time goes on. I think it's the opposite with Banana Rama. And by the time they're working with Static and Walkman, they really feel pushed around yes. and they're not enjoying mm. it at all no at least here we're getting a sense of joy there is a really powerful sense amongst them and in between each other the, the looks that they're shooting at each other are exactly what you said out is mm. they can't believe they're on top of the pops doing no. this you know and, and that is always wonderful to see and yes. i celebrate the slight amateurism i celebrate the fact that musically they're not harmonizing they're just all singing it like girls would yes um, who were teenage girls who were singing along to this in the mirror much like their fans would end up being but mm. at the same time, do I want to hear it again? Not sure. No. Not sure if I want to hear it again. No. Um, but a good presence in pop, and certainly useful for the music press in as much as putting Banana Rama on the cover in 1982 makes mm. a statement of a sort, definitely, yeah. about what mm. kind of music you, you think the future should look like. So the following week, Shy Boy soared 11 places to number nine, and a week later it got to number four, its highest position. But already the group were dissatisfied with Swain and Jolly, claiming that they wouldn't let them record their own songs and wanted them to be an 80s update of the 60s girl group, and the partnership was immediately dissolved. Linking up with Barry Blue, they put out the self-penned Cheers then, which only got to number 45 in December, and was slagged off in smash hits for sounding a bit like the Coffee Tastes Nicer with Coffee Mate advert jingle. (laughs) So they reunited with Swain and Jolly and roared back to number 5 in March of 1983 with a cover of Nah Nah Hey Hey Kiss Him Goodbye, with a video featuring them roaring off into the night on three big red motorbikes Mm. Mm. and shy boy had an infamous afterlife in february of 1983 when channel 4 broadcast the first episode of mini pops a show produced by mike mansfield featuring extremely young kids dressing up and karaokeing the hits of the day featuring three frizzy haired tots singing he gives me loving like nobody else i like the way he turns me on (laughs) which led to an outraged letter to channel 4's right to reply which read mini pops should be called mini whores <laughs> are you people out of your mind oh my God. fucking hell mini pops yeah. is it the children's fault yes it's the children's oh fault. did you ever see that though i did and, and even as a kid mm. Yeah. Even as a kid, you felt like a paedophile. It's vile. I mean, yeah, yeah as a kid, really you is. immediately spot it was totally dodgy and just should not have happened, mm. let alone on Channel 4, you know. I, I mean, know. Very, very shocking that that even ever existed. And yeah. those three girls doing that song, it, it's deeply unpleasant, not only because of what they're wearing, but they're made up as well, heavily made up as I Oh, total, man. Yeah. The Homer Simpson makeup gun. Yeah, <laughs> fully deployed. Well, exactly. And coupled with those lyrics, God, it's horrific. I don't think Mike Mansfield realised how um, sexual uh, lyrics were getting mm. by 1983. <laughs> I'd love to do a bonus episode of Chart Music where we do that, but it's just... <laughs> you could not sit through a whole fucking episode yeah, yeah, yeah. of that. I mean, it is on YouTube, everyone. Um, bits of it. 
at your own risk. <laughs> Mini Pops is just immensely bizarre because mm. it's when one tries to identify who would watch that. Yeah. Um, you cannot answer that question without, yeah, a host of ne'er-do-wells and characters. Yeah. It's just appalling. Who the fuck would watch that? I think it was supposed to be something for the olden's. Mm. I know. And something for the kids. But the kids would fucking hate it. Oh, God, yeah. Simply because, oh, that kid, they, they're famous and I'm not. Fuck them. <laughs> I mean, kids singing pop songs is one of the greatest things in life ever. I've got a video of my niece when she was six singing I Love Rock and Roll while I'm playing it on Guitar Hero. And it's the most brilliant thing ever. But that's because she's so fucking amateurish yeah. and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, thinks yeah. it's called put another dime in the dew drop baby <laughs> <laughs> yeah whereas all the kids on mini pops they're all like stage school pushy yeah. parents yeah. yeah it's all about isn't it yeah you'd have Jimmy Savile wanking in his caravan you know but <laughs> yeah. oh, please uh, yeah. David yeah. <laughs> Neil before we go explain the pizza incident oh the pizza incident was one of the major things that broke up Banana Armour or at least that led to right. Siobhan leaving right it was down to they all shared a flat obviously a lot of i mean mm. if you're going to share a flat with people that is especially people that you're in a band with that you then have to sort God, of tour yeah. with and do everything with it's a recipe for disaster i think the pizza yeah. incident was the one that shoved them over the edge in as much as there was a slice of pizza on the floor that had attracted cockroaches and right. um yeah it caused a massive argument because i think it was siobhan that left this slice of pizza on the floor boom siobhan leads the band oh yeah over that pizza slice and that cockroach, which, to be honest with you, is better than most of the reasons that bands split up. It's yes. uh, they're more legitimate reason, I would argue, than musical differences. Kieran, Sarah, and Siobhan, collectively Banana Rama, and that shy boy. Right, that's number twenty. Let's go zooming back up the charts. At 19, Roxy Music with Avalon. Up 3 to 18, it's Murphy's Law from Cherie. Las Palabras de Amor from Queen is at 17. At 16, Hungry Like the Wolf, Duran Duran. ACDC's For Those About to Rock is at 15. At 14, Wonderful Thing from Kid Creole and the Coconut. At 13, up from 20, Bucks Fizz and Now Those Days Are Gone. At 12, it's Ico Ico from Natasha. Number 11, the Beatles movie Medley. Now we're going to put our engines into reverse thrust, go back to number 13, and catch up with Bucks Fizz with Now Those Days Are Gone. of another failed attempt to integrate the zoo wankers and the normal people, Kid handles a second part of the top 30 before rewinding and coming forward with Now Those Days Are Gone by Bucks Fizz. We seem to have accidentally become the world's leading podcast authority on Bucks Fizz and this, <laughs> their sixth single, is the follow-up to My Camera Never Lies, which became their third number one single in April, ending the foul reign of seven tears by the Gumbay Dance Band <laughs> and giving way after a week to Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. 
It's the third cut from their second LP, Are You Ready?, which came out at the end of April, was given a 10 out of 10 review in Smash Hits and got to number 10 in the album charts. And it entered the top 40 three weeks ago at number 37, then soared 17 places to number 20, and this week it's jumped seven places to number 13. So here's the video, which was partly shot in Hyde Park and features Mike Nolan as lead singer for the first time on a Bucks Fizz single. Mm-hmm. Well, chaps, this video starts at the exact same moment that the World Cup semi-final does, and I'm afraid to say you can practically hear the ricochet <laughs> of the ITV1 buttons clicking right across the country. Oh, oh no, no doubt, like a shot. Yeah. Shameful. <laughs> I mean, was this deliberate scheduling by Hull? I mean, we've said he's front-loaded all the good stuff, mm. and this is definitely the arse end of the episode, as we're, as we're going to find out. Yeah, mm. without a doubt. I mean, most of us will have seen this video well before this uh, appearance of it on Top of the Pops, so we definitely mm. don't need to see it again. Um, nothing miraculous is going to happen in this video that hasn't happened in this video before. And, of course, the video mm. misses the key moment of the filming of the video. Yeah, you know, the, the swan attack. Yes. On <laughs> Is it Bobby or Mike who gets attacked by swans? It's Bobby. It's Bobby, and I believe he was mildly injured in this. Yeah, um, he had to be dragged away by the camera crew. Oh, man. Because we all know what swans can break. <laughs> they can. The Frank Baird of the animal world, that is. <laughs> Size of trust. a dinner plate. Well, quiet. Never trust mute creatures, swans, no. rabbits. Just don't trust them. If Top of the Pops has said, stay to the end, because we're going to see that swan attack for the first <laughs> time. We're going to recreate it in the studio. Oh, yeah. Bobby oh, yeah. G is going to be in a cage fighting with loads of swans. Don't turn over to the World Cup. You don't want to miss it. Well, I mean, we would have stayed without a doubt, of course. Yeah. Hmm. Before we get into all this Bucks Fizz goodness, let's rewind a bit and go through okay. them chart picks because, you know, there's one or two interesting ones. Roxy Music. Yeah. Old Brian Ferry looks like the manager of a nightclub who's come out to have a sort of diplomatic word with a difficult punter. But exactly. Like by a couple yeah. of his bouncers, doesn't he? No trainers, tracksuits or baseball caps in Brian Ferry's club, I'm afraid. <laughs> Brian Johnson looks like an angry dad trying to tell Angus Young that he's a big lad now and shouldn't be on his shoulders anymore. <laughs> uh, Bucks Fizz themselves are, a, are basically a four-torsoed Blake Seven villain, aren't they? <laughs> Natasha with Ico Ico, I believe, standing in front of some space invaders, which is incredibly passé by the summer of 1982, don't you think? It's all Donkey Kong round here now, isn't it? It's all Donkey Kong and Defender. Yes. You know, definitely. And they've just slapped up the cover of Let It Be for the Beatles movie medley, so, because, you know, who gives a fuck? It's only the Beatles, after all. (laughs) So, yes, chaps, chart music, you know, it's been a voyage of discovery for all of us. Mm. And two things I've learned is that Buck's Fizz seem to be on top of the pops all the fucking time in the first half of the 80s and more importantly and more frighteningly I've come to realise that you know what books for us are actually alright you know I mean we've not done My Camera Never Lies yet but that is one of the maddest number one singles of the decade it, it just goes all over the shop and it's like oh fucking hell this is alright actually well it's you know it is telling like you said the album that this is from it gets 10 out of 10 in Smash yes. Hits and, and the review I've read it is extremely positive about the songwriting and everything else no. in 81 I needed Bucks Fizz for a bit of national pride you yeah. know um, but by 82 yeah. I, I still needed them even though I was seeing them as shit already or, or mm. starting to see them as a little shit you, you kind of needed Bucks Fizz to be the centre of pop yes to make your own ordinance kind of away from that centre more plain you need mm. you do need a figurehead of the mainstream 
yeah. to make your musical choices a little bit more interesting. And Booksfizz are definitely sort of stepping into that um, come 82 with videos like this. Um, mm. And they're total real. I mean, let's be honest. They're inheritance of the ABBA mantle, if you like. Yes. I mean, I think they've gone beyond Brotherhood of Mania. Oh, God, yes. Are, uh, and they are so, not as big as ABBA in terms of how many years of success they've had. But they're doing, I mean, they're doing very ABBA-like songs, as this mm. one is as well. Yes. I mean, 1982 is Bucks Fizz's imperial phase, isn't it? They've already got two number ones under their belt. And it's mm. still only July. And it's only them and the jam who managed two number one singles in 1982, let's not forget. But the thing about them was they just couldn't or didn't want to break out of their family friendly end of the pier crackerjack ghetto. Well, perhaps at some certain level, certainly. I mean, it feels like they are definitely trying to shake off the shaking Abba thing, obviously, by this stage. Shabba. It's, it's, it's Shabba. <laughs> Shabba. Yeah. You know, and this is very ambitious, and um, it was actually nominated for um, an Ivan Novello Award. Yes. I mean, you know, and those dresses are definitely staying on. There's no doubt yes. about it. Yes. They're, getting, they're serious now. Perhaps they feel that this is the moment at which they kind of ascend way, way, like in, in a balloon or beyond um, Brotherhood of Man, certainly, mm. um, indeed. And, um, you know, they they. On a pantheon, I don't know, Jacques Brel, Tim Rice, Bacharachs, you know, the sort of you know, the realm of like mature songwriting and craftsmanship. Yeah. Mm. Little do they know that right down at number 29 of the charts, there's an interloper in waiting, like Corporal Hitler in 1918, who's going to cut them right up a few years down the line. But uh, <laughs> the, the great Bob Stanley described this as home county's potting shed balladry of the highest order. Yes. They were ruthless at this time, Bucks Fez. Mm. I mean, this is an obvious play for the Radio 2 audience, isn't it? And mm. yeah. that's Radio 2 in the old money. Mm. I mean, I can imagine Cliff Richard absolutely fucking fuming that uh, he wasn't offered this <laughs> while he's pouring another bucket of child blood on his vineyard. <laughs> well, quite. I mean, look, Bucks Fez, they could easily have taken... Um, sort of uh, wall space in the old people's home that I was living in, you know, um, next to, mm. next to Torval and Dean and that. I mean, they're ruthless at this time. Yeah. Three number one singles, and they're each selling yeah. half a million. Only the Human League beat that in this period. Oddly enough, That's by the amazing, way, isn't yeah, it? it is. And uh, oddly enough, Bucks Fizz are offered this year. In fact, a 50-minute TV special on Easter Monday, which ends up falling through. It never happens. Oh. But um, Bobby has said that um, their guests were going to be the Human League. And, I mean, who Fuck. knows where that might have ended up. Oh, man. <laughs> Especially seeing mm. as the, you know, the Books of His Live show at the time included a medley of, of My Kind of Life, Hot Stuff, Do You Think I'm Sexy, and Rocking All mm. Over the World. <laughs> so where Good human league would have fit into that? <laughs> who the fuck knows? But, Talking yeah. about their tour, it's another example of them kind of like downplaying themselves a little bit. You know, surely, band with three number ones, you can command some pretty big venues. Yeah. Their tour, which starts next month, takes him seaside resorts and mm. Mansfield Leisure Centre is down there mm, yeah. on, on one of their dates. And their support act is Bob Carroll G's and Spit the Dog. <laughs> <laughs> but that is them, isn't mm. it? They were it uncomfortably is. in between the two. But I mean, you know, these are venues that Dollar wouldn't play. Mm. Bucks Fish should probably be playing the sort of venues that Dollar are playing, if not bigger. I mean, they're enormous at yeah. this point. Why isn't Paul Morley banging on about Bucks Fizz? That's a really good question. I think he might have done, you know, actually. I think he might have done, not mm. not to the same extent as Banana Rama, who he did bang on a great deal about, and Dollar, certainly, of course, yeah. Mm. I think Eurovision is always a big thing to have to live down, really. And you don't necessarily yes. see yeah. 
But they've done it. Mm. They're, they're a standalone group now, aren't they? Very much so. Making songs that I think the two words that most apply to them are expertly crafted. Mm. That, and that's what this is, you know? I mean, even though, for me, it's gagging for a kind of ABBA-like pulse behind it, um, mm. it, it works. It works as a piece of nostalgia for the people that, you know, might take it that way. But it also yeah. works as just a nice bit of harmonised pop. The only trouble is... It's a cappella for a long bit, mm. and mm. that always has that little bit of a cappella smuggery. It kind of reminds me quite a lot, this, of the New Seekers anthem from 1976. It's kind of similar. But, mm. um, I mean, the, the video in itself, my, much, much like all books for his videos, they'd, they'd started becoming events of a, of a sort. They're doing something for the olders in this video, which takes us all the way back to the 40s, don't you know? Mm. Bobby G in his RAF togs is essentially taking time out from giving the luff Waffle Biffin by slapping it about with both Rita Crudgington, who looks so fucking 40s. Looks like she's just walked off the set of Shine on Harvey Moon, man. She was born too late, that woman. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and Jay Aston, who's essentially playing Jane in the old Daily Mirror cartoon. <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, Mike Nolan's in an old school radio studio with one of them proper microphones in a dinner jacket, ruining the 40s effect by keeping his Lady Di hairstyle yes, yeah, on. Yes. The only thing that's missing from this is David Van Day in a stuka with an iron cross hanging <laughs> from his throat. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, both the boys in Booksfizz are letting the side down a bit, I think. Mm. The two girls, they look convincingly wartime. Yes. But if you had hair like Bobby or Mike in the 1940s... You, you, <laughs> Seven days jankers. Yes. You'd, you'd have been shot as a fifth columnist or yes. something. Yes. So, yeah. you know, and also, how have they got bread to feed all these geese in the park? Uh, you know, don't they know there's a fucking war on? Do you know it's bread, though? <laughs> it might be powdered egg or something. It might be, but, you know, they're using up one of their mm. ration coupons. Yeah, um, traitors. You're right, they only semi-commit to mm. it, really, don't yeah. they? It's funny you talk about, like, taking us back to the 40s. That, of course, is today, it wouldn't have taken us back to the 80s. Yeah. Which um, I think just goes to show that certainly in pop time, you know, there are, there are decades mm. and there are decades, you know, because mm. the 1980s are much closer to the 2020s than the 19. 19- 40s were to the 1980s. Well, exactly, David, because at the very end of the video, we see G and Baker sat on a bench, and then they transform into what I assume is an elderly version of them 40 years later, yeah. mm-hmm. which is pretty much what they would be now. But the 68-year-old Cheryl Baker and Bobby Gubby certainly don't look like that today. Fucking mm. hell. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, I, I, I mean, I, I, I remember lying to my mate and saying that the old couple at the end were Bucks Fizz made up, right. that they were Cheryl and Bobby made up. He believed it. I know it might seem that I was Ugh. a lying little cunt back then, and I just t- t- spent my whole time conning the credulous. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't the only person to, you know, have a second look at that video sometimes. I think, mm. oh, that could be them, you know? We need to go back to that old people looking like actual old people. Yeah, too right. Mm. This is a really, really competent song that is going to mop yes. up a big part of the pop market. But... Mm. It's appearance at this point, yeah, I would absolutely be fucking killing myself to turn over to the footy by now. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, you mentioned a pulse, you know, anything that didn't have a pulse to me, it was, yeah. it was just dead to me, basically, yeah. at this point. I mean, we're two months away from the first anniversary of Bucks Fizz winning Eurovision, right. which was made quite a big deal of by the band and the media, mm-hmm. which is mental because it's only a year... But the fact that everyone seems to be commemorating it sort of signifies that they have moved on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, oh, yeah, do you remember we did this? Mm. Every single after 
making your mind up was almost like a gradual step away from that. Oh, yeah. Look, the fact that we are even remembering Books Fizz a year after their Eurovision appearance is a miraculous achievement in itself. Yes. So mm. yeah. the fact that they're having huge hit albums, huge hit tours and all the rest of it. And, and I do recommend people seek out the 10 out of 10 Smash Hits review. Mm. This was not a band that could easily be castigated as Eurovision cheese. They were taken no. seriously as a pop band. Mm. So the following week, now those days are gone, nipped up five places to number eight, its highest position. The follow-up saw them take another swerve and transform into fuck's biz when they took <laughs> If You Can't Stand The Heat to number 10 in January of 1983. Oh, yeah. And 24 years later, Now Those Days Are Gone became the only official books for his release to contain obscene language when the demo, recorded by co-songwriter Andy Hill, was put out on their Lost Masters 2, the final cut anthology of unreleased songs and off cuts yeah he efs and jeffs a bit at the end it's disgusting disgraceful <laughs> where we were going wrong now those days Honestly, I'm not really this short. It's just that they're standing on a ledge above me. Uh, Let's go back on the chart. At number 10, Work That Body, Diana Ross. Mid-Jurors at number 9, last week 11, No Regrets. At number 8, up 5 for the jam, Just Who Is the 5 O'Clock Hero. At 7, I've Never Been to Me from Charlene. Shalimar with A Night to Remember is at number 6. Still at 5, Imagination with Music and Lights. Irene Cara's fame, the highest new entry at number four. At three, Inside Out from Odyssey. This week's number two from the Steve Miller Band is Abracadabra. And incredibly, at number one, once again, it's the wonderful Captain Sensible. And here he is with Dolly Mixture performing Happy Talk. Back amongst the zoo wankers breaks down the top ten before alighting on this week's number one, Happy Talk by Captain Sensible. Born in Balham in 1954, Raymond Burns began his career as a member of the proto-punk band Johnny Moped in the mid-70s, before being invited by Malcolm McLaren to join a new group called Masters of the Backside, which featured Dave Vanian, Rat Scabies and Chrissy Hind in 1976. The band fell apart after one gig, but the non-female members decided to stick together and form a new group, The Damned, who immediately signed to Stiff Records. In August of 1976, while a coach party of bands, including Eddie and the Hot Rods and the Pink Fairies, were waiting to depart for the first European punk festival at Mount de Marsan in France, Burns got his name when he turned up pissed out of his skull in a shirt festooned with epaulettes and lurched up and down the aisles, pretending to be an airline pilot, leading someone to exclaim, Oh, it's fucking Captain Sensible, and the name stuck. 
Although the Dams are credited with releasing the first ever punk single, New Rose, in October of 1976, and the first punk LP, Damned, 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 in February of 1977, they split up in early 1978, and Sensible was invited by the band's former road manager to front a Dutch band called The Softies to record a cover of Jet Boy, Jet Girl, an Elton Matello single which utilised a backing track put together by the godlike Luda Prick of Two Man Sound, <laughs> which he later put out himself under the name Plastic Bertrand, called Sa Plan Pour Moi. Due to the lyrical content about a 15-year-old boy in a gay relationship with an older man who he wants to kill because he's now got a girlfriend, it was strangely never released in the UK. <laughs> In the spring of 1979, the dam reformed and finally broke into the charts when Love Song got to number 20 in May and Smash It Up got to number 35 in October, but diminishing returns started to set in. By 1981, when Sensible noted that loads of people at Damned Gigs had crass logos stenciled on their leather jackets, he linked up with Penny Rambo and spent a week with him at Dial House, Crass's anarcho-pacifist open house, and together they worked on his first solo release, the This Is Your Captain Speaking EP, which was released on Crass Records with a cover of Sensible's face on the body of his pet rabbit in November of 1981. It got to number three in the independent chart. Earlier this year, while the Damned were still active, he landed a solo deal with A&M and was linked up with the producer-musician Tony Mansfield, a former member of the Nick Straker band who had just split up New Music, the band he had fronted since 1977. They immediately commenced work on an LP mainly consisting of sensible songs that the Damned had rejected for being too melodic, but discovered they were one song short for the album. When Mansfield told him to pick out a cover version to make up the shortfall, Sensible considered Waterloo Sunset or See Emily Play, but knocked them back when he realised that he couldn't improve on them. So, on the encouragement of Mansfield, he rummaged through the record collection of his parents, who he was still living with at the time, and pulled out their copy of the soundtrack to South Pacific. The 1949 musical written by Rodgers and Hammerstein and zeroed in on the song where Juanita Hall gives her daughter and an American Marine that she's knocking off some relationship counselling. When A&M discovered that another artist was ready in a cover of Happy Talk for release, they took a chance and rushed it out as a single three weeks ago. And after extensive play on Radio 1, it entered the chart at number 33, which led to a performance on Top of the Pops with Mansfield, Rod Bowkett, a keyboard player and arranger who had worked with Cliff Richards, Stackridge, Fern Kinner, Marty Kane and Bernard Cribbins on the single Make Someone Happy Every Day, which was recorded by Buzzbear, you know, the massive yellow-orange bird mm. who used to nag at you for not ringing up your mam, mm. and Dolly Mixture, an all-woman post-punk trio who were signed to Paul Weller's Respond Records, were once supported by U2 and had just come off the Bad Manners Gosh It's Tour. To the amazement of everyone involved, the following week, Happy Talks soared <laughs> 32 places to number one, becoming the first single 
ever to jump to number one from a position outside the top 30 and break in a record which was set by the Beatles in 1968 when Hey Jude jumped from number 27 to number one. I think that's going to be the biggest sword I'll ever do yeah. on chart music. Well, well, I mean, it's the biggest soaring. That record, that lasts for many, many years, that record. This is its second week at number one and he and Dolly Mixture are back in the studio for the third time. Well, hmm, where to begin with this? I'll start with you, David. You obviously knew all about Captain Sensible yeah. being at that age in those trousers. Yep, yeah, and yeah, I was definitely. just about aware that he was in The Damned and a punk, but what did the young Neil called Carney know of him? Um, me? <laughs> I wasn't aware of The Damned. Um, no. Even though I think they might have been on top of the pops, I wasn't aware that he was a member of the Damned at all. So mm-hmm. what I knew about him was, yeah, this record and these appearances... Yeah. And did I emerge from that with much sense about who the fuck he was? No, because no. this performance and this record, to a certain extent, they're kind of a joke I wasn't getting, to be honest with you, mm. at that age. Um, although, you know, eventually I would come to love certain solo Captain Sensible things, like what, yes. um, what worked, because it's pretty much a pop version of Oggy, Oggy, Oggy. Yes. But, um, you know, <laughs> this this just seemed odd, this long-awaited return to number one for Rogers and Hammerstein. Mm. Um, it was just strange. And, and the performances didn't help much, to be honest with you. Um, no. I wasn't that familiar with what drunk people look like. <laughs> now, of course, I can look at this and think, he's pissed out of his face. And he was probably, yeah. well, in fact, as later reading of, uh, of, of features and interviews with Captain Sensible revealed, he was pretty much drunk for the entire period of the early 80s and was drunk mm. when he made the record. But... Yeah, what I had in my head was, who is this eccentric chap? But he wasn't captivating, particularly. I was much more captivated by the Dolly mixtures, I think, than Captain Sensor. Yes. Yeah, well, I would have watched this, and my semiotic trousers would have rolled up and down with contempt. <laughs> Primarily because, obviously, I knew I would have seen everything in the context of punk and pop entryism or whatever, and that was a project mm, that yeah. appeared to be reaching a zenith in 1982, and in the Human League had already cracked number one. But, you know, there were things, there was there was sort of would-be pop-like screech, there was the associates, ABC, etc., etc., etc. Now that was the trajectory that was how the, you were supposed to go from punk to entryism to pop. Not this, you know. Mm. <laughs> it's cracked it. This, this is something else. There was the sort of the wing of punk that was in it for the kind of getting the pit, getting pissed, and having silly names like Captain Sensible because he's not sensible at all. He's a bit nutty. It no. turns out. Um, Nor is he a captain. No, no, he's not. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say this is the wing commander. It's a bit sorry, isn't it? But there you go. Um, so yeah, um, I would have, I, I, yeah, I, I would have disliked this intensely, and I, I would have despaired at the, um, the you know, the, at the country that was like buying this in droves or whatever and silver mm. kind of, it was all you know musical errors like this were precisely equivalent to Thatcher keeping getting re-elected or whatever mm. um, it really was you know, I mean me- when I first heard it and when I heard about it I was convinced at some point it was going to pull on my way with Sid Vicious mm. Mm. and you know start in a sort of serious way but then just go off on the song yeah and as i listened to it the first time and as it went on that the realization sunk in that he wasn't going to do that at all Mm. and it was just like oh god is that it yeah yeah and of course now it comes off as a big in joke Mm. played on the oldens who bought it in exactly yeah but immediately took against it sid definitely didn't die for this i felt (laughs) no certainly not but no i think that's true i think it is just that basically it is sort of parody of the kind of the shit one-off st winifred's type single basically yeah um, yeah. delivered mm. 
with you know like you know a vast vast dose of um, sarcasm but you know what is happening is nonetheless people are unironically going to record shops and paying unironic cash for it oh yeah we're talking about the oldens we're talking about there would have been people sitting in living rooms having this beamed at them who would have grown up in the edwardian age you know and and, mm. and um and i think that this is genuine nostalgic feel-good balm you know for a certain mm. Mm. existing yeah. dem- demographic as, as he was and i mean you know, because you can't clearly it was an enormous success and something has to account for that it's we'll meet again for the falklands war isn't it <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. I mean, friends I'd make later, older friends, they'd say that when this came out, you know, they'd be dealing, if they were working in record shops, with, you know, little old ladies coming in, asking mm. for records by Captain Sensible, and having mm. to resist, you know, selling them Dam Dam Dan, for instance. Um, <laughs> it's odd, thinking of the fates of that class of 77, if you like. The Jammer in the top ten, the Clash of Break in America, yes. Stranglers kind of, in their way, also have an oddity kind of record with Golden Brown. They're all mm. finding mm. ways to do stuff away from the centre of pop, perhaps, while still having hits. But this, I mean, this is just, yeah, like David said, this is definitive novelty fare. I.e., it's not a... It's weird, because obviously it's number one, but it's not a big seller. Do you know what I mean? For it's it's mm. one of those for a few weeks smash midsummer novelty hit that attracts enough attention during a kind of weak sales period to slip up to the top position. You know, it only mm. noticeably spends eight weeks in the top seventy five in total. So the joke yeah. obviously wears thin quite quickly for a lot of people. Happy mm. Talk. I looked at the charts for the top fifty best selling singles of the year, and Happy Talk's not even in that top fifty. Yeah, that's mental, which oddly enough is a distinction it shares with Beat Surrender. Um, right, you know, you know, similarly big smash, but they don't stick around long, and they don't sell no. sell sell that big. Um, just needs noting, Dolly Mixture, um, their album that they sort of put together themselves and self-release called Demonstration Tapes, mm. which Bob Stanley I think reissued. Bob Stanley's coming up a lot today, isn't he? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he reissued, reissued it on I think his Mint Royale label. It's actually well worth seeking out. That you know they had that that they were great, um, mm. but. <sighs> captain here is clearly as pissed as he was when he was recording it there's a fantastic yes. interview by the wonderful carol clark um in melody maker yeah. with captain sensible around about the time this was coming out uh, this very week this very week indeed where he says you know he backs up everything you said obviously Al, about the recording of it i mean he says what can i do with this song i couldn't play it because it had a key change and i can't play the black notes on the piano um, <laughs> so he says all i did was go down a pub get extremely drunk and wait for them to make the music yeah and he seems to have continued that drinking all the way through to this appearance because mm. this isn't just wacky zaniness. This is he looks trolled to be honest with you. It's not unpleasant yeah. to watch, no, but it, it's not dangerous or anything like that. But, um, yeah, no. it, it's a big fat fucking laugh. So that's how he's being portrayed in the music press. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's have a look at how he's being framed in the tabloids because there's an article in last week's Sunday Mirror called "This Star is So Daft." He's sensible. Hmm. Call him a disgusting slob and he'll love you for it. But clear away the smelly socks and general disorder from his pad and he'll probably spit in your eye. This is Britain's number one hit loony, Captain Sensible. A name specifically chosen because that's what he's not. Throughout my interview with him, he was hell-bent on maintaining the image of the nauseating layabout. I have been known to be sick all over myself, he said, and generally behave in a revolting manner. 
So would money and newfound stardom change his bawdy habits? Nah, governor, <laughs> said the former toilet cleaner from Croydon, South London, who now does gigs in the nude. I won't change. I love living in squalor. And there's a photo of him naked playing the bass. Yeah. I bet he did not use the word governor. Thankfully not holding the bass to one side like Ashley out of imagination. <laughs> we, don't, we don't see any, uh, any of that nonsense. Mm. I mean, although it predates the TV show by nearly six months, to these jaded eyes of mine, Captain Sensible's coming off in the media as a one-man mashup of the young ones. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, He's yeah. got that tinge of violence like Vivian. Mm. He's got a, a beret, uh, like Rick. Uh, he's a bit of a hipper, like Neil. Mm. And I couldn't think of anything to do with Mike, so let's ignore <laughs> that. You know, he's a, he's a lovable layabout yeah. who's a bit wacky. I think there is definitely an understanding, you know, that um, he has some sort of punk origin. You know, there's, an, there's a strong inkling. And I think even the old girls who were watching this would have a sense of that. Oh, he was one of them punks. Yeah, exactly, no, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. And I think he kind of plays on that. There's that little bit at the beginning of this where he seems to kind of like be kind of going, yeah, to the, to the rabbit girls before sort of backing mm. off as if to say, nah, it's all right. I'm, we're all right, really. We're just, you know, we're, we're punks and all that, but we're cuddly, really. You know, have a cup of tea. Yeah. Mm. Like the uh, like the sex pistols yeah. in that Danny Boyle atrocity. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> See again, you know. And I said, you, you know, you, 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 this is this is betrayal. You know, you've you've deliberately de-radicalised yourself for the kind of top of the pops mm. shilling, you bastard. This is his third appearance on Top of the Pops. Um, what has he come as this week, chaps? It's sort of Wurzel Gummidge Pirate, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, Wurzel Gummidge Pirate. Mm. He's got a, he's got the has he got the bird on his shoulders like yeah, he did yeah. in the previous does, one? Yeah. yeah. And Dolly Mixture of rabbits mm. uh, singing into giant carrots. There's daisies painted on the studio floor. There's tinsel and balloons everywhere. Mm. And as in the previous performances, there's a model seagull that's flapping its wings overhead. Looks really realistic. It looks like it's been stuffed, <laughs> mm. which is a bit grotesque. Mm. <laughs> but there's a deliberate shitness to it, isn't there? Yeah. It? There's yes. a kind of deliberate naffness to it. And, and I think he is kind of cocking a snook, uh, the sort of po-faced pomposity of certain aspects of new pop here. Yeah. There's a very telling quote in the interview with Carol Clark, the, the aforementioned interview, where he says, we all liked Happy Talk after we'd done it. I thought it was definitely better than the Human League. I don't like yeah. them. They stink of dog shit. So, nice. <laughs> yeah, very nice. You know, I think he is surprised that this becomes a hit. Oh, yes. And he's sort of surprised and delighted as our Dolly mixture. Mm. It shouldn't have been that surprising, though. I think if you're going to take this particular song, which I've got to say, as ever with chart music, I've been fucking humming this all bloody week because it's an incredibly well-crafted song. Yes, it is. And it was a song that was known about. It was, you know, it was was on the national playlist for, for quite a while. Yeah, Roger, you know, Roger Hamstein first returned to the charts since You'll Never Walk Alone, actually. Really? And, and, yeah, I mean, it's their first number one since then. Um, a lot of people seem to think You Never Walk Alone is Joey and the Pacemaker song, mm. um, but it ain't. It's, I think no. it's, from Car- it's from Carousel, isn't it? Yes. I think he's massively surprised. Consequently, he's kind of taken the piss with all of his appearances. But mm. there is a little bit of, look, we're going to use synths. We're going to do this old cover. Um, we're not as po-faced as what else is going on in British pop music at the yeah. moment. Mm. And yeah, return for Tony Mansfield. New music. We've raved about them. Not even covered them once on chart music yet, but we're, we're dead keen on them. Mm. So good to see him back, but what a shame it's on this. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that's the trouble, though. Not wanting to be po-faced is part of the British disease. Yes. Mm. 
Yes. I mean, he sings the song straight, which is a, a bit bad. But then, on the other hand, you know, imagine this in the hands of someone else. He doesn't lean into the pigeon Englishness of the original, which Ooh, no, no. Yeah. was a song written by two Jewish Americans sung by a black woman mm. and mimed to by a mixed-race woman pretending to be Polynesian. Mm. Imagine if he'd have punked up the vocals. That would have been truly awful. Oh, mm. fucking hell, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not to pick on the guy, but, you know, I imagine Jimmy Percy doing this and something oh, like that. Oh, fucking hell. Do you know what I mean? Whereas at least he just keeps it flat. And consequently, mm. you know, for the old folk, and let's face it, it is going to be old folk buying this. Yes. Um, his punk roots are completely eliminated. He's more oh. of just the kind of wacky, zany Ken Dodd type figure. Definitely. Yes. Um, yes. You know, more than anything else. I tried to find out who the other major artist was who was thinking of covering this song. Oh, right. Couldn't find it anywhere, but I'd take a guess, Anika. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's got form for this sort of oh, thing. Oh, yeah, it'll, it'll be part two of a racist trilogy, no doubt. But <laughs> <laughs> It's calibrated to appeal to everybody, apart from the people who usually watch Top of the Pops, yeah. i.e. people like me. Mm. Fucking hated it at the time. Mm. Doesn't get played enough for me to hate it now. So, no. you know, there is that. But the only fond memory I have of this song is that I've got a tape somewhere of my mum singing it to my sister mm. at the time. And when it gets to the golly baby, I'm a lucky cuss bit, my sister just says, did you say cunt? <laughs> and my mum corrects her without batting an eyelid and, and, and they carry on. Hmm. I mean, that was the thing. You just thought, well, there's got to be one time where he just sings, I'm a lucky cunt. Hmm. Even if it's unintentional, Hmm. maybe this would be it, this this performance, but no. He does draw Hmm. it out a little bit, inviting. Of course he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That story you told earlier on about the recording, it just reminded me of that. Apropos of nothing, really. When I was about 15, and um, it was my Catholic school, and um, I had a school essay, and it was just meant to be sort of in the kind of vernacular of a northern man, you know, a sort of Hovisley type thing. Hmm. And, you know, and it was, he kept saying couldn't a lot. And, Quite innocently, you know, I kind of, you know, it says you couldn't make it up. Yeah. You couldn't credit it. And I was writing C-U-N-T every time in this thing. And, I just yeah. like, and it came back with these like, red rings, you know, my teacher handed back the exercise book, absolutely <laughs> glowed at me. And it was honestly, I was not being subversive. You couldn't make it up. You couldn't. The word cunt appears 12 times in this short essay. And uh, honestly, I, I really, really wasn't. I was, I was an innocent boy. But I, I also think, I mean, look, this is not a record about nuclear war. It's not a record about Falklands War or anything sort of socio-political, but in a sense, the enforced jollity of it it Mm. is in a way making, not not a political point as such, but I think that's potentially why it's sold so much. That that There's no subtext here. It, well, it, it's not. It's not ghost town. Is no, it? no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> so the following week, Happy Talk dropped to number three, being usurped by Irene Cara. The follow-up, the Adamant diss track "What," got to number twenty-six in September, and his LP "Women and Captain First" only made it to number sixty-four in the same month. While the Dam's new LP "Strawberries" got to number fifteen. After putting his solo career on hold for two years, he left The Damned in 1984 and his next solo release, Glad It's All Over, got all the way to number six in April of that year. That's a fucking tune, that is. That's the great lost new music single. Don't remember Mm. that one at all. Oh, it's brilliant. Mm. But diminishing returns set in when his double A-side Christmas catalogue and relax, yes, that relax, only got to number 79 in December of 1984 and he was dropped from A&M. 
Sensible rejoined the Damned in 1996 and still tours with them today, while his record was eventually broken by Pixie Lot in 2009, when boys and girls jumped from number 73 to number 1 in September of that year, because it's the 21st century and the charts don't mean shit. Well, absolutely. (laughs) That record, yeah. that record just goes, and and before you know it, you're in a world where, yeah, you know, Lily Allen entered the charts last week at 168, now soars to number three without mm. that oh. of an eyelid, you know. It's not the same, is it? Fuck that. Yeah. But it's interesting to learn that your mate's working at the record shop and fighting not to sell damned records mm. to non-Rs, <laughs> because I always thought that was a bit of an urban legend. It mm. would have happened. And, and the weird yeah. thing is, I mean, with what coming down the pipe a few, a few months later, what was traditionally held up by all the old people that I knew as, you know, this is terrible, not, not offensive, but kind of ridiculous that this can be a pop song, mm. this kind of back mm. and forth chant. So he's kind of, you know, Captain Sensible is kind of held up in about a few months time as evidence of just how empty and shit pop is um, yeah. but these were all the fuckers who were buying happy talk oh man the oldens turned the back on Captain Sensible <laughs> they did mm. they went off and bought a spread a little happiness yeah <laughs> and went to see the film that it was in <laughs> fickle old bitches <laughs> yes Still at number one. Next week's Top of the Pops will be introduced by Peter Powell. And this week, we're going to leave you with the music of the Steve Miller Band. And uh, moving to it are some magicians from the Human Circus. I think you're going to like them. Back amongst the throng of zoo wankers warns us that Peter Powell's coming on next week and signs off with Abracadabra by the Steve Miller Band. Born in Milwaukee in 1943, Steve Miller was the son of a jazz-crazed mum and dad and the godson of Les Paul. When he was seven years old, the family relocated to Dallas and offered up their back room as a demo studio to the likes of T-Bone Walker, Charles Mingus and Tal Farlow. And the young Steve was encouraged to have a bang on the guitar by Godfather Les. In the mid-50s, he started his first band, The Marksman, which consisted of him, his brother and his best mate at school, Boz Skaggs. And when he started attending the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1961, he started up Steve Miller and the Ardells with Skaggs in tow. They were put on hiatus when Miller went to the University of Copenhagen for his final semester, but he packed it in with only six hours of study left to be completed and decided to take his band to Chicago and get immersed in the blue scene of the time. After running into and jamming with Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf and Buddy Guy, he linked up with Barry Goldberg, a keyboard player who was in the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and was a part of Bob Dylan's backing band during his electric performance at the Newport Folk Festival and they formed the Goldberg Miller Blues Band and moved to New York but didn't get on with it and he ended up in San Francisco where he formed the Steve Miller Blues Band in 1960. 
After they backed Chuck Berry on the 1967 LP Live at Fillmore Auditorium, they were signed to Capitol, knocked the blues off their name on the recommendation of George Martin, and ended up on the bill of the Monterey Festival in June of that year. It would take five years and eight albums for the Steve Miller Band to get properly sorted out in America when the Joker got to number one on the Billboard chart in January of 1974. And it would take another two years after that for their first dent on the UK chart when Rockin' Me, his second US number one, got to number 11 in November of 1976, their only British hit thus far. Earlier this year, when their 12th LP, also called Abracadabra, was being prepared for release, Miller pushed for this to be released as the lead-off single in America, but Capitol Records didn't reckon it at all. However, Phonogram, their European label, were all for it, and it got to number one in Austria, Portugal, Spain, Sweden and Switzerland. And even the Brits went for it when it came out last month, when it entered the chart at number 38, then soared 26 places to number 2. After an airing of a very expensive-looking video on Top of the Pops, it jumped 8 places to number 4, and this week it's up 2 places to number 2. Now, normally, chaps, that would warrant a pan of the kids and the zoo wankers in the studio or mm-hmm. a fisheye view of the studio lights, but hey, it's 1982. Mm. So Michael Hurler's riffled through the classified section of the stage and booked in some magicians to do their pieces in between clips of the video. <laughs> I mean, he rolled the dice mm. with Trio and came up with whatever's good in craps, mm. which I've never understood. But in, in this case, he's, he's tried to repeat that trick and this time, the dice have gone right off the table and under the settee <laughs> been hoovered up by his mum and lost forever Indeed. I, I yeah. contend Indeed. I, 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 I concur you contend and I concur definitely yeah. the magician's not Whoa. really that magic is he um, hmm. Well, there's three of them. Well, the one who looks hmm. like a kind of mustachioed Fraser Crane. Um, yes. He's bloody awful. Definite animal cruelty issues going on with what he's doing. He starts pulling hmm. a variety of species out of the box. And I'm fairly hmm. sure a couple of those creatures are dead. They don't seem hmm. to be moving hmm. much. And then he closes his stuff by pulling a deeply unimpressive amount of handkerchiefs out of a cocktail yes. shaker. A cocktail shaker hmm. that looks perfectly adequately sized to contain that many handkerchiefs. It would be, it would be more magical for me to pull tissues out of a man-sized Kleenex box. It's not really yeah. magic. Well, no, that's more difficult. You know, the first, the first few, you usually get a right fucking watch, don't you? That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. true. I mean, there's, yeah. three, there's one in a dinner jacket who looks just like a zoo wanker, mm. who was actually mm. standing right next to Kid Jensen and kind of like walks off when the song begins and starts dancing yeah. before he starts mm. doing his pieces. There's that bloke, the animal cruelty bloke with mm. a receding hairline, but there's someone else with an absolute fucking Uber Keegan of a perm oh, God, yeah. who does ball tricks. Mm. Amazing mm. hair. He looked like, he mm. reminded me of Jim McLaren from Porridge, actually, a little bit, that guy. Um, mm. But um, he's, he, what's he doing? Kazoo in his yeah. mouth, bouncing a football on it? This is not mm. magic. No. No. Also with magic, magic requires undivided attention. Yeah, well, exactly. Very good, didn't it? You know, bloody Steve Miller's all, you know, harping on in the background. It's, mm. yeah, it's not an ambient thing. <laughs> well, magicians kind of do suit top of the pops in this era because magicians are all about look at me look at me look at me but they're also about distraction 
Mm. So you've got loads of zoo wankers doing the look at me bit, and then you've got them, and you've got the video, and you've got the music, and you've got the neon, and you've got the balloons, and you've got the flags, and you just can't focus on anything. (laughs) It's a bit of a headache, isn't it? Mm. It But you do need distraction from what zoo are doing, most definitely. Of course. There's an appalling bit where City Farm, they all join hands, and they start jumping up and down steps. It's horrible. Yes. It's horrific. I think near the end, you know, there's a really horrible bit that's sort of like really blokey and space entitled, you know, all those sort of chaps get together. The sort of people who barge their way onto the centre of the dance floor at the yes. Bally High nightclub or something. Yeah, yes. You know, there's, there's no grace about it. I mean, Pan's people, there was always grace, wasn't there? there yes. was a certain, you know, not necessarily gracefulness. They could be, but there was grace in terms of their presence. They didn't there feel was invasive. Dignity. These feel, yeah, exactly. These these people just feel invasive and horrible. Mm. But truth be told, couldn't they have shown the video? Couldn't they just show yeah, the video? Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, but they've already shown the video. They don't like showing the same video twice. Yeah, but it's a well expensive... Even though it's 1982, how many times have you seen it? Well, this is it. You know, there's no MTV. You, you might not have... You probably haven't got a video recorder. You know, you're not going to see it on Breakfast Time or TV AM because they don't exist yet. There's no Channel 4. Mm. Just show the video. The song mm. for me, because I'm a kid, I'm an idiot at this time. I mean, look, I love this song. It's well catchy. And it was intimately associated with the video for me. I was annoyed in a, in a sense that it kept cutting to the video and then just depriving us of it and showing us yes. City Farm wankers again. Um, yeah, cause, which we've seen. Well, we've seen them. We've seen them plenty of times. We don't need to see them anymore. It mm. is. I mean, I cannot believe that Capital didn't think this was a single. It's mental, isn't it? It's mental. It's blatantly the single off any album that it would appear on. It's catchy yeah. as fuck. Very, yes. very simple song. But yeah. um, it's simple, catchy, and it has... I'm not saying it's avant-garde or anything, but the guitar solo is kind of mad and kind of wacky mm. and full of sound effects. It's, it's got a mm, similar yeah. sort of appeal to the reflex later on by Duran. It's kind of gimmicky, but yeah, yeah absolutely. It's like it, being trapped in Defender, isn't it? It is. Guitar solo. It is, but immensely ear-catching for a kid. So let's talk about the single. I mean, I've got a very sweet tooth for Steve Miliband. From yeah. Fly Like an Eagle and Rocky Mare. I've been playing them recently. It's like, fucking hell, these are good. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not supposed to like these, but... Fuck it, I do. Yeah, I, I, I would have just hated it. I had a very salty tooth for them, really. Um, <laughs> it's just slick, white, orthodox. But I will grant you that it is absolutely um, very, very memorable indeed. I mean, mm. so from that point mm. of view, I mean, it certainly does a job. Um, horrible lyrics. Very sort of Donald Trump, isn't it? Grab, you know, grab him by the pussy. Yeah. Um, well, let me stop you there, David, because it's actually the woman in the song that sings that. Because the lyric goes, just when I think I'm going to get away, I hear the words that you always say. Oh. So she's the grabber. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, that's all right because of feminism, etc. Well, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, it's still very risky, really, because, um, you know, he's saying it in it. No. If he sort of said, Abracadabra, mm. I want to greet you, you know, and conveyed a, a distinctly feminine voice, <laughs> then he would have been in the clear, absolutely. <laughs> I want to yeah. greet you, grab you. You see, that's obviously a woman. Yeah. yeah obviously. Yeah. So, a fine line between sexy and sexist, doesn't it? It, it, it? it is. And the thing is, you know, it's, it's like who's listening to the lyrics? All you're listening, it's a bit like the Bruce Springsteen thing. Born in the USA, didn't you listen yeah. to the verse? No, of course not. You know, you listen to the key line. So all I ever <laughs> no. heard for years and years was a bloke singing, I want to reach yeah. out and grab you. I mean, maybe Donald Trump could have used that defense. <laughs> in any case, you know, Steve Miller's clearly in a consensual relationship mm. involving magic. So okay. you know, if he wants to reach out and grab his partner, as long as he's mm. not 
too grotesque and she doesn't mind and he's he's not just doing it to show off to his mates. I think that's fair dues. Well, okay, fair enough. You're a bit, you're a bit more liberal in Nottingham. <laughs> Al, why did you have to say consensual relationship involving magic? And I've now got, you know, obviously, McGee and Daniels in my mind <laughs> and uh, Scat Dungeon. No, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's a bit doubtful for years. I think it, it, it was a stigma. I think, you know, it affected me. It probably affected my attitudes to women for many years. You know, who's just to say? I mean, you know, no. in your formative years when you hear these things, you know, the sort of things that's <laughs> oh, sexual. My, my case comes up on Thursday. <laughs> uh, in any case, what, what else rhymes with abracadabra? I mean, come on. Well... I know. I mean, it's it's tough, isn't it? I mean, obviously, he's done it because he was thinking of something that rhymes with abracadabra. I suppose it would be like, hey there, yeah. hey there, hey presto, I really want to molest you. <laughs> <laughs> Just as bad, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. Or he, or he could have sang, I want to take you to Tesco. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, I suppose. I can scoff at you, David, for being lyrically wrong about abracadabra, but my head is bowed at the moment because um, talking of lyrics that you didn't get, I've come up with an absolute, oh, what, wow moment. Oh, really? I've had it in my head until today Mm -hmm. that the lyric in this song goes, silk and satin, leather and lace. Black Betty with an angel's face. Right. <laughs> right, which is a callback to the Ram Jam classic mm, of 1977. Of but I've only just realised what it actually is. Do you know what it is? Go on, then. Black panties with an angel's mm. face. Mm. And that changes everything for me. Hmm. <laughs> Because not only a, a pair of drawers with an angel's face on it would be all kinds of fucking wrong, mm. particularly if it was a biblically accurate angel, mm. as Taylor's <laughs> pointed out. But now, I mean, all I've thought about all day is Frank Spencer going, ooh, panties. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Mm. I never heard the Black Betty thing, but now, of course, I'm thinking about Betty Driver. Yes. <laughs> Not in a pair of knickers with a biblically accurate angel on it, no, though, eh? No, I'm going to stop now, actually. <laughs> but, yeah, Neil, leather and lace, leather ampersand lace. He's, he's brought that into the uh, yeah. into the dictionary how astounding, How astoundingly prophetic of him. And I'm sure mm. he didn't know the uh, the uh, legion of shit rock compilations it would, um, it, that would ensue. But there it is. <laughs> David's thoughts are actually very much reminding me of uh, Miles Davis's quote about Steve Miller, which I love. Um, right. In his autobiography, Miles Davis says, I remember one time, I, it might have been a couple of times, at the Fillmore East in 1970, I was opening for this sorry-ass cat named Steve Miller. <laughs> Steve Miller didn't have his shit going for him, so I'm pissed because I got to open for this non-playing motherfucker, you know, because he had one or two sorry-ass records. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to imagine that in Miles Davis's voice. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just hate the fact that he's called the Steve Miller Band or whatever, you know, it's like, mm. you know, frills, does what he says on the tin. and all that. Oh, <laughs> Give yourself a name, ACDC, whatever, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's a slick white orthodox, as I say. But it, um, And I think what, what really would have bothered me, I mean, you, you made a list earlier on of all the things that are imminent, Al, you know, like um, video and Channel 4. This is the very, very last, the last knockings of the era in which pop time is really, really precious. And this, yes. is, this would have pissed me off because it was really eating into my very precious 
pop time. What are you moaning about, David? You're watching fucking Your Heroes West Germany. Oh, well, I mean, about this On point. ITV yeah. now. Well, yeah. So shut up. Well, true, <laughs> well to be honest, now we all would have been by now, I would have mm. thought, yeah. I would have flicked back about three or four minutes in and gone, oh, it's that. It's yeah. abracadabra. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. flick back. Mm. You know, because I'd be hoping it was just who is the five o'clock hero by the jam, mm. who suddenly just made an appearance on top of the pops out of nowhere. And I was terrified I was going to miss something like that. So yeah. I'd have flicked back and then gone, oh, and flicked back over again. But I suppose w- with things like this, precisely because they're actually well-crafted in a way, they don't just occupy precious minutes of Top of the Pops. They sit in your brain. Mm, you know, they, yeah. they're, they're earworms or whatever. So they have that kind of add-on yeah. insidious effect. And this was one of the big anthems of the summer of 1982. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I don't know. Life is just very, very different these days. I mean, my and I carried this through right into being a music journalist. And for me, it justified, you know, the kind of absolute roastings I would give out to music that I disliked. Because, you know, a song like Baby Jane by Rod Stewart, which I think is the worst song, mm. worst pop song ever made, <laughs> <laughs> and I just deeply resent the fact that I heard that 80, 90 times and yes. I could play it now in my head. Yeah. I deeply yeah. resent that, the way that people resented you 2 putting their album out on everybody's um, you know, mobile phones and all that shit. But now, I don't get bothered in the same way with this anymore. I'm, I think like most of you can just live in a bubble, really. There's rubbish music out mm. there, but it doesn't detain me for one single second. I don't no. have an opinion on Adele because I don't, I've never knowingly listened to an Adele record. You know, mm. she's not no. eating up space in my head or sort of taking up you know, like precious time. the only thing Adele takes up is that um, rack in Tesco's where the toughies used to be <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean yeah yeah video's expensive though isn't it I like mm. that spinning ball mm. I still can't work out how they do that yeah. and they've got animals in it but it's a, a white rat uh, being treated nice by a slinky woman who uh, who is Joan Severance, who was a model really? at the time. Oh, yes. Right. She later became Hulk Hogan's love interest yep. in the film No Holds Barred. So there you go. That's my second Hulkster reference. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else to say about this? No. I'm saving my abracadabra story, which could, you could say it would be appetite here. I'm saving it for Halloween. Um, there was what? A ge- oh no! There was a moment in my life where I heard the word abracadabra in a truly terrifying scenario. Um, oh no! Come on, you can't leave. It oh, like I that, was Neil. just lying on my bed in my flat in York, right where I right. studied. And um, this flat had a bit of a history to it. Um, we were students, and we wanted to move in in June, as I recall, for our final year at uni. And we were mm. told by our landlord, "No, sorry, you can't." Um, they found a body under the floorboards. Um, then they oh, found, fuck. yeah, they'd found a skeleton. Now York's obviously an ancient city; it could have been ancient, but um, mm. we didn't tell one of our roommates, and luckily he got that room. But um, yeah. that, <laughs> that room was full. That whole house was full of spooky shit. The, the one thing I really distinctly recall, and I honestly, I wasn't doing drugs or anything. I was lying on my bed <laughs> listening to something, and I don't know. The record had finished. The needle lifted, and deep in my ear, well, right in my ear this um, demonic voice, genuinely demonic, said abracadabra in my ear and it scared the living fucking shit out of me. <laughs> um, now, you could say... Did it reach out and grab you? No, it didn't. <laughs> fuck, but my God, that was scary. Um, I, oh. I, I, granted, I, I'm a, I was a suggestible child and teenager and young <laughs> adult, but <laughs> I'll never forget that. That was terrifying. I mean, I can listen to abracadabra by Steve Miller, no problem. It, it doesn't raise traumatic memories. But, um, yeah... Oh, what about if that. he crept up behind you and whispered it in your oh, ear? Though, no, don't, Al. That shit me up. Don't, mm. don't even fucking <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> so the following week, Abracadabra. I don't even want to say it now, Neil. Oh, it's creepy. It was the following week. That song 
stayed at number two for one more week before entering a large box, having swords thrust into it and disappearing out of the charts. (laughs) However, its success over here and throughout Europe forced the hand of Capitol Records, who put it out in that there Yankee land where they make all the films. And it got to number one for two non-consecutive weeks in September. Fucking hell, man. We're even ahead of the game on America's own fucking singles, man. Mm. Useless bastards. (laughs) Backwater. (laughs) The follow-up keeps me wondering why only got to number 58 in September, and that was their lot over here for the rest of the decade. But in 1990, Levi's ran an advert where someone who looked like Madonna's latest boyfriend rode a motorbike into a stock exchange office and lobbed his girlfriend some jeans to put on to the sound of the Joker, their 1973 single, and it spent two weeks at number one in September of that year. It is unfathomable to me why this record company thought this wouldn't go down well in America. I know. Is it, is, do you reckon it's because Steve Miller in America has got a bit more of a catch it and kind of people like know who he was mm. and therefore the contrast with him doing this quite new wavy kind of record oh, yeah. um, might have unsettled them a bit. I don't know, but it's yeah. mad because it's an insanely catchy song. Yeah. It's a big, dumb, catchy song for a big, dumb, catchy country. You know, I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> I, th- I think they worry that the, the likes of Johnny Fever wouldn't play it because it's too disco. Uh, of course. Maybe, yeah. Mm. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But you see, I would have refused to have danced to this on principle. <laughs> um, you know, I was very, very discriminated. There were certain things you did. It didn't matter what, you know, if it was something kind of romantic, brune on the dance floor. If this came on, I would absolutely, as a matter of principle, whatever the situation, storm off in high dudgeon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you only dance to funk. Um, it could be white funk, but you do not dance to... I was very strict. I wouldn't even dance to Motown. I just thought, or if I what? did, I'd do it in a pointedly sarcastic Why? way. Like, you, know, you, know, you want to sort of bust some contemporary moves, you know, with some nuanced rhythms and what yeah. have you. That's how I felt about it. I was very, very strict about this sort of thing. Dancing like fucking Andy McCluskey, eh, David? <laughs> <laughs> and that, dear boys and girls, is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One whippers straight into the fourth episode of Fame, where Coco's band do a benefit show, but Bruno develops stage fright, but everything turns all right in the end because oh, it's great. fucking fame. <laughs> After the news, it's episode six of the drama series Oppenheimer, where the inventor of the atomic bomb starts getting mithered by Joe McCarthy. After that, it's the concert series, Night Music, and this week, it's a chance to see Sky in concert. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Then we go back to David Coleman for highlights of the World Cup semi-finals in World Cup Report, then the weather, then close down at a quarter past midnight. BBC Two eventually ensures that my dad doesn't stop me from watching the end of the football by putting on summer festivals, where Paul Gambaccini and Fran Morrison take us to the chittest of festivities to see someone play the piano in a cathedral. Then it's news night, highlights from today's cricket, and they shut down at five past midnight. ITV are 10 minutes into the West Germany-France game with no goals as yet and unaware that they're about to screen the first ever penalty shootout in a World Cup which fucks the rest of the schedule right up. 
So they presumably follow up with news at fucking ages after 10, <laughs> followed by regional news in your area. Then TVI nips over to Toxteth to find out if any lessons have been learned after last year's riots. Then it's Hill Street Blues, what the papers say, and they close down at God knows when. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow morning? Imagination. Um, mm. Of course, Shalimar for sure. Um, yes. Although probably you know with equal avidity to haven't seen it the first time. Oddly enough, you know I genuinely did go out and buy um, Shy Boy by Banana Rama. Right. right. I, I got a very soft spot for it. I didn't like much Banana Rama before then or subsequently, but that that one kind of you know it got me. Mm. So is that because you were a shy boy, David, underneath could those be. trousers? Could, could could be. Oh yes, yes, could well be. Yeah, that's mm. probably it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'd have been talking about, yeah, Jeffrey Daniel, without a yes. doubt, I think it'd be top of, top of the discussion. Probably about how sick we were getting of that Captain Sensible tune. Um, yeah. My mates would definitely been talking about ACDC. Mm. Um, and I think Imagination were always talked about whenever yeah. they appeared. Um, so, yeah, that's what we'd be chatting about. Mm. What are we buying on Saturday? So, as a kid, I'd have been getting hmm, Imagination Trio. Mm. And possibly that's about it. As an adult, Odyssey, yeah. Shalimar, yeah. Um, DC, um, in fact, quite a lot of them. Yeah, what a strike rate in this episode. Mm. There is, definitely. And Sorry, another thing I would have been talking about, probably, in fact, inevitably, would have been which member of Banana Armour I fancied mm. um, the most, which was probably Karen. I would have bought, uh, I actually did buy Odyssey, course and i did yeah. buy as i said um but uh, the banana rama it was the only banana rama record i ever bought mm. and i think that's about it i would have probably not bothered this time with um imagination um already got it really and of course i would have already got um don't you want me mm. and i should sort of not been quite so much up my own ass and actually invested in acdc he might have made a man of me no um but i didn't and i was just disappointed i had high hopes for a trio and da 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 and i felt they were dashed really so uh yeah but hey we got a decent chocolate bar out of them didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> trio doing the advert music for mm? trio would have been fucking amazing <laughs> With that girl. <laughs> and Derek Griffiths, fucking hell. They could have done a whole album of that, man. They could have done, they yes. could have done the United one as well. You know, yes. my name is Stan, I am a fan, all of that. Mm. I am the boss, and sometimes I get cross. <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about July of 1982? Well, you know what? It was a lot more interesting than I might have thought, I think. Yes. You know, I think Pop's getting more colourful in a way. Than the, than the kind of glowering early 80s years. Things at the moment, when this episode comes out, they could have gone kind of one or two ways. We could have ended up with more perversity and oddness, if you like, a la trio, or we mm. could have gone more competence and slick professionalism, as in all the shit that Jonathan King throws at us. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jonathan King's world wins. Um, as I think mm, yeah. 83 and 84 prove. But things are still sort of nicely up for grabs in this period in a way that I wasn't expecting. I think this tells us that 1982 has got to be taken really seriously as one of the great oh, years totally. of music. Yeah, definitely. I think we have to extend that golden age out mm. from 1979 right past 1981 and into at least the middle of 1982. Mm. I think the problem with 1982 is like 1980, 
It's a year stuffed with brilliant music, but the number ones are shit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because the oldens and the norals and the kids are still having their say. The toddlers. Mm. Uh, what a high water mark of humanity July of 1982 is. This kind of quality on top of the pops and a decent World Cup. Fuck yeah. hell. Take me back there, please. Great, yeah. Great, great, great times. And I, I would agree. I think I'd ultimately probably plump for 82 as the greatest pop year. Um, you know, right. Simon makes a strong case for 81, you know, and I think it is a strong case. That was a great year too. Um, and then mm. 83, the descent begins. I mean, it's Howard Jones, Nick Kershaw, who are just kind of peroxided chancers, basically, who mm. don't have this kind of punk trajectory. Yeah. And actually the Smiths, although I loved them at the time, they, they're the kind of, you know, the first white group in ages, you know, coming from that sort of Mancunian background, who are clearly... Who, who, without funk, who have no relationship, indeed have a disdain for black music, well, Morrissey certainly. Um, and I mm. think that in itself, you know, although, the, you know, the, the Smiths' early Smith's records are very great, they represent a kind of re-Caucasian-fying, as it were, of rock and pop music. And, you know, they're the first group to break off that relationship with great black music that you had since punk. Yeah, and in 82, kids are, are still into music, if you like, that is... And, and when I say kids, I mean not little kids, yeah? Like you said out uh, a few minutes ago, you know, little kids and oldens. Um, I, th- I mean, teenagers, they're into music that their parents can't fathom out and that their parents think this isn't proper yes. music. Whereas in 83, yes. those kids are into things like, like David said, Howard Jones. You know, Howard Jones is never going to rub an older person up the wrong way with his mm. feather cut and his no. basically sort of synthy prog type music. Whereas in 82, there is still mm. that thing of, mm. I mean, I remember my parents saying to me, this is barely music. That's what you want to hear as a kid. You really want to hear that. You know, that's no, what you want to hear. It? Whereas in 83, I don't yeah. think that's happening as much. So yeah, yeah an underrated year, 82, as this, as this episode proves really. Was I was saying to my daughter, Alicia, you know, this isn't noise, it's just music. <laughs> <laughs> And so we come to the end of another episode of Chart Music. Oh, all that remains for me to do is the usual promotional flange. So www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, Neil Kulkarna. As ever a pleasure. God bless you, David Stubbs. A pleasure indeed. My name's Al Needham, and golly baby, I'm a lucky cunt. (laughs) Chart music.
And she probably won't be running along in this versatile outfit. Perfect for stopping traffic and starting. Who knows what? Manny. All the breaks have been going well for Manny. He's wearing the B-boy look. B for breaking, and boy, do that look tough. David. Who's the hippest cat in town? Ain't no doubt when David around with semiotic trousers and hair and fitness, he's the 80s nod to fitness splendor. Stay cool, David.
where we were going wrong Now, those old days They're fucking gone